Welcome to this lovely fall day. A great, great place to hold a meeting. Welcome to Alameda, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. Uh, I would like to call the meeting to order, and so will the secretary please. Um... Trustee Lawrence? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Charland? Well, I think he'll be late. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Lujanani, he's not here today. Trustee Zorthian. Here. We have a quorum. Great. And um, I will make the announcement. I think our our new um, trustee, our, our second newest, um, is caught on the bridge. So Gary Carlin's on the bridge. And so it's a lot likely he will show up. So if he finds another route, then, then possibly, but so his absence, yeah, helicopter, and we got Anthony Thompson was in fact improved by the uh, supervisors, and I think he will join us tomorrow, is my understanding. So, um, welcome everyone, and I'd like to. Do we have any public comment at this point? Okay, then I'm going to turn over the meeting to Del Vecchio, and it's yours, Mr. Finley. All righty, um, I will quickly turn it right back to, to, to everyone else here. Uh, uh, good morning, trustees. Uh, great to see you, and welcome to your, your, your fall retreat. Um, we've, uh, we've tried to make today uh, a combination of, of good um, uh, board dialogue and discussion about some key strategic uh, opportunities and uh, areas of importance for the organization, uh, as well as um, um, a good, good amount of activity related to how the board conducts its business. So we'll, we'll, we'll fuse that in. And, Hopefully, have a productive and, and action-packed uh, day and a half. Um, and the, uh, Trustee Lawrence uh, uh, has given me some great advice, and I want to thank all of you actually for your feedback on the agenda. Um, uh, but um, I have probably I've tried to not be overly ambitious uh, uh, with the retreat agenda. Um, I thought everything that we have here is really uh, uh, important for various reasons, and so we want to make sure we get it all in. Uh, but since um, I've now been hampered with a 20-minute. Uh, 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 cutting my time, I'm going to cut my remarks a little short. Uh, just say that you know we're really trying to um, <clears throat> um, use this retreat to again talk about those important things. Uh, there's areas like John George, obviously, and behavioral health overall uh, as important areas of opportunity and uh, ongoing focus for the organization as we put in our strategic business units in place. Uh, we also obviously are looking at the uh, or taking the tentative uh, uh, approval or. or um, uh, tacit approval that we got from the board on the strategic plan and over the last couple of months we we're really uh, focusing a lot on getting uh, the initial steps of the foundation in place to uh, implement our, our strategic business unit model um, and get our support services aligned to support those different business units. Uh, you'll hear about one of those over the course of the day and we'll talk about a little bit about that when we get to that point. Um, but then just one parenthetical remark I'll, I'll say, um, uh, or actually I'll say to that end we've actually put a new uh, org chart in place, as you know. We've uh, recruited and filled some of our key roles, and the others are in process. Uh, some of our um, unexpected things along the way, uh, uh, just to kind of get it out there already, as we, uh, in one of our uh, business units, uh, Behavioral Health, we're losing some really important leaders, uh, uh, one of whom will be presenting to us today. Uh, really sad about uh, um, Guy's departure, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Walker, who recently announced he's uh, going to step down as well. Uh, but certainly wish both of them well for very uh, different reasons they're leaving, but uh, wish them both well, excited for uh, Guy's new career path and 
uh, his cut in commute, uh, uh, speaking about commutes this morning, uh, uh, but a fantastic opportunity for him to uh, uh, show, uh, showcase all that he has and has been doing for us as well. So we wish him well, um, uh, but not yet. So we'll keep going with the rest of the day. Uh, but with that, I'd like to uh, just go ahead and jump into uh, today. And actually, I thought it w no better way to start than with a, a great mission moment. So um, I had the great fortune uh, probably about two months ago uh, now um, to, uh, to finally happen over to the outpatient uh, uh, behavioral health program here um, uh, at, or I should say not here, but at Highland uh, to learn about all the great work that we do in an outpatient setting. Uh, for behavioral health, uh, not just at Highland, but at Fairmont as well. And so uh, Michael McAdoo, the manager of this area, is going to uh, introduce his fantastic team and some of our um, amazing patients who we work with and some of the programs that we do and, and the great artwork that they pr uh, uh, produce, uh, which I was just absolutely floored by. So uh, I, I wanted them to kind of start with this moment that really showcased uh, for, for uh, many of you uh, some of the great work that's happening in this organization. So. Michael, if I can turn it over to you to introduce the team and talk a little bit about the program. Oh, great, great. Uh, am I on? Am I on? You're on. Um, well, I appreciate this opportunity to come before you. Oh, you oh, have to. Oh, you got to go. Oh, oh. It works. It works. Okay. Okay. I appreciate this opportunity to come before you to present uh, our programs, both at Highland and Fairmont. Uh, Lucy Calvin is going to present Fairmont's program. Uh, we have an outstanding program. Partial hospitalization is what we're known as, but uh, we can look at it more as day treatment. So our day treatment program is a beacon of light for the city of Oakland, Alameda, and surrounding areas. Uh, as you know, uh, Oakland has been through a trauma of incidents, and we take our patients who uh, come from that community and they really uh, do some great work. And I had to really do that for our therapists. Uh, today, you're gonna see some wonderful artwork uh, that our patients have, um, have done. Uh, it's, geez, amazing. And you'll hear from them later on in the day. Uh, Partial Hospitalization Program is a community-based, it's a client-centered program. It's got its own community. It has its own uh, leadership structure. Uh, we have its own communication and newspaper system. Uh, and to boot, they get treatment as well. Uh, I have a fantastic team with my clinical manager, Jane Bond. Uh, Dr. Denise Drummer-Taylor who was very instrumental for getting the vacuum to come to our unit. <laughs> uh, Dr. Carnetta Porter. Good morning. These are fantastic clinicians, supervisors, and uh, you'll hear from them uh, shortly. So I'd like to pass it over to Lucy uh, to talk more about the Fairmont program. Um, we're in San Leandro, and um, like their program at Highland, we're uh, very diverse in what we're trying to accomplish. Sure. <laughs> we're very diverse in what we're trying to accomplish. Thank One you. of the main things is to um, really join the current peer sort of oriented rehabilitation model where peers really learn from each other 
and support each other with our support um, as therapists. And so to do that, we have to really provide a lot of different treatment models from uh, you know, dialectical behavior therapy, um, which really assists people in a lot of their continual suicidal uh, uh, episodic um, behaviors and thoughts patterns to be able to not just stay out of the hospital, which really was one of our, is one of our primary goals, not to be an inpatient, but to actually thrive and learn emotional regulation skills and find just more meaning and, and connection in the community. And so, and we have uh, the mental illness and chemical addiction program. Um, we have uh, seeking safety uh, we, we do an art series about three times a year where we have eight weeks um, for our third group. All the clients on that day pick what art group they want to be in, and at the end they have a sharing um, together in a big room and look at everybody's stuff. Um, we have an art sharing about four times a year where uh, it's kind of like an informal talent show. Uh, where people can just support each other in the creative things that they do. Um, we have community meeting in both programs every morning, uh, and the clients lead the community meeting. Just recently, uh, the clients in our program wanted to have a, a more, uh, so we have a, a president, a secretary, and a treasurer, and we uh, take, get money from our recycling. Um, so I, I wanted to talk just a little bit about our TOPS program, which is um, a volunteer. I gave you a brochure. It's a sort of a mini volunteer job in a treatment setting. And the really great thing about TOPS is people have um, jobs within our program, but they're not big jobs. They're short, short jobs. Um, but the thing that's really been wonderful about this program is it's a peer-supported program in that people... Um, support each other in succeeding and doing things they never thought they would do, that people um, a lot of times felt like they would never have a responsibility again because of the severity of symptoms that some people have been experiencing. But as they feel better and they get to have responsibility and work together on teams and learn uh, skills together working on teams. People have flourished. Um, it's been going over seven years and it's just really helped people volunteer in the community and a few people have gone on to get uh, some jobs in the community. One person just worked at Lowe's um, during the summer peak season. And so it's, um, we're, uh, ex we're excited uh, to have a community uh, peer uh, supported program in which there's a strong therapeutic uh, clinical uh, uh, structural basis to really hold people and be able to help people uh, be safe, uh, learn new skills, feel empowered, and uh, feel more like uh, they want to be, you know, a whole person. Like every, they're all whole people. Every, we're all whole people, but some people uh, don't have the opportunities as everybody, and we're trying to give people the opportunities. And they're all great, all, in both programs. I've been at Highland, too, and we just have a wonderful group of clients. Yeah. Thank you for wanting to learn about it.
to introduce uh, Ms. Dr. Carnetta Porter. Um, good morning. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Uh, I just wanted to say a few words. Um, I, I'm Dr. Carnetta Porter. I'm a clinical psychologist and therapist um, at Outpatient Services. Excuse me. Can I? Sorry. Um, and I've been working at OPS for almost two years now, actually. My goodness. It goes fast. Um, and I facilitate, you know, many of the groups here, but I also facilitate the, what we call the healing uh, group therapy. I've kind of nicknamed it the healing arts group therapy. Um, and that group is offered once a week. Um, and it's a very special group. We have, oh, the clients that attend that group, um, it's really popular. Uh, and the clients that attend that group are, have developed a cohesive kind of um, bond together. And so they feel very safe um, and just expressing um, through art with many different materials that are often donated um, and that, you know, are just kind of range from materials of using paints and um, canvas drawings on paper with, you know, markers and colors. We have all sorts of materials that um, the clients are able to use to express what their mood is for that day. And so over time, what I, I wanted to just kind of point out, before I do that, I want to introduce um, one of our esteemed clients who um, regularly, uh, I, I think he's probably been in the group longer than some of the clients there at the program. Um, Mr. Sanders Strickland is here with us today. And so he's very instrumental in guiding the group um, and just holding the group down. We have our art groups, I'm sorry, our art, <clears throat> excuse me, our art um, shows, my goodness, um, like quarterly. Um, so we showcase the artwork. Sometimes, we'll have, most times, we'll really have a theme um, that everyone in the group will work together as a team on. And then they also work just independently and create um, works that are beautiful, such as this work here. This was done by uh, Janie Johnson. Um, she is a client at, the, at um, Highland. Um, and I'll have Sanders come up and show a couple of his pieces. We have artwork here in the back here that, you know, really speaks to um, life experiences that many of the clients um, are experiencing, you know, at, at that moment or just in time, uh, over time, of, through their lives. And they talk about, as they're creating, they talk about and um, I think just kind of develop awareness and insights on how they're feeling, not just for that day, but maybe over you know, a chronic um, period of time, how a lot of what they create and come up with you know, on a daily basis, on, and it's on canvas, and they can actually see their life experiences. So being able to, and sometimes they don't have to speak at all. And what they're thinking or feeling and their thought processes can come forward on and through their work. Um, I just brought a couple of pieces today um, from a client who is not here just to kind of demonstrate how over time patterns 
of the thought processes for um, clients can come through. Um, so this is artwork by one particular client. On some days, she has two, two I, I call it just kind of polar ends of creating, um, and the way in which that she processes, um, you know, just her life experiences, and I think Lucy was just kind of speaking to, um, you know, how we not may not see them as whole, but they're whole, right? But also still struggling sometimes with um, integrating themselves as a whole. So oftentimes she will create art such as this, which to someone outside may look like it's busy, if you will. And so this could possibly be interpreted as someone who, you know, is um, overwhelmed, we'll just say that. And then she would create something like this as well. Where she creates people and this looks cool. So this is dependent, if you, you know, understand it's a kind of a difference, a polar difference from what to some would look like she was scattered in her thinking to feeling cold. Maybe she didn't feel, you know, herself within a space um, one day where she's always making the patterns here. Um, and then the next day, she's whole. So the discussion around how she's feeling comparative to the art that she creates has really shown just the milieu and the community just how much she has grown in understanding of her world, understanding how she operates in the world, and that's what the art therapy does for many of the clients. Um, so Sanders. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Come on up, Sanders. Oh. So Sanders um, wanted to see. We, we wanted him to come, and he's very. Um, he can be very passionate in a very quiet way, um, and we wanted to invite Sanders today to just give a couple of of words on how, what the art therapy group means to him and how it impacts his life. Okay. Um, now this is new to me. I'm kind of nervous. So um, I've been in Highland program a little over six, seven years. Uh, but the uh, Highland program, the art group, was an expression for me to uh, have a, um, a release to show myself um, um, uh, expression of myself through art. Um, uh, uh, the program is great. There's other people, individuals there that have handicaps as well, but they're great. They have great talent and great gifts. And I'm often I'm amazed by some of their talent. I'm wondering why they're not here. They're great. But um, I used to work, I would work for the railroad, Southern Pacific Railroad, for seven years. And then I, was, I went to school. I went to graduate from high school, and I had two years of college, Laney College, two years of junior college. I studied architectural engineering, and I did um, 
in addition to the home in the Oakland Bay Area, Bay Area with a, um, a pastor from the church that I attend. Uh, so that's why this is a lot easier, you know, to draw and stuff, you know, doing dimension lines. Line works a whole lot easier. But um, they gave me an opportunity to do something, so I just gave my all, you know. But, uh, and I learned a lot as well. But, uh, but Carnetta helped me, asked me to do a portrait, so I tried to work on the portrait, and that's the best I could do with it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one of the, yeah, this is, uh, well, it was a sketch, uh, actually a death scene that I sketched out. One of the other um, therapists, he, he's also an artist, and he has some ideas. He said, you ought to make that three-dimensional and give it an abstract idea. So I followed the instruction, and it came out like that. So it looks pretty good. <laughs> so. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, Jean. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Hi, my name is Jean Mason, and I am a client at Highland and a member of the craft group, and I'm very nervous. I would like to start with a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I took a little bit of uh, Toastmasters, and this is an icebreaker. So <laughs> I looked up on the internet last night because I wanted a craft-related joke. So what do you call the steps it takes to learn to crochet? A chain of events. <laughs> All right, I feel a little better, thank you. So I wanted to talk a little bit about my experience uh, in the craft group and also some of the benefits that I have found in the craft group. Um, I've been in the program about five years. I've been in a lot of other programs. I've done a lot of talk therapy. I've done a lot of the other therapy groups. Um, so when I got a chance to do the craft group, it was a nice break, and I didn't realize at first that I was also very depressed when I first started, and the group actually gave me an opportunity to produce something, to find something that I really enjoyed. When I first started, most of the uh, people there were doing either crocheting or knitting. And one of the ladies was teaching people to knit. And I tried to learn to knit. I tried to learn to crochet. I had no patience with it. So I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay here. What I found for me worked was back in the 70s, I used to do a little macrame. So I played with that, and I started doing macrame. So all the macrame work you see here is mine. And I really found how much I enjoyed it. And... Yeah, this is one of my pieces here. Uh, you know, dream crouchers? Well, this is a grace catcher. <laughs> and you'll get to see that a little later. And this is also a, a wall hanging or a plant hanger. 
And this is an example of micro macrame. I have a matching bracelet I couldn't find, but. And also this is, I was at my sister's and it can be a little depressing sometimes at my sister's. So I, I went out and I bought materials to keep myself entertained. Right. Now this one I'm gonna have to hold up with both hands. So can you I tried something a little different that's um, actually cruel work, and I found that kit on the street. I, by the way, I'm an Alameda, so go Alameda. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that, so uh, I worked on that one, and I'm looking forward to doing another one. So um, what else have we done here? Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. So can you hold that Oh, okay. I didn't know I was going to read. I would have brought my glasses. Okay. Um, I can't. I don't know if I can read this. It's so small. Okay, why don't we just pass it on? Okay, thank you. Apparently, this tells about the um, experience of a client. And, um, and she's one of our artists as well. And um, this is really beautiful. This tells the story. This tells you a whole story. And, and uh, when it was presented to me uh, from the client, I was really taken back. I was really taken back. Because everyone that's been a part of her therapy and her growth has come on that. And these are some of the benefits. Uh, it's a change of pace from just going in and doing talk therapy. And there are also people, I was just thinking as I was sitting there, I know of one client who doesn't like to talk a lot in group, but she can go and participate in craft and feel a part of when she really needs to. I know it's hard for her at home, so it's really great for her to be able to sit in and do this with us. There's a practical aspect of it. We get to actually produce things. I made my Christmas presents last year. I um, covered coat hangers and gave those away to family members as Christmas presents. And a lot of these other things I've used as presents. It's a different way to connect and work on issues. There's something about working with your hands that's different than using your mind or verbally communicating that's... Um, and it's a great way if you can't, if, if, if you're not wanting to, to do that or just to have a fresh approach, to be able to come from a different place is great. And um, it gives you, there are options too. You can come or not, participate or not. The self-esteem and self-empowerment, creative expression. And we get to share with the community a different side of ourselves and connect with them in a different way and also maybe turn them on to something. And then um, we get to know Denise. She, she um, in a kind of a different way, a lot of times when I'm in a group, the facilitator, I don't see them as much as a peer, but when we're crocheting with her and it's a relaxed environment, you can really open up in a different way. Oh, you're gonna show you, can I identify it as who oh, made it? Yes. This is Denise's piece. <laughs> Wow.
Okay. <laughs> this is an ongoing joke. Denise has been working on this for nine years. <laughs> yeah. And that's, we have a lot of fun in, in uh, crafts group. So now I'm going to just show you some of our work. This is one piece that um, one of the ladies did as crochet, and it's the first time she ever did it. Oh. And wow. it really doesn't matter if you're good at it or not. We don't really care. It's just about coming and being part of it. We have a very accomplished knitter. Sometimes she works with six needles at once. Wow. And she did this. This was created on a circular loom, which was neat to watch. We have a lady who does origami. And she showed us in one of the um, art sh uh, craft shows how to do it. And this is also her mobile. And this is uh, Lachuk. Mm -hmm. And this is especially special to the lady who made it because she lost her cats when she had to move. Oh. And she loves cats, so she got to make one. <clears throat> so I love this program, and I love the uh, craft program. And, uh, oh, I forgot that. Thank you. Fantastic. And this is an embroidery piece that someone did. And I believe that is it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all. Me. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So I, 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 I just want to say our creative art program has been around for about three years. And we meet uh, two hours a week. Um, and I like to say, we sit around a table. Have you ever sit, uh, seen movies or had a family member who would sit around the table and knit and talk together? Well, that's what we do there. It's an open discussion. Everyone talks about whatever they want to. It's not, it does not have a subject. And it's really nice. And, it's, and like uh, Jean said, it's nice to meet people in another way. Yeah. And thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you all so much. I appreciate it. I'm sorry, actually, we, we probably have to keep going here, so let's just wrap up with a, a minute, and then okay. we need to move on. I'm, Thank you. I'm going to turn it over to our uh, clinical manager, James Bond. Thank you. James. <laughs> There's my joke. So, uh, good afternoon. I'm sorry. I know we're taking up a lot of time, but, you know, I think it's valuable time, uh, especially to express and to communicate and to show you and demonstrate the work that we do, not just what we do as clinicians, but the clients. Uh, these are amazing group of folks. We have two folks here, but yes, we have a whole community of other, other, other people. You know, uh, Alameda County Public Health Department put out a report, uh, research report. I'll try to make this quick, I know. Uh, I guess this was 2008 or two, two, uh, 2008 or so. And they talked about what mattered when it came to producing positive health outcomes. 
So they, well, they identified these two main factors. There were people who lived in communities of opportunities versus disinvested communities. So what you hear, see here and what you just heard here is at Highland, we have a community of opportunity. Okay, and we have some amazing therapists that do amazing things to create that opportunity because that's what folks need in order for recovery to, to happen. Uh, Jean gave me some tips the other day because I haven't been a Toastmaster, so <laughs> there's things that I can learn from everyone else. But anyway, but, um, so anyway, I just wanted to emphasize that, and that's something that we try to create a community of opportunity, but also it's, it's, it's a community of opportunity, not just with rules, services, coffee, lunch, hot lunch, and so forth, which are very important to our, to our community and so forth, but we, we try to cre create that atmosphere so when you walk in, you feel, it feels like, I don't want to say home, but it feel it has a homey, a homey sense, a homey sense of feeling. I don't want to, I don't want to put anything on it, but that's how I feel. Even though as a, as a staff person, and as I was walking down the hallway with Susanna yesterday, was that yesterday? Yeah, that was yesterday. And I was showing you the library that one of our uh, clients created. This was not part of any tops program or anything. But this came through her own inspiration. She, she's a former registered nurse and so forth. But that was something that she gave to the community. It was something we didn't ask for. It was something that she felt inspired to do because of that atmosphere that we provide in that program. And you know, as Highland, we ha we're, we're stigmatized because of where we are. And that's something that I know that we're fighting against in terms of that stigmatization. But if people only give us a try, they will see that there's so much, there's so much happening there, and there's so much for, you know, different people who learn differently, who connect differently, engage differently, and so forth. So I just want to thank you all, and I know I took too much time, but I really, this is very important and it and very valuable time. Thank you. Uh, I think we have. I'll let you know that there's a newsletter on there, too, from Fairmont, with a newsletter committee that the clients put the newsletter together. Yeah. It's on board of it. It's on board of it. Thank you. Michael, I think we have a question here. I have a couple, actually. Yeah, I'm curious about, uh, at Highland and Fairmont, how many um, uh, 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 community members you have that, that come on a daily basis. That was my question as well. At, at Highland, we have a total of 120 patients in our program, uh, roughly about 35 to 37 patients come per day. Uh, Fairmont? Uh, around 15 per day, between 15 uh, and 55. Wow. My, my follow-up follow question, because um, I think there's extraordinary value in what you do. I really, really see it. And, uh, you mentioned communities of opportunity and communities of disinvestment. I'm curious what it would look like for this program to exist in the communities of disinvestment. I'm thinking about neighborhoods that have people who would really, really need and, and benefit from this but aren't going to come into a hospital setting. Uh, I'm thinking I know I work in, in East Oakland and West Oakland in neighborhoods that are in, you know, that I imagine a lot of your clientele come from. And yes. Is there a plan? to decentralize or to expand out into the neighborhoods? You know, so, um, there's, there's, uh, there's restrictions around how, the per where, how and where the program is offered for this particular program. 
uh, it's a Medicare and commercial benefit. The, for folks that are that have Medicaid, that's where the county coordinates those services and their day treatment and contract programs. And, they, and I, I know there's 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 lots of plans to expand those services out into the community. What's a restriction? I don't understand. What? No, this is a hospital. This, this is a hospital-based program. I see. Yes. And, and under Medicare rules, we have to provide it within 10 miles of a hospital, and it has to have certain staffing. And it still does within 10 miles. Yeah. Yeah. the county does a community-based type program. Yeah. So I just would love to see that explored. I mean, I think about, we have FQHCs in community. We have Roots and, and we have La Clinica and, and West Oakland Health Center. And, and if it has to be closer to an FQHC or, or if it just has to be within 10 miles of Highland, I think all of Oakland is. That's correct. And, yeah. Uh, okay, so I think you're addressing in terms of the access, which is extremely important. And as you heard Sanders talk about and share, you know, his work history and so forth. When people find themselves on disability, they are trying to live with maybe about $890 a month. So when you look at that, that's even below the poverty line, which, you know, uh, Alameda County defines that as what, about 11,000, uh, that's very low poverty. So thank goodness for the program, but I think access is important, but people are trying to survive basically. And so having, a satellite or what have you, whether it's a drop-in center or something that can be created, whether it's a psychiatrist there, because you have folks that are more um, acute and may not come to a hospital because of the way it looks, institution and so forth. So something in the community that, that looks a little bit differently where they can... Sorry, I'd share... I don't know which one of us did that, but that hurt. Yikes. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so actually I, I had a similar thought. So when I, when I visited this area, uh, when I visited the program at, at Highland, um, it is currently in, our, in the um, old wing of the hospital. And uh, part of our plan over the, over the uh, coming year or so uh, is to move all of the clinical programs out of that space. It's, uh, it's not the best space uh, for the clinical programs, and it's a bit tough to navigate uh, to get to. And so, uh, so we, we're, but in the meantime, we're working to make it a, 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 a better space for, for the patients and the, and the staff who work there. Uh, but I think over time, we, need to, we, we are looking at that dental program and other things to move out of uh, uh, move out of that building um, so so to the extent that we can find you know, a convenient uh, location in the community the other thing I was going to say is what I learned about this great program is we transport patients from all over the yes, county to Highland for this program so they you guys educated me well uh, um, and and it's fantastic uh, that we can do that but also placing this in the community there are a lot of programs that are on the campus that obviously is not just uh, constrained from from the uh, perspective of access to the community, but the campus is pretty impacted. And so, so uh, where we have opportunity to move things to the community, we're, we're, gonna, we're looking at that. Uh, and this is one of those examples, so I think it's a great question. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, East Mountain Mall might have space where we already have a wellness center. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, we are looking at East Mountain Mall for a couple of things uh, right now. Uh, if Luis were here, he could he could tell you about it. And so there's, there's, uh, there are a lot of programs that are already there uh, for us, as well as other parts of uh, as social services uh, where that, that help it to make sense but uh, it has actually not a lot of available space right now but we're exploring that and other uh, opportunities and uh, as well so
Okay. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Sure. Well, thank you all for coming out on a rainy day. Particular thanks to Jane and Sanders. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Very appreciate it. So obviously at our at our breaks, I invite you to, to take a look at the artwork. We'll stay here for the, oh. for the day so you can have it. Have it. My last it. question is, is the art at the shows, is it ever for sale? You know, I actually thought I about that too, like but it's, maybe it's there. Maybe. So. If someone is interested in buying something of mine, I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a way that we market oh, the program yeah. within yeah. the hospital is to display it. We would have to make sure it's secure because I would definitely pay we talked yes. about that we talked about that and that is definitely something that we're going to do as well but we um, uh, in the in the interest of time, we, we we actually wanted to show it to the board today, but we're planning on showcasing some of this amazing work that they do. Thank you, Michael. Thank, thank, you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. It's nice meeting you. Worth the time spent. Absolutely. 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 Well, and certainly too, and, and we're going to uh, turn it over to Guy and Dr. Tribble to talk about uh, uh, John PES and the uh, work partnership with the county on census management. Uh, but we obviously, uh, because of a number of reasons, have uh, given a lot of focus to um, uh, what's happening at John George, and, and John George is an important part of our um, behavioral health services, but it is not all of what we do and what we do in partnership with the county. So I thought it was fantastic and a great uh, way to put this in context to share it with, with you all. And so uh, with that, uh, I'd like to turn it over to Guy and Dr. Tribble to give you an update on our census management work. Uh, for Thank John you. Uh, this, this presentation is it's truly a living document. It's just it's like version number 24. Right, <laughs> so I'd like, to, I'd like to introduce Dr. Karen Tribble. She's the Deputy Director of Behavioral Health Care Services for the county. And she and I have worked very closely in uh, making sure that we're communicating the issues, the concerns, and some of the solutions related to the crisis management uh, programs in the county, especially as it touches the folks that uh, come to us through uh, psychiatric emergency services. So with that, I'm going to move on to this. And uh, Dr. Tribble, I'll turn it over to you at this point. Good morning, all. I appreciate the invitation to participate. Uh, goodness knows we've been a partner in our board as well, so we think this is very important information for you to have, so I was very happy to join. Um, the first slide is just an overview of how, as we began to talk and partner about addressing this, that we saw it as a systemic issue. Um, and in short, in the most recent update, we really circled on the things that we could look at addressing in the, in the short and the long term were around these domains, staffing, community resources, there's a telepsychiatry pilot that the county has um, sponsored and supported in that way, existing resources, and the long-term discussion of expanding, expanding services or uh, the footprint at John George. So this is just an overall uh, uh, representation of what we thought they fell into. Um, in terms of what has been happening over the last a year and several months, there's been a lot of activity um, at administrative program level, and we've been really doing a lot of work. Concretely, what we anticipated would take six to 18 months. Um, in the green area, you see those are either completed or well underway. 
um, the additional triage doctors at PES, which I'm sure Guy has talked about and probably will provide a little bit more information, has significantly impacted the flow in a positive direction, um, the stable staffing as well. And the St. Rose pilot, for those who were not necessarily familiar, was that what we did was a telepsychiatry pilot. It wasn't something that we paid for, but as, as folks may or may not know, the county has to approve the initiation of 5150s or the discontinuation of 5150s across. The, quote, mental health director is the designator of that uh, ability in the county. And so, 5150 is an involuntary hold for purposes of an evalu emergency evaluation of a psychiatric patient. Right. Okay. And so as we looked, uh, what we surmised or what we anticipated is that perhaps individuals who end up at our EDs may be there for um, a, a, an acute issue, but then that might subside, i.e. intoxication. We're finding that a lot of those individuals, or what we, the, the data was telling us, ended up going to John George and were, had been under the influence but could have been released earlier. So initially there was a lot of interest in our, from our EDs to expand that ability to discontinue and initiate across EDs. Because of the, the um, uh, bells and whistles that went off on our head, the unknown impact to John George, we didn't want to do that initially until we really looked at what would it look like, how would it impact if doctors could do that. Would the flow really uh, be in the positive direction or would we um, flood the system in other directions. So because of that, what we did was just start with this uh, telepsychiatry pilot. At St. Rose, they had their own resource. So they, again, it's not funded by the county, but they have a contract door that provides actually remote psychiatry. And so when a patient comes in at that pilot, um, they are evaluated if the team, the, the medical team, determines that maybe this person really sh does not necessarily meet 5150 criteria, the telepsychiatry pilot or those individuals come in and look at the client and, or, or the patient and determine whether it can be discontinued. So we have granted that ability, and what we've seen already at St. Rose's ED is a 10% reduction and individuals being transported to PES. So that has, it seems to be working um, in the extent we thought would already. Yes. They don't actually come in, they call in, correct? That's why it's telepsychiatry? Come in, yes. It, yeah. they, they actually get to be viewed on, on, through Skype. the yeah. Skype, yes. Yeah. That's right. I don't do that yet, so I didn't know the word, but yes. Um, so they are viewable on, a, on a, some kind of a portable device. It's transported to St. Rose, and then when, when they, are, they are diagnosed with a fit or they are given a 5150, they're kept at St. Rose, and um, there's a physician, a psychiatrist on Skype that... Patient. Exactly. And most of those transports, not all, but most have come through law enforcement. We'll bring them to the ED. Um, at St. Rose. At St. Rose. Do, is this true for every patient that comes to St. Rose and that has a 5150? Or is it, is it, is it discretionary at St. Rose? As to which ones do are available? All get tele, do all patients with a 5150 get not necessarily. What they're looking at is those patients, they, they, they have a concern that that person may not actually meet 5150 criteria because as it stands at this point, that any individual would go straight to PES, which adds okay. to that census. And so that, they, if there is even a doubt or concern or a question, that's when the telepsychiatrists provide that So they're not going to the emergency room at St. Rose? They still, they do. Still they do. They still go there, but what happens is that duration, that time is immediately cut short because they don't transport directly there. They just do whatever disposition planning their case managers do and find other resources. And the use of wellness centers and other, yes. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. You said that a number of patients 
um, <clears throat> aren't in a psychiatric emergency but actually are intoxicated or under the influence and that do you even know what that number because you said you've had 10% decline with telepsychiatry what percentage I'm really curious about the substance abuse component and 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 how much that's impacting you know John George or the, or the whole system I think I'll, I'll defer to um, Guy on the exact figures but what on the county side what our system is showing is that there is is uh, we do have our sobering center, um, and again, I'll talk a little bit. We have our drug medical waiver, which will expand the ability to provide treatment throughout our system. But we're finding that a little, lot of individuals want the support they need and have and are available through PES. Um, it, it upwards. I don't know if you want to talk about we the percentages. Have, it's a very soft number because what happens is someone can come in intoxicated and they, they're threatening suicide. It, that can be a long history of mental illness and that alcohol or drugs have exacerbated that. Or it could be that that's exactly, that, that's the main issue in this, and the suicidal ideation is, a, uh, is just an offshoot of that, was not a real serious attempt uh, or, or uh, serious ideation. So to say that we can call out those that only have a substance abuse issue mm. from a psych issue is a real, it's, it's a real clinical challenge to do that. Thank you. Are you keeping any kind of, on that very topic, are you keeping any kind of statistics or data and I, and I recognize, you know, what you mm -hmm. said, that it's pretty hard to see. But it, until we keep that kind of data, we don't know what kind of programs we need that might augment. So if you have a high percentage, for example, where alcohol, substance abuse is the issue mm -hmm. as opposed to, then looking at programs in the county that direct, direct for substance abuse mm -hmm. becomes much more, uh, much more uh, important for us. Uh, so I'm trying to think, what kind of so the, data do we keep? Yeah, the answer to, to your question is yes, we, do, we are keeping that data. It's not, uh, and how it looks is really intriguing. Uh, as in our work with the Alliance and Population Health, we've identified about roughly 200 folks, uh, give or take 10%, that we think are coming, are, are high utilizers of PES <clears throat> that might have a secondary or primary issue that's not strictly psychiatric. And so our clinical team has come together, and they have a, they have a, an agreement as to yes, these are these are probably the key drivers to them seeking services at PES when it shouldn't be PES, and we need to and we're building for each client an early intervention plan or an EIP. Take it back to some education mm -hmm. studies, a different type <laughs> of an EIP, an early intervention plan so that when that patient shows up, instead of going through the entire crisis evaluation, we're getting them, we're fast tracking them to a sobering center or we're fast-tracking them to crisis residential services, or we're getting them into a shelter bed rather than into, into PES crisis. So we're doing that actively. Rather than doing it from a, from a statistical standpoint, it's a case-by-case, -case identified, high-utilizer approach right now. What about 200 folks? About 200. And are these often um, have to do with drugs or alcohol, where that's the Not necessarily. treatment it's, of that it, would reduce no. the... It most frequently, it's uh, it's homelessness. Uh, it's seeking uh, seeking shelter or food, or uh, the individuals are out of money, or it's a co-occurring disorder. It really is. It's a low-grade mental illness plus a substance abuse issue that, uh, that again gets all exacerbated. It's this is not a population which will clean to categorize the individuals. And, yeah. What stemmed my question was, you know, when I went to the 
the county health committee, and you, you made that presentation. And, mm -hmm. and I, what I saw is the, the county, and, and this may be rude to say, but the county moving the responsibility to us, to, the, to AHS, to solve all the county behavioral health issues. And I didn't see that there was a coordinated effort to say, okay, let's figure out what kind of services we need so we're not impacting um, John's George, and we didn't have that kind of fallout with people saying that's you know there are too many people and it's too dangerous, and and now the only the only solution that we've been talking about is keeping them in our emergency rooms, and that has a, some significant fallout. So I'm trying to understand how we get a handle on some of the data that could in fact impact the kind of programs that we could push to say this is needed in this area, this is needed in, in that area. I, I just find it very frustrating. I'd like to add a little bit, I think. Please, yeah, this is very, yes. And, and I appreciate your assumption. I don't think it's rude at all. I think what we actually did in our early stages of planning, it's been about eight months now, so we actually did create on the county side programs that are upstream programs and programs that are t typically designed um, at the point of either Preventing the crisis are we've developed four IHOT teams and um, in-home outreach teams, which actually is targeting the high utilizers that often end up in John George or our EDs. And we created four different ones across the county, and we've seen immediate access, immediate utilization of those services. And what they do is they link, they support, we wrap around. It's not treatment, but it's pre-treatment, pre-engagement. And what we also found, based on the data that they gave us, is after the folks at PES, so if there's a disposition and evaluation, even if they don't need to go into the inpatient unit, those individuals leave and they recycle back. So what we instituted was uh, we had created a uh, innovations pilot some years ago, but we permanized it. If I, I just made that up, but it's Friday, I can do that. And what it was was that we linked consumers with those individuals, peer navigators or essentially uh, peer mentors and discharges, I believe is uh, what the contract will be, to actually wrap around those individuals at the time of discharge from John George, follow them through the community, continue to warm handoff. And again, what we found even in the uh, piloting innovation stage of that program some years ago is it worked. And those individuals didn't come back. Mm -hmm. And we have now permanently instituted that based on the planning and the data that we've gotten, as well as um, there was Joe another Rose program. Uh, Joe Rose, exactly. Yeah. So he came to us many times. And exactly. Yeah. So and now we've got we a have, but, and it's, yeah, it's working. But the same, on the same, uh, you know, I found it very disconcerting that, that we talked about a cap and that the supervisors were, in fact, considering a cap. And then move the solution to Del Vecchio to, to solve. And I felt that that was really an unfair process. And, and so consequently, those were the only two solutions that either we cap it or we go with the presentation that you had had about. And with all due respect, I saw the county sitting there and letting Del Vecchio take the, take the flag. And so I'm here is to say, our CEO, that does not, in my view, see, just because we have George, does not seem to me to be the responsibility to solve all the behavioral health issues in the county. And so, I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. I agree. No, I, agree. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, 
so, so a, a, a slightly uh, different slant on it, but but certainly understand the, the the context. And as I said, I appreciate it. Um, I think what is driving that that um, sense is the fact that uh, the the census challenges at John George have become the lightning bolt for a lot of this discussion. Um, mm-hmm. But point in fact, and I hope what you'll hear, and it doesn't, I think, come up. Uh, well, um, or, or become a point of focus in these discussions is there is, in fact, an incredible amount of collaboration happening between uh, behavioral health care services and uh, AHS in the form of um, primarily the leadership at John George to look at a series of community-based and acute and uh, uh, post-acute solutions for this problem, uh, for this challenge. It's just the, the, the part of the continuum that is so hot button now is John George. And, and so... Um, uh, what you saw happening as a part of the last discussion at the board of, uh, or the health committee was this effort on my part to say that, you know, the, the universe for which I can actually have some influence uh, really is, you know, on the acute side with John George and, uh, and uh, uh, the PES. And so the conversation around the census management part of this, which is just one part of this, it's the sort of the hallmark of it, but it's only one part of this, is what I think we are ready to, we believe we have done and a, a yeoman's amount of, of stakeholder engagement on every side of this issue to come up with a plan uh, that we'd like to test out in addition to all the other things we've done both within HS with your support and outside with uh, the county's partnership to address this issue. And my point for all of this is the longer we focus on this and continue to sort of spiral and talk around this, we don't get to the other parts That's because right. it's too much uh, bandwidth that gets consumed just talking about uh, the PES of John George. Again, doesn't make it not important. We believe we have a solution. Uh, uh, it is not a cap because we don't think a cap is patient-centric and, and that it is flexible enough to, to allow for what happens in you know, the, the, the 24 hours of a day uh, uh, in our delivery system. So, so uh, we, we have now, at the board's um, uh, behest, uh, um, gone through another round of stakeholder engagement. Uh, the rest of this presentation sort of gets to that. But the ultimate goal of this is that the next time we go to the health committee, we say, this is the plan. We're going to implement this plan, and we're going to see how it goes. Just like we've implemented other things and we've had some success, we're going to see how it goes. And now we want to focus on uh, the, the midterm to long-term parts of this that we believe we really do need to continue to put emphasis and resources on to actually permanently address what is a larger uh, opportunity for the county. So the presentation, I'm sorry, the presentation then is about the plan. So that's where we're going with this. Yes. So this is the context around it. So this, they always, because we don't want it to just be about census management, we do recognize that anything that happens in PES does, in fact, impact the entire delivery system. But we don't want people to think that that's the only thing that's happening. As Dr. Tribble said, all these things in green, some in inside of AHS, some outside, are already in place, are well underway. And then a lot of the other things we're trying to focus on, but we just can't get past this PES part. And in fairness to the health committee, some of that is driven not just by you know, external pressures, but it's also our own staff who, are, who uh, are, are driving this as well. And we're just trying to contain this and move it forward so we can do these other things. And that's what the rest of this talk will kind of get us. To end, to end that, the only piece I was going to mention, I think, is the creation of our crisis services division. So we just created that about two months ago. We brought in a division director. The, formerly, the, the uh, county had not had a system-wide approach to crisis. It was just pockets of 
um, uh, age-specific services or school base or, or things like that. So we've now created a division. They've hired and are hiring critical care managers, another layer of management, as well as now coordinating. And so we've already begun to resource and redesign. We also currently have a crisis response program, which is the yellow box. Um, uh, some of that, we have, we, we have CRP, we have mobile crisis resources, but we're going to re-resource them and route them differently. Some are, uh, we're looking at uh, working with our EDs, those that might be interested in partnering because we've not done that in the past, as well as HOPE Intervention Team, which is a direct case management linkage both to um, John George, but what we're hoping is also to Highland and others. So those things are already under, under the works. We've hired those individuals and are moving forward. And again, the, the other ones are our SB82 grants that were up and running last year. We opened our John J. Mahler, the CSU. We uh, have two more in route, and we have a peer respite because we also found that those individuals ending up in uh, John George, if if they could participate in the in the treatment more and, and really be more sort less of a treatment model and more of a treatment based peer model, if one can say that, we found that that was very important, and we've gotten that feedback. So that'll be that is well underway as well. And the longer term plan, which we've not made, um, that's more of a broader discussion, is the capital expansion in terms of what that needs to look like, what we can look like, uh, look at in terms of John George itself. And that's what these slides basically do, is they, they expand out the, uh, the discussions on each of the points previously. So is, for the sake of time, shall I move through these? Um, yes, so those are just the ones, and I think you might have them, so you Great. can look mm -hmm. through them. Um, the extension of the HOPE program, as I mentioned, right now it provides services through TAY. We're right now talking with BACS, which is the provider. We're finding that a larger number of individuals are adult and older adult as well. So we're expanding that contract. And what they do is provide case management and transition. And again, we've seen about a, a 60 to 70% reduction in folks returning to John George in the last year that we piloted that out. So we're expanding that as well. So to bring you up to speed on what uh, what does the volume look like at John George, uh, again, that's a, that's, a, that's a shift by shift analysis. And uh, for the month of October, we're averaging about 44 patients a day. That includes total registered visits coming through, plus those folks staying over 24 hours. Uh, we, we seem to have no matter what the census is, uh, I looked at this just yesterday, it always seems to be about 15 to 20 percent of our patients are staying over 24 hours, no matter what the number is. Huh. And, that, and, we, and we've tied that. We think that's due to the inpatient beds, the need for inpatient beds and the, and the capacity, and the fact that we're always full at John George, and we can only discharge so fast. Um, so we're averaging about 44. Our length of stay popped up in September. We were experiencing about 19 hours in the two months prior, and in October, month to date, we're back at about 19 hours. This was a skewing as a result of Labor Day weekend. Oh, right. So we had a real challenge at Labor Day weekend where we were popped up to 76 patients in John George at one, at one time. And again, uh, kudos to the staff who managed that extremely well during, during a very challenging weekend. Part, so again, the average number, sorry? Sorry, just going to point out, uh, when, when Guy gets to the elements of the census management plan, uh, just full disclosure, uh, we tested it th that weekend because we were so impacted, we effectively had to uh, do some of the things that he'll, he'll point out, and that's, that's the kudos to the staff that we were actually able to address it in a really timely fashion once we did test it out. So. You bet. You bet. So you can see the number of patients actually arriving daily, either via ambulance or walk-in, has dropped dramatically. Six months ago, that number was 45 patients a day. Now we're down to 35. Uh, 
There is no, I, I don't have any solid statistics or uh, as to why that's occurring. However, I always listen to rumors on the street, and, and rumors on the street are with our triage doctors, that if you come into John George, or the phrase is three hots in a cot, uh, you probably will not be evaluated for crisis service. You don't need crisis services. So our, our triage physicians are actually doing a pretty good job of, of separating out the folks that only need housing, food, clothing, and shelter, and aren't greatly disabled. Hmm. So it seems, so, uh, that's you, anecdotal, uh, but that's, that's, the, that's the word on the street. Can you explain that again? I, I didn't really understand. Sometimes. So people aren't coming in, people aren't getting, getting transported from throughout the community or, or walking in because they, they are beginning to understand, especially the people who tend to use the services more often are beginning to understand that they're not going to get um, given a room, they're not going to be... That if, they're, if, that if they're not clinically necessary, that it's not just a default that you will you will be in the yes. But the uh, triage is that there's there's physicians at the ambulance waiting to triage. So where they would go through the whole process, then you realize oh they need really, housing. But now like at the exactly. point of entry is where they are being redirected out if they need that. So that's right. so right. is that taking place? Are we yes. actually have we in, increased our on-site referral, community service referral? Or is this community service referral well, happening somewhere else? Where I think that's where the linkage has been, the partnership with the county. Right. So from PES, at that point, they've connected to us, and our teams have been outreaching right. and diverting them elsewhere. And it may not necessarily be an increase. It's just happening a lot sooner. So, so what was happening is you'd have patients who were admitted into PES, uh, and the time that it took for them to get that initial assessment in some cases was several hours later. So effectively, they were in PES being you know, uh, uh, fed and waiting being monitored and waiting to be a full evaluation to determine if they actually needed to be there longer. So now if that's happening, and, and some people saw that as a benefit, to be perfectly honest. And so what Guy's saying is anecdotally, um, we know that actually we are having some patients who come into triage and, and are being determined at that point to not actually be adequate or appropriate uh, for um, uh, uh, PES and not in a psychiatric emergency. So PES was actually being seen by some as a kind of a respite? Yep. A, that was a three hots in a cot kind of yes. thing. Yes. You could come in. Or if, and if you're waiting off. nine hours to see a psychiatrist, right. at least two hots. And, and yeah. so how long does it take to, to make that determination that you're not a PES? That you're not in a acute psychiatric yeah, yeah. Right. It's happening at triage. It depends on clinical presentation, but the physician sees the patient as they're coming through the ambulance bay doors or through the or through the lobby doors. So within 30 minutes. At so they're turned away at the lobby door, or yes. they, they, some folks can be turned away at after they're coming into the physical <laughs> space uh, where the ambulances are. So if they're in the lobby, they're not assessed in the lobby. That's a public space. Right. We bring the patient back where the ambulances also are. The assessment occurs right there at, at that desk. Okay. And so you're avoiding then that that the overcrowding with the cots, etc. Yes. Okay. And that's in large part because we now have psychiatrists there yeah. at the time to do it, whereas we had a shortage right. due to those exactly. those guys that yeah. do not want to yeah. come to work. That's right. There's intolerance. You have to you have to have to triage and assess. Correct. So that, and that was happening at the door. It's just a graphic. This is just a graphic representation of the length of stay. Again, that pop-up in September is a result of Labor Day. When I backed that weekend out, Labor Day, it was down to a little over 19 hours. So it seems like we're, we're covering it about 19 hours. 
This is a graphic representation of the number of patients who come through the doors every day is the dark bar. And the, the tall bar is those same folks plus those that are there for over 24 hours every day. And you can see, overall, since June when we enacted the triage physicians and we started putting these other throughput plans in place, you can see the overall volume in PES is going down. I have a question for you. When we are uh, suggesting that there's no clinical presentation of an emergency, are we tracking somewhere through case management that, that they actually do go to those referral sites, that they make it to the place where they're supposed to go? Yeah, actually, yes. That's okay. exactly what the um, mentors are discharged, the post-crisis. Those programs we, we created and are funding now uh -huh. will do. Okay. And we Because, again, we found that in our conversations over the last few months that was critical, that not only give them a piece of paper or call them over, right. but right. hound them basically till they get there. And my follow-up is going to be this. Do, do we know, for example, we know we have frequent flyers into an ED. That's common. So I'm sure you have frequent flyers as well. Are we looking at how many of those are actually, again, non-clinical? Yes. Okay. So Absolutely. Do you have a sense of what that number is? Because when you see these kinds of fluctuations, my concern is, um, uh, is it the same individuals coming back and forth and not connecting with community resources? Or are, are there other things going on that spike these sorts of you know, entries into the system? Both are occurring. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the population I, I referred to earlier, that, that 200 or so folks that are, mm -hmm. that are constantly, constantly using PES. Mm -hmm. Some are using PES as a psychiatric primary care, yeah. like our ED at Highland, mm -hmm. uh, and are not connecting well. Others are using it of those folks are using it because they need other services that they're not connecting within the community, not through any, in most cases, not through any lack of resources for many of those folks because it just, you know, this is, these are voluntary at that point. You know, it, it's interesting because I'm wondering how much of it is historical public relations in the sense that the county sees that this is county in, uh, uh, residents, you know. Mm -hmm. Community, thank you. Sees um, sees this as the place that you go if you have a, you have some behavioral issues or you're in crisis, as opposed to the problem perhaps being solved by a, a huge initiation of public relations and advertising of all the other places that are available for people to go. So it may be that's the issue. You know, it's. But um, I, I think, go ahead, please. Well, I just have a question. If this is really true, that the people that are being redirected are people who actually don't need a, a <coughs> psychiatric, then this shouldn't be affecting our inpatient census. Is that true? That's correct. Okay. But it does take up your time. I'm sorry? It does take up your time to assess each of yes. these individuals. Uh, I mean, repeatedly over, yeah, over and over and over, and over again. Does. And that, and that can be a morale issue for the team as well. Yeah. Sure. And someone once said, we're probably victims of our own success in PES. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to say that, you know, while you're doing this, and this has been a lightning rod, the PES system, but because, you know, just to 
connect the dots between population health and our behavioral health thing is that often we frame mental health as episodic crisis. So even for the county, when you're at health meetings, to reframe the whole aspect of mental health as part of, you know, that continuum that we do as the things that you, BHCS, is doing in the community, all of that. I mean, when we look at chronic disease, we are seeing more and more of screening for ACEs for so many other things, you know, for prenatal, postpartum, all of these things that you need to do that. And if we don't have, if we have those things happening at the primary, at the ambulatory, at the primary health levels, we won't be seeing what we are seeing right now. So kind of just stealth-wise, having the powers that be, the leverage, the change makers understand that this is just so much more than episodic acuity, like, you know, crisis-based work when we think of mental health. It has to be at the base of the pyramid. I think, uh, uh, Trustee Banerjee, this is exactly the point that Dr. Treble was bringing up. I had a discussion also this week with Dr. Clannon that uh, you know, we need upstream programs outside the hospital targeting homelessness Mm -hmm. and uh, substance uh, or abuse or dependency. And this is where, you know, they are, you know, they are getting grants to to target these, these, you know, uh, population, you know, upstream before they, you know, have to come. So with the, with the uh, just to remind the board, that with the Medi-Cal waiver, um, uh, this is just one area, but certainly a, a couple of the other uh, state funding sources and programs that uh, Dr. Treble mentioned are, are coming to bear for just this thing. But with the waiver, uh, there are two key components. One is the prime program. And in the prime program, there is a, uh, there's a uh, uh, one of the projects is integration of physical medicine and behavioral health. And so we're talking about actually having greater screening and uh, early intervention in the, uh, in the uh, physical medi- medical setting. So if you're going to a primary care appointment, mm-hmm. you can have a, uh, an assessment of what are your uh, behavioral or substance abuse uh, uh, needs or have them identified and, and then uh, have them uh, supported in that setting so it doesn't become a sort of separated uh, thing to the extent that it's, it's a lower moderate uh, um, type of intervention that's necessary. The other part of the waiver that uh, comes to bear here is whole person care, yeah. and that's the part that's county um, uh, um, county driven, and we are a partner in it. And uh, we just learned on Monday, um, the state is now notifying all the different uh, county applicants or uh, applicants counties around the state uh, that that uh, applied for the program, whether they got it, and now the county did get they're fully funded. Yes. Yeah. So we just found out on Monday. Very excited about that. I was. I was. Yeah. But no. Yeah. That and, is. and one of the big parts of that uh, program is that it's not just about uh, clinical care delivery, even. It's about the whole social network, and uh, a major part of it is supportive housing. And uh, uh, there's it, it is for a defined population, so it's a very uh, narrowly defined population. But it's it's a lot of who we're talking about. So people who have both chronic clinical conditions, but also uh, uh, behavioral health or mental health challenges and so supportive housing being a big part of the grant program that we're going to get for that to expand services in the community beyond discipline. I'm sorry, is that um, is that the same pot of money that the, 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 the $2 billion the governor set aside for supportive housing for mental health? No. Or is that separate? No, that's, that's separate. Do we know yet what portion of that $361 million, uh, this year 
Alameda County is getting? Um, yes, in the sense of what we, we can project. I wouldn't, I'm not going to quote that. Our, our physical team is ca calculating that. But what it, it, there's twofold. What that means is um, our MHSA, for example, our MHSA is, is what is being tapped in some of the resources. So, for example, for MHSA that, that, that now the legislation has passed, we used to, all the counties used to get a pot of money and we could, we could provide that for housing. So that's where the carve-out is coming. So on a financial level, to some degree, the county will, will um, I don't want to say lose, but the impact is a, a net loss initially. What it will allow the county to do is reapply for housing supports um, in a different route. So for the larger counties like ourselves, L.A. County, those with um, homeless populations, we may be able to draw down more because the calculation before was just based on the whole bucket of MHSA. The calculation for the housing will be based on um, the number of residents and markers in terms of homelessness. So we mm -hmm. will win in the end. Um, so um, I think that our fiscal team is calculating what that will look like. Um, so we're doing some pre-planning already, looking at our, our reserves. And, and does that money kick in in January? The money kicks in. Um, everything for MHSA is, is two years backwards, so, I mean two years in the rear. So for now, we're operating on money that was two years ago. So we have a few years for us to really feel that. For the larger governors, um, grant, yes, that's January. Okay, but we don't, so we don't, you, don't, you can't give me a number yet. No, no. And just for people who don't know, that's the, the $2 billion that the governor took of bond money and set aside <coughs> for supportive housing services for the mentally ill. And it calculates to $361 million this fiscal year statewide uh, that, that I'm talking about. And that, that, that will be huge, along with the potential for the housing bond for the county in terms of getting people housed so that they're not using our, our services for, for respite care. Yes. You know, I, I, I'm sorry. It, probably as a public school educator, this this is the, the heart-wrenching thing for me, is to see the amount of money and resources that go, what I see, at the back end of the human being and not at the front end. Yep. And and I can tell you, and, and I believe this to my core, um, as a high school principal, we used to be able to give the high school graduates their the series of their pictures starting from kindergarten all the way till they were seniors. And you can look at those pictures and you can pass them around and everybody can point to the, to the very year in which we lost a kid. And you track that child and they were, they were disciplined in school, they were dropouts, they were in, and we still as a community in this county put our resources at, for the adults. Homeless, we, we tackle, we don't look at families first. Children who are homeless, that isn't the first priority. I mean, I just find this, I'm sorry, I'm going on here. Uh, and so we really need to shift this. And when we talk about population health, in my view, population health needs to start. And if we can't go down to kindergarten or preschool, certainly by middle school, those behaviors are prevalent in children is prevalent. Health, mental health, physical health, it's just astronomical and we continue, we continue to put the dollars behind, uh, behind the human being and not in front of them. But we're trying, I think, to change that because in the past there just has not been the incentive to prevent illnesses. We're a fee-for-service world and we're trying to go there. The problem is that it's very difficult to get reimbursed for what, in essence, are upstream interventions. 
we're trying to figure that out in Alameda County with asthma, and it has not been easy. So I hear that, but we as a board are up against a huge systemic issue of how payment is made in health because the advocates for themselves are adults. They're adult advocates. So we have very few children who can advocate advocate for themselves. And so that's part of the issue. So even in this room, the conversation will consistently be about the adults and not about kids. And well, and I understand that's our responsibility. I just had to voice this because yeah. Because that's my <laughs> and I, I think so, that's yeah, my training yeah, that's and, so I, that's, yeah, and I had a soapbox. <laughs> what you said and what you said and what you said about all the prime and other things is that you 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 we all know that because you're in the field. But sometimes the folks who have the purse strings or the money or make the <coughs> policy don't always see that. So even because we are getting airtime for. John George, have these stealth messages go in that unless there's the other part of it, you will keep seeing the, the right. kind of prices that you see over here, that yes. they have yeah. to tie right. that, that if this can improve, your PES can improve, if the referrals, the prevention, the other things are happening at the better level. That's, you want to see that. That's it is, exactly it. It That's is always a, a, a tug, I would say, and, and uh, I think we should... Uh, uh, encourage and push more in the direction of as, as far upstream as possible um, um, to address the, the future. future. The challenge is always the present, right? Uh, and, and so for us, and this will come up you know, down the road, you know, we have put into our plan, uh, and it was, uh, Dr. Turbo mentioned in a prior slide, what are we going to do about the demand right now, and, and is, there a, uh, is there a pressing need to invest in the expansion of inpatient beds in the county as well as uh, PES beds. I think an objective uh, onlooker could say the answer to that is in some cases, yes, it is. But when you make that decision, the understanding is that now you're in some ways back in, right? Yeah. You're now saying millions of dollars are going to go into constructing new capacity that are not going into avoiding future demand. So. Uh, that's that's one of the things that we're going to have. Once we can get past the census management piece, the conversation we're going to have with the county is, one, do we agree that this is a pressing need that, for which we need to devote resources to right now? And the answer to that is probably likely yes, but we'll see. Uh, and then the question then becomes, though, what's the most cost-effective and timely way to do that? The answer may be expand at John George, which is going to take a while to construct and do, or maybe to find some other resources in the county and capacity where we might be able to do this uh, on a more timely and more cost-effective basis so that we can devote, again, more resources, time, focus on being further upstream. So that's a partnership that we, in a conversation we're having with the county or have scheduled to have with them once we can get beyond this piece. But, but uh, even if you take a commitment with the dollars and you carve out, and I understand the immediacy, and, and sure. we have a responsibility to deal with the immediate. But if, in fact, with these dollars, you carve out a percentage that is going to be committed to to the upstream, mm -hmm. and and those dollars are there and committed, we don't commit now. We don't commit to those programs. So they, they move to the back end consistently. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is every time we put in a grant or every time we have... The way in which developers now, uh, our cities are requiring developers to put certain yeah, amount of money mm -hmm. for for uh, low-income housing. Mm -hmm. I mean, and their legislation now that is requiring those kinds of things to happen. 
that's how I see that you can eventually get this thing moved down. This, this isn't new. This has gone on for decades. Yep. Decades. Yep. Um, but we don't, we talk about it, but we don't make the commitment to move those things to the early. And so, well, I'm sorry, I've got to stop this. Well, but part of it is a psychological thing that you're not going to see the fruits of that early intervention That's with correct. children for 20 years, right. and nobody wants to wait for that. You have to take care of the, you know, it's yeah. what's the right person. in front of your yeah. face. Absolutely. May, may Absolutely. I just add one But sorry. it's people like us who have to stand up and say, look, it, we recognize this. So we're going to deal with the immediate, but we're also going to commit to solving this problem so we don't have all this continual expense going on. It just doesn't make sense to me. The only nuance I, I wanted to add to the, to the presentation is we, we agree with you. So we, we've established a, a director of early childhood mental health. We hired that person about three months ago and a new division in the county. And we've also um, have established our PE&I funds in terms of MHSA are huge, and we've been allocating them to our integrated primary clear, uh, clinics. Our medical director, Dr. Aaron Chapman, works very closely with Dr. Clannon and all these initiatives, and the whole person care, we're looking at it to provide that glue. The whole person care won't fund services, but as you mentioned, for revenue, it's going to, it's going to provide the infrastructure that really helps the county to then leverage its resources, which what used to be unfunded, essentially unfunded services. Now that can be funded through the whole person care, and we can really tap into integrating in the services and the upstream. So everything is, it is in progress, but it is slow moving because literally what, what hindered at least the county was that funding prohibited use into particular things, but now we're reallocating mm -hmm. and we're seeing clearly the benefits of upstream. So we're looking at it very holistically, but it is an up, up, uphill run, mm -hmm. sprint job. So. In, in a fee-for-service world, that until that flips, there won't be the financial alignment That's to right. get in front of the issues. All right, so I'm going to move forward fairly quickly. This was our strategy. Many of you have seen this. This is the plan. Focus on PES and census management when we get into a crisis situation in that environment. Uh, a data point, half of the patients who arrive uh, at uh, PES uh, are direct transfers from area emergency departments and or medical acute units. Most of them are coming from emergency departments, 50%. So as I was reminded by one of our PES staff, well, this doesn't solve the whole problem. No, it doesn't. However, it takes a good, it takes a, a, a good swipe at half the problem, which is significant. So the strategy is that when certain conditions exist in PES that get in the way of us providing good care, high-quality care, we need to recognize those, call those out, and in a lean environment, stop the line. And the stop the line uh, uh, parallel here is that we'll hold on transfers from area emergency departments. This has, this has ripple effect throughout the community, which is why we've engaged stakeholders such as the Alameda and Contra Costa Medical Associations, the Hospital Council, behavioral health care, health care services agencies. We're now, uh, we've met with labor five times now, I believe. In fact, I just met with them earlier this week on this particular plan, and we have two more meetings coming up. Next week, we'll, which will engage even more stakeholders such as patients' rights and consumers. We want, we want folks to know that this will have effect throughout the community. However, there needs to be some point where when there's a crisis in PES, we need to be able to find some resolution or mitigation to that crisis. So, some situations where, uh, where we might 
have to hold off on transfers from EDs when there's just not enough space in the unit. Flip side of looking at this is when there's too many people. Well, we do have. We have limited footprint. Those of you that have toured PES know that. Second is when we don't have enough staff. We can't get staff in. I, to, I, it was suggested by one person in one of the stakeholder meetings, well, just get more. That's not quite as easier said than done in some cases. In fact, we do have some staff that when the situation is very challenging in PES, and we call them up, and they're not obligated to take a shift, that particular shift, they'll say, no, I'm, I'm not available. They'll avoid the crisis. And so that, that exacerbates our ability to bring additional staff in. A third situation or a third consideration when we call a hold on transferring transfer delays from emergency departments is when we have a whole lot of one-to-ones on the unit, and that's, that's clinical acuity. We have patients that require that one-to-one -one care, then that will impact staffing as well. The fourth bullet point also is, is an implication when we don't have enough physicians to meet the flow demand, and we can't pull more physicians in. Now, something that may cause us to actually increase the number of patients that we can take into PES is, uh, is if we have a bunch of patients that we know are leaving fairly quickly. Say we've got a half a dozen patients lined up and we know they're ready to go. We're waiting for a taxi or a van or a family member to pick them up or a county caseworker to come and meet with the patient. Then it may, that our physician may say, okay, we've got these six folks going Send six more. We've got, we've got more capacity now because we know these folks are firm, are solidly going. So these are just some of the considerations. When our, our triage physician and our charge nurse uh, confer and there's enough data and enough information for them to say, yes, it's important, we need to activate the plan, this is what will happen. PES then activates, the, we call it a transfer delay procedure. And then we are in the process of amending our contract with ReadyNet, which is an electronic notification system throughout the entire county that alerts area emergency departments that a particular emergency or facility is on bypass or, or won't take folks. We have it at Highland. We've Say that not, again. I'm sorry. It's 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 a it's a, a it's an electronic communication system. So. All of the EDs and the ambulance drivers then know that you can't take patients to this hospital because they're on bypass. There's a, there's a system throughout the county where, that all the EDs are on. John we George don't, is not currently on that. We don't use that in, uh, in PES. Highland, Sinlander, right? uh, Alameda, and all the other EDs. It's the way that the EMS, when they go out and pick people up in the community, can know the status of any emergency room at any time. So, so the, the percentage then of, because, because this program is based on the availability of EDs, right? I'm not sure I understand that, what that you mean by that. there's room, the holding, if we're holding them in EDs, the premise of this is based that there's room in the EDs. Well, the so, patients are already no. there. The no. patients are already, are already in They're CDs. already in the EDs. Right. So yeah. it was okay, but you're holding them there mm -hmm. until there's room. That's right. So right. now the question gets to be for me is what statistically, when you look at the EDs in the county, mm -hmm. are... I assume that there's plenty of room, so I'm wondering what the impact is there, because what we are saying is behavioral health is now taking a higher priority than somebody with a broken hip because there's no room. So I'm trying to figure out, in and, my and, mind... And our ED physicians are very concerned about so, this concept. So, so what has been so the data related to the availability of 
EDs and they're over so overcrowding. On anecdotally, uh, um, ED volume around the county is pretty high. So there's not necessarily available capacity and EDs to not be impacted by this. That's a point that we're making here. Uh, the reality is this is not really about sort of comparative, you know, what's an urgent uh, situation at one location versus the other. It's what is the relative safetyness at, at any time driven by what's going on in PES for this particular plan of actually introducing a new patient into that environment. Mm -hmm. So historically in Alameda County, and this is uh, different than other counties in the state, um, uh, our EDs, uh, since we implemented the Alameda model, have enjoyed the benefit of actually any time a, uh, a patient in a mental health crisis, a 5150 patient, comes through an area ED for clearance, so medical clearance. They, the reason they go there is to make sure that there's nothing physically right, wrong right, with them right. before they come to John George, is that once they clear that patient, they can immediately transport that patient to John George. The assumption has been John George can always handle it. That's so, right. So, you know, I can get this patient out because now I, I do need, and this is a legitimate point, I need that bed for, you know, the broken uh, arm or the, uh, you know, exacerbated whatever chronic condition somebody might be experiencing. Heart failure. What have you. Yeah, yeah, which are all quite important, right? Uh, but the problem is that that model actually doesn't acknowledge the fact that the PES of John George, when it's overcrowded, creates a very unsafe uh, situation. So... As Guy was saying, 50% of the patients who come into the PES are patients who are coming not directly from the field uh, or walk-ins, but are coming from area EDs. And so uh, this plan would effectively, as it goes through the details here, is when we, when we are at a capacity, and that capacity could be 45, it could be 65, it could be 35, depending on depending the acuity on of the patients, mm -hmm. right, uh, that we would actually say, and he's describing the process by which the uh, triage doc and the uh, nurse manager would get together and say, this is borderline unsafe now. We need to implement a hold. And what we would do is, using this ReadyNet system, alert the other EDs that now, if you have a patient who you need to transport to John George, we're now on a hold while we get patients through the system. And we will be working actively. When we invoke that hold, we are we're going to produce what we call a reliable exit strategy. So hopefully that the plan will be that as soon as possible we get patients' disposition back to the community or uh, into an inpatient setting so that then we, we can lift that hole and bring patients in. But there's a process by which even when we're on hold, the docs can still do the transfer of information, at least a partial transfer of information, so that we're ready, we're taking knowledge of which patients out there need to come into John George, and once that hole is lifted, then they basically uh, start to introduce those patients back into John George. Uh, I think you answered the question relative to safety at, at John George. Right. I mean, and, and I think I'm understanding mm -hmm. what you're intending to do. Right. My, my question was, how then, when, when we have a, a, a mental health crisis, mm -hmm and we in fact are holding people in the emergency room, is there a backup in the emergency room for patients to go someplace? Because now what I'm hearing is we, we now have a crisis at John George. Mm -hmm. I have broken my hip in, in Oakland. I can't go to Highland now because the emergency room because we're on the speaker, and we've said there's no room in emergency. Oh, no, no, no. We so just, that's what I'm trying to understand. So the, the ready-net communication here would be uh, 
that there that see that the PDS at John George is on census hold. So if we're on census hold, uh, then the patient, if there's a behavioral health patient in your emergency room, you hold that patient until we lift this, and then we'll bring that patient back in. So for you, let's say let, let's take John George out right now. There's ReadyNet that occurs for all the EDs. Right. If and I don't know how this this works differently in different counties, but I. I'll tell you how I, it works in other counties, and it may work the same way now in other counties. If an emergency room is over, a medical emergency room is oversubscribed, they can then let notify the EMS system that we're we're at capacity here. We can't take any more e EMS patients. Put us on what's called bypass, which means now if there's a critical patient that they're picking up from the field, uh, they would try to first take that patient to a different emergency room okay. rather than bring them to yours, where it's going to take a while. It would likely take a while for them to be able to bring them in and see them. So, so effectively, that occurs right now throughout our EMS system. What we're now doing is adding behavioral health to that, saying that, again, this patient, it's not the ideal setting for them to be in. We want them in John George because that's where they're going to get their mental health treatment. But introducing them into John George at a point where John George is at a capacity is potentially less safe for them and for um, uh, the, the, the overall patient capacity at John George or patient population at John George than to temporarily keep them where they are until we can say for them. Oh, can I just jump? She knows that. What she's wondering about is if John George uses ReadyNet to shut down and that causes Highland to have to use ReadyNet to shut down because it's full, where does she go with her broken yes. hip? So that, that's your question, can I, right? Can I jump in? And yeah. It will mean it will have ripple effects in the other hospitals. Right. We'll have psychiatric, psych, uh, you know, psych, providers on call or something because that they might have to deal with them for two, three hours before they can move here. Right. So they will have to change. This will have an impact. This will on have an impact. Yeah, point is, let's take John George out of the uh, equation. It happens already. It has so been. what generally happens in, an, in, a, in a EMS system is if too many providers go on bypass, then nobody's on bypass. Right. They basically say, we're off. Everything is oversubscribed. We're going to bring the patient because that's our fail safe. I mean, we, we have to be able to bring someone there to get care, and, and it'll work. We all make it all work. Uh, but but the reality is PES has been out of that equation, yeah. and there's been a really – it's not a looming problem in the sense that we've seen safety incidents. It's the risk and it's the unsafe environment that's well, creating challenges for them. Thank you. And, and I think I'm – I hate to take all the time, but but I'm so I'm beginning to get this. the The idea, however, that that triggers for me is he he said we have about 200 people who are constantly coming to to um, John George yeah. to PES who do not necessarily need that service. Correct. So that that domino, that 200 people, and all at the same time, I yeah. understand that yeah. that domino does in <laughs> fact affect the emergency room. Correct. So, so there's other parts of this. Right. Yeah. So so, okay. so, we're, so the other parts of this are uh, there. The, the current reality, Dr. Triple mentioned this earlier, is that John George is, is before the pilot at St. Um, St. Rose, one of the few places where you could lift a 5150. So when you're talking about those chronic people, uh, high utilizers, many of them don't actually need to be in PES. If they go somewhere and they're on the 5150 and they can't lift it there, they actually still have to come to John George to get it lifted. At Highland, because it's a part of our system, that's not the case. So if there's a patient who is a chronic patient at Highland, or a patient who comes to Highland on a 5150, and they don't actually need to be in uh, John George, if we are on a hold, 
they don't have to stay at Highland. They actually work with the ED docs at Highland to lift the hole, and the patient can be discharged from Highland. As so is we, the case of St. Rose. And as and the case is currently with the, with the at St. Rose. So I was going to say, so then the emphasis yeah. are, are our pressure to encourage you to increase the telepsychiatric tele um, should be should be important so that you can get, unless you have psychiatrists away. No, uh, can really Kenny said it all in all our emergency pilot, rooms. It has to pilot. From the pilot, it seems that it is, uh, you know, an effective intervention. So uh, I just, uh, I mean, it's a very, very relevant question, you know, the safety of our non-behavioral health patients in our over-congested emergency room throughout the county. Now, uh, it is the reality that John George all holding these feet into it. And when we go on hold and we monitor this, we monitor this, we study it, and we see its impact. Go on John George, we have surge capacities and interventions in different EDs, where we have, yes, like telepsychiatry is one intervention which we are piloting, we call in the psychiatrist. Also, we, have, we use like one-to-one -one observation and uh, we have, like, we call it surge capacity for the non-behavioral health in our emergency. So it's something that really we need to continue on, on monitoring and on observing. Like, I don't know how many did we go, like, the past two weeks on diversion so, like this. Interesting is that uh, in the month of October, uh, there was one day where we, we were reaching a situation where we possibly could have invoked it. But, and staff recognized that, and they they were really hard to get folks you know get folks discharged in an appropriate and timely manner, and we were able to avoid it. Now it's just once in in October month to date. However, in September, with you know with Labor Day, there were about six times, six evenings, when we probably would have had to had to at least seriously consider a delay. But I, I do and want to point out that those were Labor Day weekend. Yes, yeah, right. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so when you go through this plan, maybe for context for you all. Um, one of the big things is all the work that's been done to date. Uh, if we were talking about this plan six months ago without all that other work, you might see a situation where this would happen quite chronically, right? But right now, this is just a basically a safety blanket for the organization to say, in those event, in events, and we don't anticipate they'll be uh, frequent, but, they, but it may happen occasionally, when this needs to occur, we have a plan, and that gives comfort to the staff because right now, and for the last number of years, what the staff have felt is that we will, the door is always open. We could be up to 80 patients, and the next patient is going to come in here. And they feel like, where does it all end, right? So and unless something, are we waiting on something catastrophic to occur? This is basically saying, no, we will constantly monitor what's going on in PES, just like we do in every area of the emergency room. And we'll make a real-time decision about what needs to occur. It is not our only plan. The other stuff we're already doing reduces the likelihood that this will occur. But we're saying still if there is a need and a sense that we need to have a, you know, there's a cutoff point here. It's an objective real-time decision that will occur. It's not based on a solid number. And we will do that um, with, with the proper sort of oversight and monitoring to make sure that it's done safely. But this is just a plan that is conceptual at this point. We've tested it once and it actually worked quite well. We were on hold for about, I think, four or five hours yeah. mm -hmm. uh, on a Labor Day weekend uh, still, and that we're able to uh, uh, bring in resources, including our clinical leadership, to expedite patient uh, uh, discharge and, and uh, disposition, and then able, able to lift that hole and get those patients in who needed to be there. Uh, so, so 
it's an important plan, and I don't want to diminish the, the importance of it, but I think the frequency of it, at least if all these other things that we're doing already and the other things that we are planning to do come into fruition, uh, the hope is that we, we rarely to ever have to. And I'm assuming then that you also want us as a board to stand strong on the no cap for so if we are contacted by supervisors or by unions, mm -hmm. that our position is that we are not, we're going to use this program and we're not going to, to stand behind a cap for, for John Jay. Absolutely. I think for, from our perspective, this is more patient-centric. It, uh, it is something that, that has, it's sort of steeped in what, what we believe is uh, sound logic, and uh, we will test it. Uh, but like everything else, we are, we are a learning organization, and so if it turns out that you know, we are experiencing this a lot more than we thought we were or, or anticipated and or, you know, some of these other things don't happen to kind of help us out, then we can revisit it. But we really think nice this is reasonable. Right? <laughs> you know, we got to learn. That's, that's, a good, that's a good answer. I have a question about the reaction on the part of the EDs out there that I'm going to say this diplomatically, but perhaps, guys, some of them, simply defaulted to you automatically and chose not to develop their internal capacity to handle some of these kinds of cases. So are they given enough time now? Do you think that they have enough time right now to address what they might need to be doing? So St. Rose in particular is a tiny ED. I don't know that they have a specific um, room appropriate for a psychiatric hole. Sure, they must have something, but that's a tiny ED. And if we're saying to them, "Hey, folks, you need to be ready to hold at least one or two patients out of the month, two months, a year, or whatever it's going to be, maybe more often than that," what are they doing? Well, so let me break it down to the to where our patients coming from when they come from EDs. Uh, about twenty five percent of our patients come from Highland. Oh, okay. uh, yes. So right now, we work with Dr. Simon and his crew. Uh, it's already occurring where we ask Highland to hold folks for several hours while we, while we uh, try to decompress PES. Uh, about 12% of our patients come from Eden, and the other 12%, 12 13% come from San Leandro Hospital. So about 50% of our folks come from Highland, Eden, okay. and San Leandro. And then the rest of them are, come from various hospitals from Washington. So, and Maria, when I visited... Um, St. Rose, mm -hmm. they they were in the process of making certain that they they were doing this telecommunication and the, being able to release the 50, uh, 5150s. Mm -hmm. They had a, a wing at plan yeah. in, that was not necessarily in the emergency room, yes. but a a, a a hallway. I think not a hallway, a different different yep. wing in which they were intending to to put the 5150s. So I think now they to, your, to your question, are, are they ready? It's, <laughs> every hospital is in a different state of readiness. Okay. I, I, it's part of our strategic business unit in behavioral health to enhance the psychiatric support in our internal AHS emergency yeah. departments. Uh, a couple of plans around it, improve psychiatry and increase psychiatric nursing support in the EDs okay. so that we can actually get ahead of it. Uh, that'll that'll take care of Highland, San Leandro, and Alameda. And Alameda hospitals a, a small a small number of folks but, are transferred there. Eden, let's just take Eden. Mm -hmm. That's Sutter Health. That's so, correct. how are they responding to you? Uh, we have we met with the Alameda and Contra Costa County Medical Associations, and they're struggling. Frankly, they've they've had 
they've had a very um, uh, advantageous relationship with PES. Being, I'm trying to be politically correct uh -huh. too. <laughs> yeah, it, they, they have. So I, this will this will push them into a situation where they're going to have to bring on psychiatrists on staff. There will be a credentialing process that they'll have to, or they'll have to reallocate some psychiatric support in their ED. Potential. So, so Potential. So let me go there because yeah. this is Sutter Health who has the resources to purchase what we need them to do. And instead, they have burdened a public health entity to do what they could have been doing. And, and I don't, I'm, I'm trying to be friendly about that. <laughs> don't forget Kaiser. However, they are however, friends. they are our friends. <laughs> however, that's a microcosm of what I believe has contributed to mm -hmm. the problem. We are so good at what we do that we have made it possible for the other entities <clears throat> not to have capacity. So now with this, you, you really have the position and the power to say, we cannot do this further. So you will need to step up to the plate. Right? So, is that uh, fair? I think it is. Two points I think are important. So one, uh, behavioral health uh, as a statewide uh, issue, it's nationwide obviously, but as a statewide issue, is really okay. taking on great importance across the delivery system. So our, our, you know, I think your points are taken, and actually I think they're valid. I would be uh, um, uh, probably less uh, uh, diplomatic, but um, uh, I think they're actually true that a lot of uh, organizations, uh, not-for-profit organizations around the, the uh, state have historically viewed uh, behavioral health patients as county patients. Uh, so they're, they're the county's patients, and, and when they show up in their emergency rooms or in their, in their settings, in many cases people have seen them as, you know, how do I get them as quickly as possible out of our setting, uh, uh, and how do I, and, and you can see the data, a lot of programs around the state or organizations around the state have divested in behavioral health, acute behavioral health services within their uh, organizations. So, so yes, that's been happening, and the other point is equally true, particularly in Alameda County, is we, we kind of enable it, right? We said we have this great model, we can make it work. We wanted to do it, we saw it as a part of, uh, an important part of our mission, and so we did do it. So it's kind of been, uh, you know, we've been victims of our own success, I think. That's what Guy said earlier. I don't know, though, that this this program, uh, what we're talking about implementing here, is going to be significant enough that it actually forces people to uh, um, uh, sort of revisit the amount of investment they, they put into these services. What they will want to do, I believe, is um, uh, uh, several of them will appeal to the county to have the ability to actually lift the 150s. And many of them are already doing that point. In fact, it, that, this is now, I think, a professional tug between the psychiatric uh, medical community and the emergency medical community. That was part of our conversation. Uh, the ED docs in many of the settings, including Sutter, lament the fact that they don't have the authority to lift 5150s uh, when um, the, the um, law enforcement community has the authority to place 5150s. So it's like, well, I'm actually a clinician. Maybe I don't have, you know, uh, uh, sort of deep psychiatric experience, but I can make an assessment of someone clinically and determine, at least in my own judgment, yes, professional opinion, whether or not this is an ongoing behavioral health need uh, or whether I need additional uh, referrals or uh, consultation to do that. So, so there's some work being uh, done at the county level as a part of that discussion to figure out can we increase their ability to do this. So the county's looking a, at that, actually? Yes, yes. and that's why the we... The Board of Supervisors would have to pass Legislation? No, no, no our, our ED docs can do it. Our ED docs right. can lift ED 5150. So it is. So the county establishes, enables a particular setting as yeah. designates. Right. And so 
um, they almost always call a psychiatrist in was, consultation, yes. but they can lift a 5150. So legally. we have designated particular sites, not everywhere. And I say right. royalty in, in history. And so now, again, we're trying to pilot with um, St. Rose because of what was just mentioned. But so yeah. at, at St. Rose, the tele, once there's a te, correct, there's a tele, um, tele consult, consultation, then the 5150 can, can be, be lifted if yes. they think it's close. And at Highland, depending on the, if the, the psychiatrist, I mean, the, the ED physicians right. themselves lift it in, often in consultation. But other places, it's not. In, in many it, counties, it's well. elite, or it's not. It's not. It's not it's it is, the it is a policy. huge issue on the behavioral side at the state level, and as well as across counties. Most are very concerned with enabling uh, systems in totality to be able to do that. So Can I um, go back uh, to Wait. the, um, no. the your, your your discussion of um, where the patients are coming from? You know, when you said that twenty five percent are from Highland, mm -hmm. and um, that another twenty five percent is from Eden and San Leandro. So. And so if, if there's one day a month, say in November, one day would have to be, there'd have to be a hold for, for how many hours would that be? And, and what, in your estimation, would it be, would you be having, it would be impacting mainly those three sites. I mean, you, even if you send it out, it, it, it's less likely that it would be impacting Washington or, um, or Alta Bates or Unfortunately, the answer to that is it depends. It depends on how many psychiatric patients happen to be in those ERs during that time, and there's no prediction on that. Right. And, and it, it also depends on the other side on how quickly we can disposition those patients. And how quickly would that? You didn't really get too much into that. He doesn't know. <laughs> We've only done this once. That's a depends. Right, That's right. another it depends. So Labor Day, or yeah, Labor Day, that would have taken we, we did about several, four, little over four hours. However, there's going to be some situations where it might, the you know, delay might occur over an, overnight. It might start, unfortunately, let's say 10 or 11 o'clock at night. We're not going to have as much ability to discharge or disposition patients that late at night. We will. We'll push on families and board and cares and SNFs where there are places to, to discharge the patients, but there might not be other resources. And so it might last until the early hours of the morning, like maybe 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. So it could be as much as, as the overnight shift. And, and we don't know yet. We have, this is all a test. It's, it's a, it's a Dr. Plan. Tribble and, and, and um, Dr. Jamal Dean, I guess, what, what, what is the, or Guy, what, what's the likelihood if that, or, or is there any possibility that this, once the, the EDs were closed, once the PES is closed down, would, would, would um, EMS not take people to other, how would that work? Would they start saying, oh, no, we can't go to John George, so we're, you know, we're going to have to take him to Alameda. But Alameda's saying, no, don't bring him here. So. No, no, no. Remember, no, no. John George is different. So John George is just PES. They only transport patients to the other emergency rooms for medical clearance. So they can take them to any currently today, and that's not going to change with this. They would okay. always go to okay. any emergency room that's closed for medical clearance and then determine that whether that patient still needs to but if there's a if there's a hold on and there's a 5150 in the field, what is the EMS? So that's that's the so second bullet point here. But they, they don't need to go to an emergency room. Are not being, they can still uh, come. So they'll still bring them to. They'll still bring ambulances. Well, this would tend to possibly divert ambulances from other sites. Then? No, no, no. Listen. So, so if a patient is in the field and they only have a behavioral health crisis. They're coming directly to They're all, and that's, that's true. This all the plan okay, will not sorry. impact yeah. any walk-ins or okay. anybody who purely has. Okay. This is, the point of this was 
was that we knew that we couldn't stop that. That is a need oh, or a role that we feel. The other one was just these patients are at least in a setting where there's clinical expertise that can actually monitor them. Maybe not to the depth of what can happen at John George, but they're not sitting out in the community. They're not sitting uh, um, in a in a you know in an emergency or I'm sorry, in an so ambulance or a law enforcement. Continue setting. to there even if there's a hold, then you, we, we could come. still Correct. be getting swamped, That's right? Correct. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, and that yeah. might, a scenario might be that, that because we're having more folks coming in from the field during that time, it might exacerbate it might or increase the delay time Correct. before we release the, the transfers from the EDs. Right. And that's why you said that there may be 45 people, there may be 75 people, yeah, depending exactly. on, yeah. on the crisis and, uh, and, their be and yeah. the, the severity of their, of their illness. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I did want to uh, welcome Ulysses, who has gone on an adventure this morning. It was like the proverbial three-hour tour this yeah. morning <laughs> across the, uh, the Bay Bridge. Unfortunately, just before I left, a, uh, a tractor-trailer decided to jackknife and yeah, close the heard. entire bridge. Yeah. We so, heard. Well, oh, thank you so, for uh, your tenacity in trying to get yeah, here. We appreciate well, it. Let's Welcome. just say I tried about ten different options to try and get on that bridge, and every one of them was pretty bad. <laughs> so I do, yeah. So, I, I want to just, I want to just help you all to to, to make sure you get a break. Um, uh, we 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 had a few more. People. We've actually talked about. We've a lot talked of this, about everything. The the, the, the you guys one asked the questions that were in the slides. You did. Uh, <laughs> the one area that I that I want to keep in front of folks too is that while we. It might be advantageous for other area emergency departments to be able to lift the hold. There's a real concern on the part of families throughout yeah. this community as well as California, which is why AB 1300 did not pass, which would have made it standard throughout the state that ED docs could have lifted holds. But that didn't pass because of uh, opposition from National Alliance on Mental Illness. The families felt that there might be a perverse incentive. Yep. or some emergency department physicians to lift holds simply so they could clear out the EDs as quickly as possible. Now, while, while I, I think that would be the, the rare, rare exception rather than a rule, there was such a fear about that sure. potential from families that, that they, don't, you know, they would oppose the, the notion of ED docs having carte blanche to lift holds. They would want special training and things like that. So I want to get that in front of folks. Thank you. I, and, and if I could just say, the, the upshot of this conversation certainly was, um, you know, we've, we've talked and, and you all requested to be able to have this deeper conversation. So I think this has been quite, quite helpful. Uh, we really wanted to make sure you understood what the administration was uh, advancing um, uh, both internally and to our external uh, counterparts. Uh, it is not, you know, without... Uh, some some consternation. Uh, as I said when we met with the ED docs, uh, neither side of this challenge or, or issue is happy, and so I think we found the sweet spot. Um, yep. So so you know we're asking people to, to understand that the the the, um, the men and women at John George who care for uh, these uh, uh, these patients day in and day out are are you know remain committed to this population. This is just a means of saying that you know we need to make sure that people know that you know. It's, if there is a, if the dam is over flooded, that, uh, that there is a safety uh, valve that we can invoke, uh, that we don't uh, intend to invoke willy-nilly, uh, uh, and that, quite honestly, this is, again, I believe, actually a very small part of a series of uh, things that are happening right now to address this, and we just need to get some buy-in to 
move beyond this. I actually think we've done a great job with the uh, health committee and that my, my, my hope and my uh, expectation is that at the next meeting we will uh, sort of you know, put this to bed, if yeah. you will, uh, and be able to move on. Uh, but I think it's been very helpful to have your engagement on this, certainly your support with uh, all the other internal uh, measures that we put in place and you can see the fruits of those are bearing. Uh, uh, as well as a partnership with the county to, to try to address the broader issues and challenges that we have. So your continued support and understanding that a cap is, is uh, we don't feel the advisable way to go and that we want to test this out and monitor it uh, uh, would, would also be really good. Well, I was pretty hard on the county, and so <laughs> so, okay. and so I do, I don't necessarily apologize, but I do say that I'm very pleased <laughs> that, that there has been that relationship that's growing in terms of finding the finding the solution. So thank you. Thank you. So, thank you. Just a couple, just what, real briefly, one, I want to thank Dr. Tribble for joining us this morning and taking time out of your schedule. It's been a great partnership with the county in developing the plan. And the other is, I believe this is my last board meeting. I yeah, will not be attending. It's not okay. Was it really? That is I was, not okay. I was going to thank everybody for the <laughs> tremendous support you've given Behavioral Health and John George over the years. So thank you from a personal and a professional standpoint. Sorry, Delvecchio. Yeah. Your last day is the 10th, right? 10th, that's correct, yeah. yeah. 10th. So if, if, you know, something happens, something might happen to his car, he may be stuck in his own <laughs> I'm not saying these things will occur, but if they did, you know, we, we've got it under control. We'll make sure he's fed and we're going to change the clothes and, yeah. for another 10 months at least. Well, I thought he had to years. see this thing through, and yeah. so it was. Exactly. Yeah. I'm talking to yeah. my counterparts at Kaiser to see if I can keep them uh, uh, at bay for a while, uh, but <laughs> no, in all seriousness, <laughs> can I end this yeah, yeah, we're gonna invoke it. Guy, guy has uh, uh, obviously been very incredible um, uh, and uh, a, a really impressive leader in his tenure at AHS. Uh, but as if, if Jim were on a call, I'm sure he'd say, um, Guy is recognized statewide, if not nationally, for all of the leadership that he provides, in particular uh, in the behavioral health uh, community. And, uh, he'll be sorely missed for that. Yes, uh, I think it's definitely going to be um, some tough shoes to fill for us. Uh, uh, our leadership is working on that, and so we'll, we'll you know, we have to do it. Uh, but I want to really thank Guy, and I really want to congratulate him on this new uh, uh, endeavor. Uh, Guy has, I don't know if you know, but he um, uh, is fantastic in behavioral health, but he's just a great uh, administrator and leader and has experience in his profession, uh, uh, professional career and doing uh, general medical um, administration as well. And so uh, this uh, opportunity, I think, affords him the ability to kind of show his, his uh, uh, chops in that space uh, even more than he has done in the past. And so uh, I'm excited to be a colleague of his and uh, work with him uh, uh, in his continued work at, uh, with Kaiser and in the county. Uh, uh, but yeah, we, will, we will miss him Thank soon. So. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. I think we're on a... We're, we can take a break you. now, but We're gonna, can, I, can I beg, can I appeal for 10 minutes instead of 15? Sure. You, you can appeal. I don't yeah. know that. Yeah, that, that, that I don't know if you yes, you can certainly appeal to it. I don't know that it's going to happen, but you can make the appeal. Okay, uh, 10 minute break, guys. Thank you. I told you we, you were too ambitious. I know. I told you. No, try not to. Because I'm not to let you have to go in reverse off the bridge or what? I haven't given up on you. 
I'm calling the meeting back to order, and we are now moving to discussion item D, and uh, our attorney has agreed to take that over. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so there are uh, three items here, and I will uh, basically uh, provide some information, um, get some feedback on the first two, and then the third will be the uh, two reappointments. I'll turn it back uh, to the board chair to conduct uh, that particular action. So the first thing that um, I hit, uh, is listed here is the uh, uh, trustee self-evaluation uh, in structure. And this is a little bit of a follow-on to the conversation from the last board meeting. Um, and within the policies and procedures, there's actually a section you know, which has been included, which has not been filled out yet, which addresses the self-evaluation requirement and also an education requirement. So under the new bylaws, uh, the board uh, has an obligation to conduct a self-evaluation on an annual basis. Um, and so in terms of finalizing uh, these policies and procedures, uh, what we wanted to do was to you know, get your feedback or confirmation on a process to conduct that evaluation. Um, and from our you know, standpoint, you know, in terms of you know, the staff report, <coughs> is that uh, we conduct an online survey that could be circulated approximately 30 to 45 days in advance of either this meeting on an annual basis or the November meeting, and then in that subsequent meeting there could be a discussion of the results of the evaluation if that seems acceptable to everybody in terms of a process going forward. So that was the first item you know, for your discussion and how you wanted to proceed on that particular piece. Okay. Um, well, we, the one in the past we used to use the Governance Institute. Yeah, it would be, you know, it would be a, a, a survey similar to that. Yeah, okay, because we we're already a member of that organization. Does anyone have an objection to, to that process? Okay. No. Um, okay. Then the other thing that I might also add is give it consideration to our own goals and objectives. And so as you look at that governance thing, we've got to find a way in which we can measure whether or not we adhere to our own goals and objectives. And those were okay. the visitations, the attendance, um, following our own protocols. And you probably can look at it. I don't know that you can give much input, Gary, but um, but certainly you can look at it. So if, if that is is satisfactory, the, then the other suggestion I would have, we don't have a meeting in December. So if we could do this in November, get the results to us before the reorganization meeting so that if we want to re redesign new goals and objectives or for the new officers to be able to to use the the results in some manner it probably is beneficial is does that make sense yep so we'll plan to get that out within the next week or so great um, and then um, um, you know basically well we'll get it out you know basically ask everyone to complete it as soon as possible uh, and then once we sort of collate the results, we'll forward those on to you, and then we can decide whether that goes on the November agenda, if we need something on the November agenda as well, too. Okay. okay. And let me ask about this new officer thing. The term is a year. Is that right? It's for there's no, there's no rule. There's there, so right. So it, we could extend the current officers, should we so choose. Unless they commit 
Harry Carey or something. Yeah, like I get that. that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, you could extend you could extend the new officers. There's yeah. So there isn't anything in our bylaws that preclude us changing officers. And if you recall, um, Kirk resigned early, right, so you. that I so that I could work with Del Vecchio uh, when he came on. So there has no there's no term limits. It's, it's a but new it election. Is a, each term is a year, I think, is what I would Yeah, each ask term it. is that the reorganization meeting. I'm sorry if that's what you meant. Well, but, and, but it's okay to extend it. Is yes. To yes. But you, you would have to vote for it for the extension. And part of the reason I'm asking is that for the past, I think since I've been on the board, the presidents tend to serve more than one year. So that was why it, I just wondered in the old bylaws if it was a two year term or. Uh, I'm just no, there, there was no change on that point. There are no term limits. There are not. Well, just other than the board term limits. So. No officer term limits. Okay, uh, thank you very much. So then the second piece um, is in the packet. I uh, provided a copy of the draft of the new board policies and procedures. And then as I laid out in the memo, you know, the process that we followed you know, to get them to this point. Uh, and the idea here is I, I just wanted to make a couple of comments, <coughs> excuse me, about you know, the draft document. Um, and, you know, the view is, is that this, you know, now the entire board has this to review and we'll bring it back to you in November, you know, for actual approval. But today I wanted to highlight a couple of items, uh, get any questions that you may have about any of the content um, so that, you know, you'll have you know, plenty of opportunity, you know, to go into it in depth uh, in advance of uh, approval at the next meeting. So, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, the idea here was to um, enhance the policies and procedures so they would give better guidance, you know, on not only routine issues, but some of the, you know, sort of general principles, you know, governing the board. So, you know, sections, you know, that deal with the board's quality responsibilities, uh, their uh, compliance obligations, and in particular, you know, better defining the relationship between uh, the board, the uh, executive team, and the medical staff. You know, if I was going to just sort of summarize, you know, sort of in an overarching fashion, what's new with the policies and procedures, that's what's incorporated here. Some specific items, you know, that are now addressed in here that uh, that are a little bit different. So, you know, following uh, the direction of the board from the last meeting, uh, we have um, readdressed the issue of the human resources committee within the policies and procedures. Um, now, that will also require a change to the bylaws, but these policies and procedures have to be approved by the Board of Supervisors as well, too. So in the course of forwarding these for that approval, we'll also report, uh, include a request to uh, amend the bylaws to include uh, adding uh, back human resources as a standing committee. Uh, the other discussion uh, which came up in um, not only the ad hoc committee, which you know, I'd like to thank the Trustee Hernandez and Trustee Banerjee uh, for working on, um, but was also reflected in the medical staff discussion and to a certain extent amongst the executive team, uh, was you know, returning to the prior model with the Quality Professional Services Committee in terms of the scope of its authority and the scope of its work. And so the what's reflected here is that the charter for the, uh, what is now being called the Medical uh, Credentialing and Policies Committee, will basically revert to the charter that QPSC had in the old bylaws. And so all of the responsibilities, um, additional responsibilities beyond credentialing and policy approval would go back to QPSC in terms of you know, monitoring quality, uh, harm statistics, those types of things. So 
that, you know, uh, I believe some of that discussion came up in the you know, full board meeting, but that's now reflected in this document uh, as well, too. The, uh, the other uh, items that I just wanted to, you know, to give a little bit of mention to in section uh, five, or excuse me, section four, which is on page five, we have laid out uh, the trustee orientation um, with a little bit more detail. Uh, so, you know, if there's any comments or feedback in terms of the content, the scope of what should be incorporated in the uh, orientation, uh, you know, it will be you know, good to hear that back from you. Uh, the other item that I also wanted to highlight was on uh, page 8, and this is section... Be before you move to that, could, uh, on page 7, I, I think it's a... Um, I think it's probably an error to include in our bylaws um, the date and time of when our board meetings are going to be. And so I think that needs to be stricken from so that every board has an opportunity to, and it's flexible. So if the minute you put it in here, that's when we have to have it. Well, under the Brown Act, we do need to designate what the regular meeting is. because At the beginning of every year, you don't have to do it in your bylaws. I okay. know that for a fact. Well, okay, so you know, what do you want to put in here just that we will, that that will be established? At the beginning, at the yes, annual meeting? That's a yes, idea. that's okay. a great idea. Okay. Although I really hope we don't change it, because right now it works for me. Well, uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't necessarily think we should. It's just that for future boards, if and something happens, yeah. why tie yourself to, to that yeah. specific? So. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, so the other uh, piece is also in that same section, and this is under uh, paragraph F. Um, and I just, you know, wanted to highlight that what has been, you know, included here are uh, s some guidelines regarding, you know, the preparation, you know, of the agenda for board meetings. And it's really sort of, you know, to, to ensure that there is some understanding about, you know, what types of subjects, you know, will typically be. Uh, addressed, you know, within the board meetings, and again, this is within the eye towards ensuring that the policies and procedures, you know, reflect that the board is properly focused on those special fiduciary obligations and responsibilities they have. So, what's in indicated here in terms of the business meeting agenda and the education business meeting agenda, it's not that these are limits on what's on the agenda, but these are, you know, like I say, guidelines which indicate, you know, uh, what the focus, you know, should be on an ongoing basis. So when you say typically include, does not require then the uh, chief medical officer to give a report at every meeting? Not necessarily. But it's just making clear that the, that the board, you know, recognizes it's appropriate to do that at least on a periodic basis in some fashion. So uh, under Section 7, which is on pages 9 and 10, you can see there that the uh, new committees uh, or the revised committee structure are highlighted. <clears throat> and then under paragraph 9, uh, which begins on page, or excuse me, actually, let me go back uh, just before that. So on page 10, you will see there that there is a section, and this is section 8, which is the board compliance obligations and responsibilities. This is the new section I referred to, and I endeavored here 
you know, to include as part of the policies and procedures some specific information around the compliance obligations because that is a special obligation of the board, um, which outlines, you know, specifically, you know, what that is and also provides some guidance in terms of how that might be discharged by the board. And then likewise, the next session, uh, which is Section 9, does the same thing with uh, quality and patient safety. Can, can you go back to page uh, 8 and where it says the posting of the meetings? Okay. I mean, why, why don't we just say that we will follow the requirements of the Brown Act? I mean, what? It, because our, if, in fact, you did, Susannic doesn't get this done, we're violating our... Or we're violating our bylaws and the Brown Act. No, the no. she won't violate no. the Brown Act. So, so this is a little bit broader than what the Brown Act requires in terms of the uh, the posting schedule that we've set out. And oh, this yes. basically just you know this reflects what has typically been the practice, which is to uh, provide uh, have materials the agenda for meetings posted five days before the meeting, as opposed to three days, which is. Uh, the Brown Act oh, requirement. Right. And so typically, you know, the agenda is posted according to the schedule. That's what we're doing but now. My point is, if in fact she doesn't do it, we've violated the, so why, you, because of your attorney mind, are far more specific and, and as a result, limit flexibility. No, I, this is actually designed to provide more flexibility, make sure that the board has adequate opportunity to prepare for meetings. And if you all are satisfied with 72 hours, then we can just make this. It, do, it doesn't preclude us saying we'd like to get them out in five days. Right. I mean, so they could say, let's get them out in five days. But when you put it in here, mm -hmm. it's now, and she doesn't get it out in five days. So we, she's now violating, or we are violating our own policy. So I'm trying to give us flexibility to okay. say, Susanna, it'd be nice to get these out in five days. We appreciate, but if you don't, so I, I would be, I would lean more, and, and this is a joint meeting, so I'm just voicing my particular concern here. But um, so if the rest of the, everybody's fine with that, we can keep it in. I just, I noticed that and thought, whoa, that's pretty tight. This is, these are your policies, obviously. Uh, um, if, you, if I could opine, I, 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 I would like that. Uh, but I think uh, just for clarity, though, it would help if um, I, mean, I think putting in a policy here makes it clear that this is your expectation, and that's hard, hard and fast. If we say that the expectation is really the Brown Act, but it would, it would be nice to do it even further in advance, then we kind of have a little incongruence. So, I would like for it to be the Brown Act because I think it's it's incredibly tough to not necessarily the agenda, but I'd like to get everything out as soon as possible, and we we struggle with that uh, in terms of getting things as, as buttoned up as possible before we send them to you. So so the more time we have to do that, if the exhortation really was Brown Act, and then anything above that was nice, then I just love for that to come along with. Um, but if your expectation is really going to be you know that it's it's greater than the Brown Act, then then I think putting it in your policy to kind of hold us accountable to that uh, uh, creates greater clarity. But I'm, I'm advocating for the other, so I'm supporting what you're saying. I just want that to be the expectation as well. And, and just to be clear, Susanna is always on time. Mm -hmm. She's it, well, Susanna's on time. It's the rest of the staff that doesn't get the stuff to Susanna. Well, and so, uh, I mean, I've done this before, so I recognize the difficulty she's going to have. 
my concern is we ought to say it would be great to get this out, but the minute you put it in here, now it's the bylaws, and people can hold us accountable for the, for the fact that it's not there. But it, it's entirely up to the group here. So what's your pleasure? I agree with Michelle, not in the bylaws, that level of specific. Okay, well, in, okay. But is it possible to establish it as a policy? What, no, actually, as I was going to say, this isn't the so bylaws. We can put it as our, so let me be clear, this isn't the bylaws. These are your policies. These are the policies and procedures. Okay. Could we just so, say to the right. extent possible, so, all agendas are so then, then, uh, You could say that, to yeah. the extent possible. The extent possible. Sure, you could put that kind of wording in. And then you could say, but when you say must be posted, uh, I think you're going to I think you're going to hurt yourself. As, as an administrative staff, I think you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah, but always, they always hold you to your own policies. That's right. So we okay. can put both. So to the extent possible, five days in advance, uh, but but by but. Uh, but no later, but no later than. than. Well, we can't violate the Brown Act. Right. So. Exactly. Right. So. Okay. So that's clear for us. So you know, if, uh, again, holding Susanna and 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 us uh, accountable if that uh, is the expectation that is sort of graduated and that that works. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um. And then let's see. So on the last section, you know, I now have the information to include for the self-evaluation assessment. Uh, the only other, you know, item that I had sort of indicated here is whether or not anything should be included in the policies or procedure that goes to uh, board education or requirements with respect to education. If you know there was any desire to include something here regarding that, you know, that you know, a, that you know, a class must be attended each year or anything along those lines. I wasn't. And the joint standing committees, what what uh, I see that we have joint strategic planning, which hasn't been, I mean, so I'm not quite certain for standing committees, does this mean that we must now have that committee? Well, that's in the bylaws, that committee. Which is the two members of the Board of Supervisors and two members of the, of the trustees, is that one? Yes. Is that me? Oh, oh, that's the joint strategic That's planning? a joint strategic oh. planning committee? Yes. Is that what that is? Yes. Have you been meeting? Is that the kind of... Oh, no, it's a discussion in the last meeting. meeting. Yeah, so why... why uh, no, 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 that's... Uh, well, that's different. Uh, that one has been viewed as an administrative meeting. Um, oh, not as... Not, uh, this one would be a, a Brown Act uh, uh, noticed uh, a committee that's... Uh, combination of the two. This one falls under the, the conversation we were having in the last board meeting about um, uh, log logistically challenging, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, schedules and calendars for, for everybody that, that the team has been working on along with the county team. So, so it's, it's here because it's in the bylaws and it reflected such, but uh, as we're discussing, we may need to uh, appeal for the bylaws change and maybe the minutes should reflect it as well that or the uh, the uh, uh, policies procedures should reflect it as well that this uh, that the frequency of that meeting is is not uh, as uh, finite and prescriptive as it is right now so we have to change both to say that it's a target but not necessarily because it says quarterly yeah. yeah that's a lot yeah so it's two different convenings. It's those and it's the, the joint meetings that were supposed to happen twice a year that, that aren't happening. Uh, 
I, I suppose I... Or I, three times, right. I, I, okay, on page 10, explain what what are those committees. So... And then you crossed out medical and credentialing policies. You crossed that out. I thought that we were changing that. Well, that, that was indicating that the name was going back to QPSC. Um, to QPSC. Oh. That, that committee is still there. It's just the name is that we're, we're going to change the name back to QPSC. Oh, we are. Remind me why that is. Because we, we just should be looking somewhere in our board about the quality of care. Oh, so the ad hoc committee made that recommendation to change? Yes. Right. Okay. Done. Okay. Yes. Cool. We, we, we have a desire not to let that committee in the future solely be focused on credentialing. And it is our responsibility as board members, those of us who are on that committee, to shift the attention not solely on credentialing, but inclusive of quality. Okay. I like that. So the, uh, the executive finance, audit and compliance, joint strategic planning, and the last committee, medical credential policy, QPSC, those are the standing committees and the bylaws. Uh, so, and then I just added another charter item on ad hoc committees just to explain how those can be formed and what they would be used for. So that's where that comes from. Now say again about the joint strategic planning. So it's in the bylaws. That in, in the discussions with the county that led to the bylaws changes over the course of the fall last year, mm -hmm. this was one of the, yeah, I think it was more a county-driven initiative to include this as part of the bylaws, this particular committee. Okay. So it, we, I think that what we would need to do is probably, uh, we would probably want to go back to them to discuss you know, either removing this or changing it because before we submit the, this to them for approval. So if there's a desire to either remove it altogether, then I can initiate that discussion to see how if there's going to be any opposite, opposition to that or what that feedback would be. Well, you know, based on our, our last conversation, if we put it into our bylaws, then it's our obligation to do this. And so I would take this out of our bylaws with knowing that it's in out of our policies, knowing that it's in our bylaws, with with the note to them that, that we have taken this out because of... Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but I always have assumed that this committee was kind of like the one that that's in the medical staff bylaws, that they can ask for a meeting and it's defined, but it isn't required that we could ask to have a meeting with the two of the trustees, of two of the soups, but it isn't required, or do you not really see any utility for it? In other words, you could define it, but say it's only an as-needed type of structure. Well, again, this, my understanding, the county wanted this. And so, and we agreed, and we, you know, essentially, it was already there. That in there. Right. This one was already there. It wasn't added in the last. No, no, no. The they wanted to keep it. Is yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. So. So no standing schedule. It, it is if it's a standing committee. It's required. Well, yeah. Yeah. Four times a year. No. Okay. So that's how we'll proceed with that. Um, any other, uh, uh, anything else on the committees? 
You want us to look this over and then give you feedback? Yeah, if there's additional feedback as well, too. Okay. I was just trying to hide it. And then the last thing I said is the education uh, piece, whether or not you want to include anything specifically in here, outlining educational requirements, um, whatever those might be, you know, requiring that you know, trustees attend you know, a, a governance institute training on an annual basis or anything along those lines. It's, yeah, it's up to you guys. Do you? Well, do you want to clarify that that's, that's available or that, that trustees should or may take advantage of educational opportunities? Well, that, that's the question. I don't know. What yeah, well, I think that kind of wording, you know, that they're encouraged and should take advantage and um, administration provide opportunities for the board to, in fact, do those things. Um, we already, um, we already Suzanne already sent out a thing asking if we'd had our, if we met our requirement for. Yeah, you set it. A, you set it as a goal for this. This. So it's a goal. Right. It was. As a goal is not in your policy. So now the question is, do you want to put it in the policy? Yes. That's the question. That's the question. Let's do it as a goal. Okay. So I'll include the other language. Yeah, I was just very autocratic about that one. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Sorry, guys. No problem. Didn't. Okay. Uh, any other comments or questions that you know jump out right now? Um, I just wanted to, in the agreements for better communication, unless we're going to talk about that specifically. I, uh, nope. Um, just their um, number, I still agree with it. I think it's it's great, but I'm, I'm looking at number three on page 15 and I wonder if that should be kind of um, separated out trustees are expected to come to meetings to come to meetings period are expected to I wonder if, if we should specify that um, in-person attendance is expected I think that's a huge challenge I do I'm, I'm one of the most guilty parties in that realm because I have travel for my work and I need the ability to right, be able to call. Right. But I'm thinking more of it like if you were going to be traveling for a year or six months or something, well, then I that would have to, I, I, would, I would feel irresponsible staying on the board if that was the case. But I think there are these periods during the year where it's just really right. intensive. Right, and I've missed meetings myself. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I, I'm not anticipating that every trustee would be at every meeting, but I'm just wondering if it would be um, less burdensome for trustees who join the board or for trustees who are on the board to have something in writing that says, you know, to clarify that the expectation is that you are at the meeting, not that if you're at all possible or period. If you, for if you're going to miss, it, on boards that I've been in, if you miss two meetings or three meetings in a row, then it's seen as a, either a lack of um, participation or in some parts of, um, I mean, in, as I read parts of the um, Robert's Rules of Order and the Brown Act, it, it says that trustees shall be, or board members shall be at meetings, meaning physically at meetings. So I am um, in participating in staffing boards. Most of the time, 
I know in Congress, a lot of Congress people don't always show up at their meetings, but it's kind of important, I think, for us, not that you can't get the same information if you call in, but especially for committees, it's more difficult to get things done, I think, if you're, if you're um, not available. So. Maybe maybe we word it in a way that says so we can we can validate what Maria is saying relative to the to the call the availability to call in that the tele right. the telecommunication um, is an exception rather than the rule and so it allows then for us to monitor that somebody can in fact if they're traveling call into a meeting but if they are. If it is now they're calling in every meeting, then then that's beginning to be the rule and not the exception. So maybe that kind of wording would, would that right. be helpful? Right. Something like if a well, for example, number three, uh, saying that trustees are expected to come to meetings prepared. Come to meetings means come to meetings. So maybe that isn't appropriate. I mean, I, I if I call into a meeting, I'm not coming to the meeting. I'm coming to it, um, you know, I'm coming by phone, but... Uh, Maybe it should be trustees are expected to participate in meetings, be prepared to participate fully in meetings, whether they are well, let's teleconferencing just add, Let's just or, add another sentence to that. So they come to meetings prepared, and, and telecommunication meetings uh, should be limited and not, and not frequent or something. should be infrequent. Sure. I, I, that's fine. I mean, we can say that that's, that's fine with me. I don't even, we don't even have to change it. I just thought maybe being more... Um, putting the burden more on trustees. If if a trustee expects to miss more than two meetings in a row because of other obligations, then um, they should meet with the chair or meet, you know that there should be some obligation for trustees if they know that they're not going to be at meetings for three or six months or something. I mean, I think there's a small difference here in the sense that missing a meeting is if you participate by phone, you're not technically missing a meeting, right. but as they said, on an extended basis, if that is so, come to meetings prepared, but if telecommuting should not be the difference. So I, I, but I have a really different perspective about telemeetings. I have to do that all the time, and there is a lot of work that gets done by teleconference. My capacity to be sitting in somewhere on the phone with my screen up looking at the content does not preclude me from doing my job. If that were the case, then I wouldn't be able to work. So I, I think we need to say you must be an active participant at each meeting, and if you're going to be away, completely away, that makes sense to me, that there be some question being asked of a person who can't at all attend in any capacity for, say, three consecutive meetings or so. And there's circumstances. We're having one of those situations among our board now, and we're all in agreement to allow that to happen. Um, we're not. Well, that's, that's, we're not. that's okay. yeah, I mean, that's right. my issue there. That's okay. the really issue. We're okay. not. We're we're not. not. Then, then it should just simply <clears throat> be one of full attention and participation in the meetings, and if you're not going to be able to attend three, whatever the number is, then there needs to be a conference with the chair for further permission, accommodation, discussion of what is the right uh, resolution of that. But to say that we can't participate 
Oh, son. no, I didn't mean yeah. to suggest that at yeah. all. And I, but on the other hand, you know, I don't, uh, personally, I mean, if, if someone is going to be appointed to the board, I, I, I would, it is a voluntary position, and I expect that they would have time to do it, not just say, well, right. I'm going to be on the board and I can just call in when I have, no, you really. know. And you certainly don't do that. I mean, you, I, I'm not, I have no concern about your participation, whether, or even the fact you're here you're here 90% of the time or more. I try to so. be, but it's been really tough in the last month, and I have to admit that. And my preference is not to miss it. Uh, and I guess the one, you know, funny thing is about the Brown Act that I need to put a sign outside my door at the hotel that I'm having this meeting, and that's a little odd. Um, or at the Starbucks or wherever it is that you might have <laughs> a chance to find. So, so might I suggest that adding a paragraph that would basically identify the preference for attending meetings in person and uh, the requirement to notify the board president if a meeting will be missed altogether. Right. I think we already have that the, that the notification needs to be that we're going to miss the meeting. So that's already in our, in our, uh, right. in our agreements. But this is our, our expectations for communication. And so I would, I like it there to say that um, board members are expected whenever possible to be to attend meetings in person, you know, and and if it's not possible, then that goes to either if if there are circumstances that would preclude a board member from attending a meeting, then the telecommunication, you know, is available, and if a board member is unable to attend um, a number three, I would say three consecutive meetings, or they they know in advance that they can't attend at three or more consecutive meetings, then it's time for some discussion with um, the chair, because that's a capacity issue, for, in my opinion. So what we could do um, is, I don't want to uh, stop the, the dialogue, obviously an important conversation for the board to have, um, uh, but um, understanding that this is a discussion and, and no action is taken today, we, we could uh, uh, try to uh, craft uh, some language. It, it seems like, if I hear you correctly, there's no it seems like nobody's uh, uh, uncomfortable with uh, using non-in-person means of uh, attending meetings as a as a sort of ad hoc you know I need to do this to kind of fulfill my role uh, but but there's there is some sweet spot of, of a prolonged either absenteeism or use of non-in-person uh, uh, mechanisms to engage that that would be of concern to a, a board's ability to conduct its business so uh, we could try to uh, craft some something for you to uh, consider and then uh, uh, modify as necessary to kind of meet That'd the spirit be great. of what you have to do. That, that sounds mm -hmm. good. Let me just ask a quick question. Uh, 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? Because right. there's only one <laughs> way to, to be at meeting. <laughs> but I'm getting the idea that there, it's more and more a standard th that you can participate in a meeting until the limit, you know. Mm -hmm. From, from another site, mm -hmm. and whether we want to preclude our members from taking advantage of that to a great extent, or, because I agree that it, it being in the same room is always preferable, but it is becoming much more acceptable, I think. It. And, and I, that's the impression I get, that, that, that there's no fundamental objection to people doing this. We understand that uh, many, many of you, in fact, the majority of you are busy professionals, uh, uh, so we want professionals 
to be able to participate in the board uh, and bring your your talents and expertise. Uh, so we want to be able to accommodate that. But but it, what I hear you saying is at some point, uh, and that point is subject to your deliberation, uh, whether it's three meetings or three months, because you meet a lot. Uh, so so it could right. be that three meetings could be two weeks for somebody to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. which is not. That and it's bad. a it's a matter of. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm just, my point was, you know, we, we, we can try to craft something for you so that you actually have a starting point of, a, of something to say, well, that feels right, or we should ratchet it up or down. And we're a public body. It's a matter of perception, too. You know, if we were just having a meeting, an ad hoc committee or a meeting about the policy that may or may not be public, that's one thing. But we are a public body, and and you don't see the, the city council or the board of supervisors calling in. Maybe they do, but, you know. It, it, so uh, we are kind of have a little bit higher standard, in my opinion, to meet for. Can I add, though, I think if the person has missed a certain number of meetings, and Mike, maybe this is language uh, that needs to be thought about very carefully, it seems that the board chair should have the ability to ask the person for clarification about their commitment or what have you, and if there is an issue, the board chair needs to come back to the board and say, we, we have a problem, or there is a concern, this isn't going to be resolved, and we may need to allow this person to step off. It, it does feel like there has to be a check and balance somewhere. Um, maybe it's not the chair, maybe it's the executive committee, but the chair or, or someone. Mm-hmm. And in that way... Um, if they miss three meetings and, and it's not an issue, then okay, they've gotten permission to keep moving forward. But if it is an issue, who's, who's got the authority to intervene? Exactly. And, and I agree, but I, I, the reason I brought it up here is because I want to give, put a little burden or, or place some expectation upon us, yeah. upon trustees as well, to not wait till Michelle calls me and says, you know, you haven't, haven't seen you for since last year, any <laughs> chance you're going to... Yeah. So, so if I could just, on page 4, under uh, G, uh, provides that a violation of the policy is grounds for removal of a trustee or discipline of an employee up to and including termination of employment. And then in uh, the second paragraph, it says that, you know, upon, uh, if there's a report of a violation by a trustee, that the CEO and general counsel will assist the president in conducting an appropriate inquiry and then referring the matter to the board for action. So... I'm not sure if we're saying that we should modify this section. No, uh, no, we're not saying that. Language okay. on what uh, it's, would be it's in our in, it's in our uh, rules of agreement. I think if you put it in here, I, I'm not suggesting. I'm yeah, just, no, I'm just th- we're to not clear. we're not talking about okay. that. And and um, I think your suggestion, perhaps you and I, Del Vecchio, could work out some language and then get it online to the rest of the board. Tracy's. I think is legitimate position as is Maria's, and so I think we can kind of combine. My 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 concern is that um, when a board member takes up residence someplace else over a long period of time, he he in essence brings question about about his residence in Alameda and serving on Alameda committees, and so there's a whole other factor that we've got to. We've got to consider. So let's let's move this to you. You and I can work something out, and then we can add it to the November November meeting. Okay. Okay. All right. Any anything else? So on this, a, a small side note on this sure. issue. If there is a way to improve the telecommunications uh, mode method that we use when somebody's calling in, like yeah. could they Skype in? 
Like, I don't just, use Skype, but uh, use something else. Or, it's just something. I don't know, what, I don't know yeah. what it is. I just I can't stand the speakerphone thing. I just it just feels the, like they're not there. Yeah. And it's very and then, hard to chair a meeting. And, with and, somebody yeah, and doing I mean, that. is there a better is there a yeah. better telemethod? I mean, there is. There are there are video there are there is video technology that we can explore. The point is is whether you know we, we uh, depends on where we're meeting in the capacity of that room to actually accommodate. Right. So, so we can look at the yeah. 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 Someone is yeah, on the screen, then you can't actually look at slides on the screen, you know, or you know that sort of thing. Give them their own screen. I was saying there there are there are ways we yeah. could we could look into there it. There are some yeah. technologies out there that sure. are used in Sonic homes on our right. sure. for video conferencing. And it does add a dimension. Yeah. You're only using a telephone. Right. But also depends their capabilities on their end. Right. You, you have to have that enough is, bandwidth, yeah. broadband, yeah. in order to support having the video conferencing part. But yeah. So we can we can look at. I FaceTime with my college student in New York, so I can see what color he's. I'm being autocratic. We're going to move this on. <laughs> okay. I'm moving to the next item. So the uh, last item is that there are uh, is an action item. Sorry. There are two trustees uh, who are up for a reappointment. There's a memo uh, in the packet which outlines um, the information that goes to the qualifications and the recommendation is that both uh, Trustee Banerjee and Trustee DeVries be reappointed to another term. So, And I do want to make a correction that Trustee Banerjee is, it, it's not 90%, but 95%, and so we need to make that correction on the memo, that her attendance has been uh, over 95% and not 90%. So um, just want to make give you credit for your attendance there. <laughs> um, and so we have two, um, two reappointments. I need a... So moved. Thank you. Second. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure about Joe, but other than that, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Okay, uh, all those in favor of reappointing our two, our two trustees? Aye. Aye. Thank you. It's that beard. That starts it all. Okay. I'm, shall I move it to you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to quickly move it, uh, uh, turn it over to Dr. Jamaluddin and uh, Karen and uh, uh, Ken, is he or Adrian, who's, who's joining us? Adrian's going to join us? I can start, yeah. Still good morning, I guess, for another 15 minutes. Uh, shifting shifting my mindset from behavioral health to the just culture, they are totally related. Uh, so uh, I'm, uh, we're going to talk really about uh, the just culture and uh, you know, its implementation, uh, Dolomita Health System, like how we can uh, build a model for a just culture and the benefits of the just culture. And then we will talk, maybe have a little discussion about the role of the board in this journey. So uh, the just culture really goes back to 1999 when Dr. Lucien Leap, who uh, is professor at Harvard School of Public Health, he stood in front of the Congress uh, at the health uh, care quality improvement, and he stated a very important statement. He said the single greatest impediment to error prevention in the medical industry is that we punish people for making mistakes. And, uh, you know, at that time, the, we realized that in the industry we had uh, preventable harm to the patients, which is really mind-blowing in terms of its magnitude, 
compared to other industries. Uh, so uh, thus, the just culture to air is human, and the just culture start to be talked about. How are we going to deploy it in in healthcare? But just to define it at the high level, uh, the just culture is you know image imaging how, what it will do, it will create a learning culture that is constantly improving and oriented toward patient safety. So that's a very important point about the just culture. Second important point is uh, really what we, the word balance here, balance of accountability for both individual who are doing the work and the organizational or the organization responsibility for designing and improving systems in the workplace. So two very important points is the continuous learning environment and the balance of accountability of the individual choices and the choices of the organization in terms of designing the workplace and the systems and the processes. So uh, we like really to show a video uh, from uh, about the story of a nurse here uh, it's a few minutes, it won't take long, but it really puts a context about what the just culture is about. Can you show us the story? The patient care technician came to me and she told me I need to let you see the screen. She showed me the glucometer. She saw the word high flash on the screen, and that's what she assumed was the result that she had. She's like, I just feel like my blood sugar is really high. She's like, I just feel, I don't feel good, I know my body. And so there wasn't really any suspicion that it would be low, and so when this error message comes up, it kind of confirmed that. So we rechecked her um, blood sugar, and the same, the same thing popped up. So I, I covered her with some insulin, and I called the physician. And by the time I got her back in bed, she became like non-responsive. Ended up being a rapid response and requiring a transfer of the patient to the intensive care unit. The nurse had um, misread the glucometer and called the physician, asked for insulin on multiple occasions, and the patient had a severe hypoglycemic event and had to go to the ICU before it was caught. During the rapid response, we checked the glucose twice, I believe, and the same thing kept popping up, the screen that said glucose greater than 600. The next day is when I received the call that the whole time her blood sugar was actually critically low. Shortly after this particular incident, another nurse made the same error where the machine gave, it was an actual low value, but the machine read off this alert saying for a high, do X, Y, and Z. It never came to mind that the glucometer was incorrect. It was probably the worst experience I've ever had in my professional career. The nurse manager called our human resources department, said, explain the error. This is what happened. Uh, we didn't fully understand the ramifications of this piece of equipment and the message that it displayed. And they said, well, I think you need to suspend her until, a until an investigation is completed. I felt like I was talked to like a five-year-old. I wasn't talked to like an adult. I mean, I'm a nurse because I come to take care of people. I come to do my job. I'm very passionate about what I do. And for a long time, it really shook me. Like when I came to work, I was scared to like take care of patients and I was really apprehensive about everything I was doing. Um, I wasn't really confident anymore. It really shook me to the core. I questioned it with my boss and she had the suggestion um, to invite 
some of the staff from the Human Factors Engineering Department in MI2 to come over and help us at least evaluate the process. I got a call from the chief nursing officer at one of our hospitals saying that they had had a case. There was a design issue that might have contributed to the, to the case and they wanted us to take a closer look at it from a human factors engineering, safety engineering standpoint. It quickly became apparent that there was more to the story than just um, that, that she had made a mistake and that there was a lot more, that it wasn't just her, it was the actions of lots of people that led to this hazard and it certainly could happen again. You can't fault any one individual. That's a process problem that needed to be addressed and the more we thought about it, the more we decided that, that we needed to fix the process. The concept of high reliability, the concept of systems problems versus um, people problems, the concepts involved in human factors engineering, they become very familiar to us those of us who are talking about them all the time, they're not as familiar to the people on the front lines. Our job is to be able to share that in an effective way, one in which they can actually use the tools and change outcomes. The leadership, when they saw our analysis of the case, they supported the fact that Annie should not have been disciplined and they reversed the discipline. And that was doing the right thing. And I think that sent a very important message to the staff at this hospital that the leadership supports them and takes the systems approach to managing error. There was a team there and they were all like nodding and they were all like validating. They were like, okay, so you know, you're, you're not incompetent. Everything you're saying makes complete sense. And I've, it was just like, oh, it's like I could take a breath and be like, okay, I'm not, I'm not crazy. And then when I was told by my manager, she pulled me in her office after it and she was like, we're gonna take away the discipline. She was like, they actually said that we didn't treat you so fairly, and um, that was that made me feel better, and that was like a positive aspect of the experience. We need everybody in our system, actually everybody in the healthcare industry nationally, to understand the systems approach and understand just culture, so that when we have near misses and when we have small little noticed hazards and unsafe conditions that we encounter day to day in our job, that we report it and that we look for trends and where we can, we fix the system so that the next time that same error or near miss happens, we won't injure a patient. Thank you. So, uh, So uh, the concept and philosophy is balances the need for an open and honest reporting environment with the end of quality learning environment and culture. And uh, while the organization has a duty and responsibility to employees, and ultimately to patients, all, all employees are held responsible for the quality of their choices. <coughs> Just culture requires a change in focus from errors and outcome to system design and management of the behavioral choices of all employees. The benefits will be a constant improvement in systems and processes because employees will be engaged and they admit to a mistake or error or bad choice so the system can be improved and help in better choices. It will be a learning organization that learns from its mistake and near misses. Profitability through efficient and proactive risk management and high employee morale since every person is treated fairly and is, is empowered to do the best within their position. The model acknowledges that humans are destined to make mistakes 
And because of this, no system can be designed to produce perfect results. Given that premise, human error and adverse events should be considered outcome to be measured and monitored and with the goal of being error reduction rather than error concealment. This is from David uh, Marks in 2001. Just, you know, in terms of putting this into a graphic way, there is a support of the system and safety, and there is the, the approach to blame flee culture and punitive culture. It should be a balance, and there is a sweet point. So if you do a lot of support and there is no accountability, you know, uh, th there will be no, no, no good effect. So there is really this balance or sweet spot where we are supporting the, 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 the system or improving the system, supporting the people, and holding people accountable for their choices. So from the system reliability, no system can deliver 100% error-free, but we want to tend towards 100%. So we, we need to keep on improving our system and learning from its, its weaknesses, L learning what is the interaction of the system with the human. This is what we say human factor engineering. Create barriers to prevent failures and eliminate barriers, you know, that will help the, the flow. Recovery to capture failures before they become critical and redundancy to limit effects of failure. From the human reliability, we want to look at the tools, equipment, the design, the task, the standard work, the qualification, the skills, the perception, the individual factor, the environment, the organizational environment. And this will make our system more and more tending towards 100% reliability. So when we look at, uh, at the behaviors, we talk about human error. And when an error happens, we, you know, after collection of facts and, and studying uh, what has led to this error, we look at our processes, procedure, training, and design. And in this situation, like in the video, you know, we console the person because it wasn't really the mistake of the nurse. It was the design of the, of the, of the tool, of the machine. There are sometimes there are at risk, at risk behavior, and this is when uh, people uh, take a choice where it puts the patients at risk. And in this situation, we do coaching for the individual. And then there are reckless behavior where people, uh, you know, consciously disregard uh, like a reasonable, uh, reasonable choice. And uh, in this situation, we take the disciplinary approach. So the just culture promotes a safe culture. It balances the need for an open and honest re, uh, reporting environment to the end of quality learning. When we look at, at errors that happens in healthcare, not all errors leads to harm of the patients. And what we get at risk in general in healthcare is mostly the harm, the errors that led to harm of the patients. When we institute a just culture, people are going to speak about all errors and about all real misses. And then we'll be able to learn from this in order to redesign our, our, our system. So in conclusion, if you look at it like at, at, this, at this diagram, um, we want to create an open and fair and just culture so people can bring up all these issues. And we want to create a learning culture and design safe system and manage behavioral choices. And as we do this, our, our error will decrease, our system will become more effective, and our behavioral choices will, will lead to a much, much safer uh, system. I want to uh, give it here to Karen to talk to us about our current state and future state for, for our journey. Uh, thank you. So, um, 
I love those slides, and I think it provides a really nice kind of overview for the, for the board around where we want to be. So I'm going to talk a little bit about our current state. So um, it's really important that we have the ability to, um, to get information and to learn about our mistakes. And so um, our current state at AHS, I'm really, really happy and very thankful to the board that we are in the final phases of rolling out our new Midas Plus um, incident reporting system, which has the capability to monitor data alerts <coughs> us if we, um, statistically, if we have things that we might need to look into. But also, um, for the first time, we have one incident reporting system. So we have an electronic high-tech system where any staff member or physician can get on our intranet and they can alert us immediately. So prior to this year, we had three separate systems. Some, some of our incident reporting was happened on paper, and um, the immediacy of reporting wasn't there. So this really opens up a door, new possibilities. And the reason we're having this conversation now is because I fully anticipate that we are going to start seeing many, many more um, incidents of reporting, and we're going to have a lot more information available to us. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have more events happening. We are going to be finding out about more events, and that's definitely what we want to do. Um, so there's a lot of discussion at the executive team level about we have this new tool. Um, we know there's a body of research and evidence-based practices out there. And, and in the five years I've been here, we have come a long way, but we still have a long a long way to go. We have many opportunities to enhance where we are. Measuring our culture of safety, we do have some opportunities there. We do measure it. Um, and every year that I've been here, every, we measure it approximately every two years, we've improved it. But there, is, there are better tools. And there also is the opportunity for us to align our culture of safety survey that tells, basically the culture of safety survey, um, it, it queries our staff to say, you know, do you feel safe to report? Um, do you feel we have a safe environment? Do you feel you're encouraged to report? Things of that nature. And we have a much better opportunity to align our employee engagement um, process with our culture of safety survey. So HR and quality are talking about what that might look like in the future. The employee engagement survey has had much, much higher response rate and much more rigor. So we're feeling that we really need to partner the two, um, and we're having some discussion about that. Some discussion about that, um, and we're really spending some time right now prioritizing what we're going to do for the next nine months, the next eighteen months, the next three to five years around our culture. Um, next slide, please. So, what should it look like? Um, and I can tell you, if, you know, when an incident happens, these are the things on the left. Um, these are all the components that should happen. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about the traditional response. And when I say traditional response, I, I have myself have been in six major organizations throughout my career. And all of these things under traditional response are not limited to Alameda Health System. These are things um, that happen um, um, currently. But as I'll talk about in a little bit, there is a lot of knowledge, a lot of organizations that have evidence-based practice that we can draw from, and we're in the process of, of looking at that. So, you know, incident reporting by clinicians, a traditional response, and this happens throughout the nation, is it's often very delayed, and it's often absent. And I have found that in pretty much every organization that I've been in. You know, part of our issue was that we had three separate systems. So with MIDAS, 
the, um, our ability to actually look at these things much more quickly will be enhanced. So the vision for the future is really immediate review and immediate response of incidents as they happen and prioritization and escalation. Um, communication with patients and families. I can tell you, you know, I've, I've been a nurse for 30 years, and, you know, um, traditionally in med schools and in nursing schools, you know, transparency with the patients and the families was not necessarily what we were taught to do. Um, so having open, honest, immediate communication with the family is um, it's a transition in our culture and, and healthcare in general. And so really the, the industry wants to go to a more transparent and ongoing process. So if something happens, we should be talking with the patient within an hour. It's their right to know if somebody got the wrong medication. And we need to, um, to give our team the skills and resources so they can do that in an empathetic and caring way. Then analysis is really, um, when you look at root causes traditionally, and you saw this in the Annie video, you know, the first thing that people do is, oh, must have been the nurse, must have been the physician, disciplinary action, put something in their credential file. And that's very easy to do because you can check the box and move on to the next error. But that is not going to help us actually figure out what the root cause was and um, what, did, what can we do in the future to mitigate the potential for something like that happening with the glucometer or whatever the event might be. Um, another paradigm shift is around quality improvement, and I have seen this in every organization I've been in. And the, the most frequent response is, okay, let's do education, let's do an in-service, let's do provider training. That's not quality improvement. So really looking at solutions and, and taking learnings from events that have happened and um, building those into operations, either through lean tools or other evidence-based practices, it's something that we do in some events, but we don't consistently do it in all events. And we really haven't had the infrastructure in place to organize and do it systematically. So, so we now, like I said, with, with having some new tools, having our executive leadership team on board, and having these discussions, we'll be able to plan how we can do this in a more systematic way. Um, another interesting piece is financial resolution. So um, in the industry in large, um, and we've had discussion with our um, insurance agency, Beta Healthcare, um, we only paid a claim if, if there was a lawsuit. And so there is a movement right now in literature to support that if we engage quickly, if we apologize, if we proactively address the needs of the patient, so if something happened to a patient, they're not able to care for their child, um, we make provisions to help them get support so they can heal, things like that go a long way. And, and actually, it doesn't need to be financial resolution. A lot of patients... Um, the resolution can be they don't want this to happen again to a family member. Um, they want the opportunity to speak to the medical staff in grand rounds, and they want um, you know, a lecture or a chair um, position named after their loved one. And that really goes a long way. So it doesn't just need to be a financial payout. And once again, the evidence support that doing small acts like that, engaging quickly, is very, very effective and actually can lead to financial savings because people are not compelled to sue. Um, and then care for the caregivers. This is something, and you saw this with Annie, um, and I have been in a variety of organizations, and this is something that um, 
um, is at different stages and different philosophies throughout the country as to programs that are available. So you can have employee assistance. But care for the caregivers. You saw what Annie said. She came to work. She lost her confidence. She was um, upset. She, she didn't feel grounded. So she's going back to work, and she's taking care of other patients. And so that really, unless we have some kind of a way to provide support and say, you know what, we understand. We're going we're gonna to be with you. We're going to support you through this, and it's offered immediately. Um, that in itself is a risk. And I can tell you that um, our residents and our medical staff are in strong support of us figuring out in the future how we can better support. So um, I'll talk in just a little a second. There, there are resources out there and programs and templates. So that's another consideration. Maybe not in the next month, but you know, over the next two to three years, building steadily our ability to provide kind of incrementally care for the caregivers and what we can do to support them. And then patient and family involvement, very little involvement across the nation. And I think there is a movement to get patients more engaged. And in the last five years, there has been, you know, as everyone knows, a consumer movement to be more engaged, to advocate for yourself and your family member. So traditionally, you know, when there's an event, we don't go and we don't involve the patient or their family or loved one in an RCA. The movement is in the vision for across the country is for them to be fully engaged, for us to have immediate disclosure, and to bring them into the process. And that's very scary for organizations, and it's a very different paradigm. Next slide, please. What's RCA again? I'm sorry. So, so an RCA, um, an RCA is a root cause analysis. So when an event happens, um, depending on a variety of different criteria. Um, about the event, if it's a sentinel event or something that should never happen, like we operate on the wrong body part, and there's a long list of those things, um, how we address the event will be dealt with differently based on the potential for harm throughout the organization. So an RCA is something that we do for events that either meet criteria defined by joint commission and or if the executive team or leadership team feels that this is of such significance that we have to decide what the root cause was so we can um, help to mitigate it from happening again quickly. So I put this up here because on the agenda we're talking about uh, Beta Heart, and that happens to be one program. But um, I, I wanted you to have this slide because you can get online and you can Google any one of these organizations and you will see a plethora of resources, templates, evidence-based practices. So we have a multitude of resources that are available to us in the healthcare industry. It's almost overwhelming. So the executive team right now is exploring how we want to put together a, um, a comprehensive program and a plan over the next, you know, the next three years, um, with an emphasis right now in the next nine months. What do we want to do? What infrastructure can we put in realistically with all of our initiatives going on? And so we're having um, active discussion with, um, and, we, and we do a variety of evidence-based practices from all of these different organizations. But for the executive team, it's really about us looking at um, a consistent, reliable, comprehensive way to do all of the things consistently that Dr. Jamalindu talked about. 
Um, and like I said, I think from my perspective, having the Midas um, Plus software, is a, it's a door opener for us. And it allows us to do things like we haven't done before in an organized and consistent way for such a big system. Next slide, please. So um, if we look at this and, you know, what we want out of our future, um, this is, um, these are the components or the domains that really we need to focus on over the next three to five years. And, you know, our plan is, and, I, and I'll introduce you to Adrian Smith in a little bit, is for us to really sit down and be very thoughtful with our strategic business units, with um, the organization, about how we want to address each of these domains. And I w won't read each one of these to you, but fundamentally, we really have to address our culture. And we know in the past, our, our staff have told us, you know what, I feel like if I report something, I feel like I might get punished. And that is the, probably the number one answer across the country. So there's things that we can do when we're exploring what those things are, such as you know, really looking at, at maybe doing a much more comprehensive analysis when we are assessing our culture, aligning it with our engagement strategies, and then being very thoughtful about uh, being transparent with our with our frontline staff, and it takes a lot of energy and resources and coordination to share that information. Um, and across the organization over the last five years, I think in some areas we've done it, and in other areas we just we just have not. It's it's another you know important thing to do, but one on a list of many things that we have to do. So we're you know in the future really engaging our frontline staff and staff and being transparent about that. And then adopting a culture and philosophy of just culture. If you look at our policies and procedures right now, um, the, the language in there um, is, is pr probably not reflective of what we want with regard to a just culture. So, you know, staff are not gonna report if they don't feel like they, that there are clear rules that we will treat them fairly, and then if they intentionally didn't do something, that we're gonna work with them to find out what we can do to mitigate that in the future. So we have some work to do with actually setting up the infrastructure. Um, an event investigation and care for the caregiver, I think I talked about that, and then communication and transparency, and then I think um, early resolution, so we talked about some of these things. Um, next slide, please. So um, just very briefly and in closing, um, talking about really rebuilding our foundation, I shared with you that um, you know, we have Minus Plus, our new incident reporting. I wanna introduce to you Adrian Smith. So Adrian, if you could stand, back, uh, stand up in the back. Adrian came to us as a staff nurse um, almost 10 years ago. He's um, been with the organization 10 years. He actually was the, the leader who was responsible for coordinating our ATR. He has worked in the risk department before and we are thrilled to have him on board to help us lead our efforts as we um, programmatically come up. Um, and then um, I talked about many of these things before. Next slide. And so really in the role in the board, the role of the board, I, I think um, what we need of you is really to remain educated um, about the importance of a safe and just culture and then ask for updates. So now that we have this new resource that you invested in, you know, we will be bringing you more infrequent information. Um, and I think the last bullet point um, here really speaks to it. So you're gonna be seeing more information and you're gonna see um, what might look like more events, but indeed it's really us shifting our culture so people feel safer to, safer to report, um, not necessarily that we are having more incidents.
So are there any questions? We do have some questions. Okay. Maria first. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is uh, a real promising practice for our um, institutions to adopt uh, throughout the system. Um, two questions. Um, one is that I would like to see a regular component of our, our quality committee, again, review these results as part of that committee because I think that is where this information should be processed. Okay. Number two, um, I have said that we may want to look at this for other reasons, but this particular presentation brings this to mind, and that is we do not have an ombudsperson in our entire system. One person who can be the independent individual who directly comes to our CEO and our board chair, perhaps, to simply alert uh, us about uh, a grievance, an issue around this culture, uh, just culture. And, and the reason I bring it up on this count is I think we're doing a lot to shift our culture tremendously, but I worry that this is such a profound change that you need someone who can absolutely go directly, you can absolutely go to directly without fear of reprisal, without fear of some kind of you know, punishment, to be able to say, I did all of the things that I was told to do, I reported all of these things, and I still got dinged for it. Or I'm no longer being assigned to these kinds of cases, or I'm just getting the cold shoulder from people. This is a huge change. And there's one other factor woven in, and that is, I don't think people talk about it enough, but medical errors occur greatly when there is a cultural difference between the patient and the provider. Language barriers, cultural differences about perceived instruction, perceived uh, you know, uh, steps to take care of the patient, so that's a separate layer that is not represented here, and even further why I believe we need an ombudsperson for the system. So, so I would just add, we actually, in, in risk, we do have um, somebody who is designated to, it, um, to help patients. So if there is a concern, somebody in my department actually um, can meet with the patient. And at each of the facilities, there is there are there are people that are designated to take kind of frontline complaints and issues, and if it goes beyond that, then it would be escalated to us. I would agree with you that you know that's something, especially as we anticipate getting more um, um, open air culture up and we get more information that we might want to evaluate. Well, for staff, yes, yeah. someone that's the ombudsman. Yeah, yeah, the ombudsperson for, for staff. For staff. staff. Oh, you're talking about for staff. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. What's our union for? No, no, no. <laughs> no we should. Uh, no, yeah. No. So, more, I mean, actually, the concept of an ombudsman right. is a universal person that anyone can go to about mm -hmm. a perceived problem with the system, whether it's an outside or client or an internal employee or right. right? I mean, really, the concept of an ombudsman is right. a little bit more universal than that. Yeah, but I think with the just culture, I mean, uh, I, I, I agree with the concept, but uh, we are going to deploy escalation guidelines that anybody can escalate up to Del Vecchio if there is an issue 
that has to do with safety or with violation of policy or with unfairness. Uh, and they, people know that they can escalate to me, and that's 24-7 when there is an issue as such. So we want to have this, like, but before we have this escalation, you know, spread, we need really to be clear about the just culture and the non-punitive approach to, uh, to whether it's error or behavioral issues and to look at them from the system perspective and from uh, behavioral choices that people have. So uh, already people are bringing issues to me, like disrespectful communication. It's one of patient safety issues. And in organization where they have reached this level, it's the number one cause of patient safety. It's called disrespectful communication. How can you measure this? How can you report it in a way? How can you address it you know, with the specific people in a just culture way? You know, this is what we have to learn to do. So, so the data on that is really specific. I, right. I understand that something like 82% of nurses are treated or, or given verbally negative comments about their um, uh, interactions um, and uh, throughout the week or, or throughout some, some sort of period, which is a very high rate. And my, my comment is those are such basic principles of good employee-employer relations, and we have not dealt with them. Right. Now we're improving and we're, we're introducing something that I agree is, is terrific to do, but our culture has not um, necessarily adapted to those things very well, otherwise this wouldn't be happening. So I, I'm all, all I'm asking is that at some point we recognize we're presenting to all of our staff this opportunity to be more transparent, to be open about these issues of uh, some error or some concern about an error. That's a huge step for somebody to take, and they may take it. Right. They get punished right. for, for, for bringing it up. That's going to shut people down. We, yeah. we want to have the best possible mechanisms to encourage the just culture and protect those who take the leap of faith First, right. right, the first ones. Yeah. Can I just say a few words about the union issue? Uh, I mean, if you look, you know, at the history of the union, how the union were created. Uh, I I have dealt with the unions, and we started, especially in New York City, you know, with the union doctors' union, and other unions. We started with dealing with grievances and labor issues, and then over time we shifted to dealing to patient care issues. Mm -hmm and how I can use a union on my side to address behavioral issues and training issues towards the patient. And they, they got, because they, they want us to succeed. I mean, the union, if, if we fail, they will fail behind us, right behind us. So really, we need to listen to our frontline uh, workers, and we need to listen to them before they go to the union. And I strongly believe having the just culture allows us to do this. I mean, uh, the, the hierarchical structure that we used in, I mean, healthcare moved into management in the 20th century and maybe late in the 20th century. So it adopted the, the old industry of cars and church and, and farming and, and mass production. So we have a hierarchical structure. Now in the 21st century, we are shifting now towards the lean structure 
of management. This is our, our philosophy. We want to really support the frontline workers, and we want to have bi-directional communication and listen to them before they go to the union. So uh, I, I think that this um, have to kind of go from the current state to the future state and put a just culture, A, it has to, like, every single senior staff has to be a very early adopter for it. I'm part of uh, these hospital learning collaboratives in the southeast, Georgia, Mississippi, and some of the things that they are doing to close the knowing-doing gap, because we know in our head what's right, but then it's the doing that's where they have, you know, two things that you ask every worker is, one is, of course, how do you do your job? But the second thing is, how do you improve on the work that happens? Because if the processes are inefficient, you could do the best job possible. So they have something called the no shame, no blame thing, where frontline folks are really asked to come and not wait for an error to happen, but it builds that learning culture where on a regular basis, people are brought to say, what are they screwing up on, maybe, or what are they seeing inefficiencies? And if they point it out, it's really no retribution. It's actually rewarded in, in many ways in that the no blame, no shame uh, kind of thing of bringing these things right. forward because often they see things at the ground level far better than we do at, the, at that level, and they can see that. So really being able to do right. that. And if they don't hear that constant reinforcement coming from everyone, right. it's, they'll be scared to bring that. So, so we distributed a document about our philosophy here, about when the inevitability of events happening in healthcare. However, when they happen, we have two choices as leadership. One is to blame which is our natural reality, we get angry. This is really emotionally uh, exhausting when something happens. So we want to learn, not to blame, and learn to learn from these events, collecting facts and see what can we learn from them to prevent them. So in, in Alameda Health System, our choice is really to learn and to be collectively accountable for these events. And we want to have transparency about those things and approach them in this, in this way. Uh, I just want to share with you some, like when we talk about system redesign. Uh, in North America, probably about six, seven years ago, I, I can't remember exactly the time, but there was a study that people are run by car, pedestrians are run by car on the walk sign, more than on the walk, no walk sign. So we designed a system where we thwarted the thinking process and the alertness process of our mind, which is thousands of times more effective than the walk sign. Because when we see the walk sign, we stop looking. So we walk, and the statistics show this. And that's why now in many places, if you go in Florida, I don't, I, you probably here also, you see more alerting things when it says walk. Say walk cautiously to alert people to look. So, uh, and, and this is just an interaction between a light and a human being taking his life, crossing the light. So these, these are like the factor engineering that we really need to learn from them in our, you know, reality while we're taking care of patients. So let me 
Now, if you can work to take the cell phone out of their hand while they're crossing, <laughs> that'd be. I, I, I'm learning. I'm working on it. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I think that we've been talking about the just culture at AHS for at least four years, on and off. And I think Michelle is frustrated because you've heard this before and, well, aren't we doing it by now? And I think part of the problem is perhaps turnover of leadership, turnover, lack of complete buy-in from the top level. In order to make this happen, we need to actually do it. And, and it means that we need consistent leadership and knowing that it's not going to work the first ten times and keeping up with it and doing Absolutely. it. And maybe we'll get there in a really meaningful way in about three years. Um, but it, it's, I think there's a skepticism because we've heard this before a little bit, you know, and we haven't actually done it. Uh, the question, Karen, that, that I would have is what, what happened, you know, what I do remember is that at the quality meetings, we used to have those incidents. You had them by patient yeah. number coming in, and you talked about what happened, and then they were going, and you, you measured them high, low, medium, impact in the thing, and then what the resolution was going to be, et cetera. And um, uh, perhaps the MIDAS system now allows us to see whether or not those things are a trend, and then we then we correct systemically some things that continue to occur. But w why did we stop bringing those forward? Because we asked to not hear it all, right? I, I think you know, was, I don't think so. I think we actually, I think, I'm sorry, I, I seem to recall some requests that we pulled back on that side. So those were the peer review reports, and they were really only to do with uh, the core? Right. And the other two medical staffs, and those were only related to medical staff investigations of right. care provided. And right. out of those, I think that in some ways it's one of the few places where there was a, a semblance of this going on, uh -huh. where we uh, were finding systems and making referrals about those systems. If this, uh, uh, the computer isn't working for, for our needs, we want some help here for that. We were, but we were also looking at the medical care that was provided or the nursing care that was provided. Um, and we were giving you those reports. It mm -hmm. was a, a greater level of detail than is usually provided to boards. We weren't getting that from the other two medical staffs. And I guess we just said, let's not be doing this anymore. But um, that report still exists. It goes to MedExec. And, um, so, so Barry, can I interrupt you here? Just, uh, I mean, this is very relevant, uh, very important point. Is the question is where are we inventorying these events? Okay, what are we learning from them, and what have, what has changed? This is what the board should learn should should learn about, mm -hmm. like the top events that happens during a quarter, for example. Because, you know, one month might be too short. And, you know, how, how impactful they are on the patients. What did we learn from them as a system? And what has changed? Sure. And if it, there is no change, then we'll be measuring something to no avail. We need to see what change happened after every single event. And as you said, education is not the answer. And saying it's a human error is not the end of the road. We want to see the change. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I can tell you, so we're required to look at risk management events. So we have reports that actually go up through the quality committee up to the medical staff. When we do analysis, we have, we have had many limitations with the quality and the caliber of the data. So we can make generalizations. We can't drill down. We now have that capacity to do that. With the new system? Yes. Yeah, so, so we, so we are going to engage also the physician leadership and the nursing leadership and the frontline people who are involved in the event to tell us, you know, what should change to make this likelihood of happening almost extremely, extremely low. And one of the things that we talked about when we went through the employee engagement, and I hope you, you as a group will consider, is the trend lines. Mm -hmm. it, it serves no purpose in my mind for an organization to report year after year where things are without being able to see the collective of what, of what the schematic or the improvement has been. And so uh, as a single board member, I would ask that you, you don't send to us uh, you know, a monthly thing without seeing what a trend is. It makes, there's no knowledge in that. There's nothing to hold on to. And so year after year we see those employee reports, unless you collect them and save them and take them home and look to see what, what's happened the year, it serves no purpose. So just food for thought, I just. I have a question. Um, how does this, how will this change um, be related to our regulatory programs and our reviewers. I, I just wonder how if I think um, or I, I, I'm asking when JCO comes in or when there's a, a finding, it often is about a certain practice or a person, even it could be about a certain um, person or a certain group of um, employees. So how would this the no blame or the no the accountability, how would that relate to our... Um... Joint Commission and CMS are extremely supportive of this approach as long as we are addressing it and making changes accordingly. And our, our aim is not only to meet regulatory requirements, we want to excel beyond those requirements and build models of excellence in those areas. But I, I don't know if, uh, if Karen wants to add anything to the regulatory. You deal with them probably more. Well, I, you know, just briefly, um, I would absolutely agree with doc what Dr. Jamaluddin said. The, the regulatory bodies come in and they are picking single incidents. Right. So um, what happens is, is we spend so much time reacting to the things that they happen to find mm -hmm. that we are not stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and proactively looking at what are our biggest opportunities to improve. Well, so how would that, how would we have that opportunity since we'll still have to respond to every JCO finding or every CMS issue that comes up? How will that, excuse me? culture, I think, right? Building that culture. Well, so we won't have to respond to each finding? No, so no, no, no. That's so, so, so we will, and, and, and I would like for this, um, for this board to be prepared because as, as we get more information, we're going to be probably overwhelmed with all the opportunities that we have that we're capturing. Because mm -hmm. all these things are happening right now. We're just not capturing them. But at least it allows us to prioritize and, um, and address the, the bigger trends. But we're all go, always going to have the regulatory bodies. We're always going to have patient mm -hmm. complaints. And the hope is, not the hope, the plan is with time is that we, we can start being more and more and more proactive. We're engaging our frontline teams as problem solvers, and they're giving us information, and we're tackling those issues that are, um, 
that are problematic and far-reaching. Well, to Dr. Jamadi's point, they, the CMS will come in and say, this is the standard, you have to do it this way. And we'll say, well, actually, you know, according to our, our information and according to our front line, it would work better if we did it this way. Are they going to say, sure, go ahead and do it no, that they're way? Not, they're, not that, they're not, they're not that. They have become less prescriptive yeah. as long as we demonstrate. Actually, they take best. They, they take best practices. In my last joint commission, they took about five or six best practices. They published them on their, on their internet site. I, I, would like, I would like to address one issue that was, uh, that was raised by Trustee Hernandez, which is cultural competency. Cultural competency. And it needs to be looked at it as, uh, as, as a separate issue related to this, but it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole issue. I think, you know, um, it is an issue we need to address. I had some discussion with Delvecchio about it and about our workforce, and but we will talk more about about this. I just am simply yeah. going to correct yeah. my own comment. I'm saying that a portion of these can be tied back to cultural differences as well. Right. So we need to understand those two issues may mm -hmm. come up, and we right. need to sort through them and understand right. those. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 12.30. We're a half hour off our, off our time. Okay. And this is great. I, so I don't want to cut off the conversation. I just want to be able to say that um, are you okay with stopping now on this topic? Sure. Do we need a motion? No, no, no. no, no. This no. is a just, discussion. It's, it's just it's, a discussion. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Then what I'm also going to uh, autocratically say <laughs> is instead of 45 minutes for lunch, you only get 30 minutes. <laughs> And uh, we will pick up in 15 minutes so that at the end of the day, um, we, won't, we won't be here at 6. Okay? Yeah. So we're adjourning for lunch, but you only have a half hour for lunch instead of 45 minutes. And let me be clear. So you can uh, enjoy lunches uh, or lunch at your, uh, at your places if you can move things aside or, or back here where there's space. We do have... Uh, uh, one presentation that will happen during lunch and then the other one happens after that. And it's just a, uh, it's a uh, update from the foundation and a, and a, uh, a, a check presentation. Oh, that's right. I'm Deborah. sorry, so, Deborah. So, but we'll take a break now to get lunch and then once we get situated, we'll have Deborah get started. Okay. Thank you. As uh, donors, as trustees, and as friends of our fundraising activity, uh, this is a abbreviated presentation of one that I gave back in June to the Finance Committee, and I believe at that time Trustee Lawrence appreciated it uh, in a manner to have it uh, be uh, presented to you now, but it's much more abbreviated. Um, it's nice to follow a presentation that talks about culture, because we're trying to create a culture of philanthropy at the foundation, and I believe that when you see what we've been able to accomplish in the past few years, you'll agree that we're heading in the right direction. Uh, while we don't have a Midas Plus, we'd like to say we feel we have a Midas Touch in con converting uh, the community support to programs uh, at the uh, health system. Um, this is just a brief overview of how we raise funds. We uh, certainly are in the middle, well, almost at the end now, uh, of a capital campaign for the new ATR equipment and programs at Highland Hospital. Uh, we raise quite a bit of restricted uh, grants for innovative AHA, AHS programs, and I'll share uh, with you uh, in a moment just a, a couple of samples of that. Uh, and unrestricted gifts, these come to us from our golf and gala and uh, through our direct mail appeals. 
And finally, we're adding a in-house major gifts program and plan giving program. We've just launched uh, in our newsletter that is probably in your inbox uh, this weekend a new legacy society, a, a legacy giving circle to uh, attract more bequests. So our capital campaign, we had a $15 million goal. To date, we're at $22.8 million raised. Uh, thank you. <laughs> we're, we're really excited about this. Uh, our gift sources have been from private foundations, locally and nationally, from individuals, the folks I like to call Mr. and Mrs. East Bay, who really care about health in their community, and from uh, the AHS family right here. Um, and a number of our C-suite executives have become uh, major contributors, our board members, our employees, and certainly our MDs. I want to impress on you that in, with this campaign, we have received the largest single gift from a private foundation at $10 million ever, and we've been around for 25 years, the largest single gift from a corporation, $6 million from Kaiser Permanente, and the largest single gift from an individual through an estate gift of $4.4 million. So I think clearly we have created a culture of philanthropy that we want to nurture and grow. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to private grants and the support that's needed uh, for our service to cardiac patients, to high-risk patients, uh, to breast cancer patients, and well-baby family births. These are just a few of the many, uh, 24 or so, uh, grants that we are currently managing a total of $20 million on behalf of programs at the health system. give you an idea what some of those are. This is the uh, Hayward Wellness Grant, the Healthy Eating Program. We received a very generous uh, gift from Kaiser and other uh, foundations to launch this program that is now uh, treating food as medicine. And uh, we just recently had a visit by the uh, Alameda County Board of Supervisors to take a look at this program and see how we can move it to other uh, institutions uh, out into the county. We're really excited about that. It helps avoid childhood obesity and down the road diabetes and heart disease later in life. And I would encourage you to hear from Dr. Chen directly sometime if you can do that. This is our Centering Pregnancy Program. It's, uh, it's taught entirely in Spanish. Uh, the, these women are um, folks who could be high risk if they're not attending to uh, monitoring and, and participating in prenatal health. And they form a support group together. Oftentimes they're not um, having a support group at home or through a spouse or family member. So we fill that gap. And it's really making a difference. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> they added the English one recently. And then, of course, uh, the grant to create the Health Path program to prepare our future workforce. Um, this is a grant that uh, Atlantic Philanthropies gave to us a couple of years ago to launch a new program. It's in partnership with OUSD, and uh, we are currently uh, planning and building a sim lab that will be used by not only the students but our allied health professionals later, but uh, Health Path is the new name for uh, the POP program. So Pipeline for Opportunities, if you don't know that yet. Right. Okay. Thank you. So we also raise funds that are unrestricted. 
Uh, we uh, do that through our golf and gala, which all of you, I believe, have come and, and experienced uh, either one in the last few years. And uh, we also do that through our uh, various um, direct mail appeals, our newsletters, and face-to-face -face requests. We do know that uh, donors like to uh, give restricted gifts, and we are looking at ways to allow them to do that and also meet the needs of the health system. I do sit on the capital expense committee, so I can eyeball opportunities when they come up that would be attractive to donors. And we're excited about perhaps taking our campaign one step further. And we'll be meeting as a board, our, our foundation board, in January to discuss what that might look like. I've been talking with Del Vecchio about opportunities to expand the campaign now that we're perhaps halfway to a 40 or $50 million campaign. What would it look like in terms of what we'd be raising money for? And we're talking with our execs, too. So we're very excited about all this. this. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And uh, this is just hot off the press from our recent uh, 2016 audit with Moss Adams showing our uh, asset composition over the last three years. And you can see we've grown tremendously from uh, the red zone of 2014 with 1.3 million to um, the really green zone. <laughs> of 9.5 uh, in 2016. Uh, most of that has come from contributions and grants, and we've also created our first ever endowment fund of 3.1 million. We call that the rainy day fund at the foundation. It's not for our use, it's for the health system's use and for us to grow in the future with additional bequests and major gifts so that when Del Vecchio comes to us, uh, as a director and CEO and ask for us to release some funds for whatever is needed at the moment, we can do that. So speaking of finances, I want to present a check today to Trustee uh, Lawrence and to Del Vecchio, which represents a gift that we recently received from the Wayne and Gladys Valley Foundation. Some of you who uh, work in nonprofit or serve on other boards uh, will be familiar with that name. They're very supportive to higher education, to health care, and um, things like the zoo, if you take your grandchildren there. Uh, and this is a check uh, that will help fund uh, equipment in both the uh, DISC at Highland as well as the uh, Family Birthing Center. And we like to have photo ops for our newsletter. This is on behalf of our board of directors and my eight staff members, 2.5 million. Wow. And this is the second check that we've dispensed to you in June at the finance committee. Trustee uh, Lawrence received 1.5 million. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, if we could pause for just a brief. I want to make certain that. A part of the Thanks for having me. November 17th at lunch, we're recognizing Josie. Isn't, didn't she get? Yes, thank you for mentioning that. Um, Josie Baltadano is our, our three year um, chair of the board, is chair of our capital campaign, and is not leaving the board, but she's finishing up the chairship. And we're honoring her uh, at National Philanthropy Day. With other 
uh, philanthropists and fundraisers in the St. Francis Hotel. Uh, so we're really exci excited about being able to do that. And thank you for You're more than welcome. Us. Yes. Uh -huh. So we can we can take a moment. We're, we're, we that was the only one we were doing during lunch. But we need to No, I think we can. Are you guys okay to go so, eat and and, and yeah? Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to about a couple of items related to human resources and AHS. We're going to give a, an update of where we are with some elements of the strategic human resources plan, and talk a little bit about AHS as an anchor employer in the community and what is the role of human resources with, within that. Sorry, Tony, I should have said something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So trustees, uh, one of, um, if you recall, back in June or July, I can't remember, um, when we presented the, the full strategic plan to you um, uh, with the cast of characters to really go into each of the strategic business units, uh, one of the areas that we um, only touched upon briefly was the support services area, so it was all the back office functions, finance, HR, IT, quality, and a couple of other areas. Um, um, with your approval, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we have started to set the new org structure in place, and uh, we're going into detailed operational plannings, not just with each uh, business unit, but with the support service functions that are, um, that are going to enable uh, the plans for each business unit. Uh, we have, over the course of the past month plus, had each of those business units uh, um, present to the executive leadership team on how they plan intend to support those activities, and we're doing our retreat next week to kind of finalize all of the, the, the goals and uh, uh, um, initiatives that we will do, uh, some of that in the space of quality that you heard earlier, some of which Tony is going to talk about in the space of HR today. So, um, um, uh, Tony... Um, is an example of one of those presentations that have come to us that's specifically around HR. Our, our hope is that this will give you, because of time we couldn't go into all of the business units, but give you a sense of the type of planning we're doing with each of the units. Um, and our goal is by the end of the uh, November timeframe, since we don't have December meetings, that we would bring forth to you um, the plan again. Uh, we've talked about it in sort of bits and pieces since that presentation with a um, uh, request for you to adopt the plan in full so we can continue along the path to move forward. So any questions you have for Tony today specifically related to HR, we're happy to, to look at it. And then any questions in the intervening time about any other aspect of the plan that could lead us to an action item and at the end of November would be very helpful context. So with that, I'll turn it over to Tony to talk about what HR is doing to enable each of the uh, business units to deliver on our plan. Okay, next up here. Sure. So we're going to talk about our anchor mission in the community, employing people from in the community. I know that we've talked about in a number of board meetings. I know Joe has and uh, Trustee Hernandez has about employing people from the communities we serve where possible in an attempt to raise the general health of the community. Um, you know, as a riding tide floats all boats, uh, as we employ more people from this community, they're able to get health insurance, they're able to support their families better, and that allows us to, to really meet our mission beyond just providing direct health care to patients that walk through our front door. Uh, we're going to talk about increase in retention, both of our existing employees and of those employees when they come in, how do we develop them and help them with a path through the organization professionally from that entry level uh, through health path all the way through the entirety of their career that they're with AHS. Um, improving employee engagement, and that obviously comes up, and I, 
heard Trustee Lawrence several times about trends. You know, I think we do have a trend over the seven years that we've, we've done uh, the engagement survey, and I think there are clear elements that have, uh, we need to deal with, that, that just culture is a core of that in terms of employees, how they feel in this environment, how they feel safe. And from time to time, as we look really into the detailed comments, that some feel there's a punitive environment as it relates to some uh, elements of management. And those are things that we need to both work on and deal with. Um, launch uh, leadership development. So we do leadership development classes now. Um, they're not as comprehensive as, the, as they need to be, and they don't develop people in the manner that we ultimately want them to be great leaders. And so we've got to align that better. Um, and effective communication around all of the things we're doing, and also in particular with our labor contracts, in terms of directly dealing, um, that's the wrong phrase, directly communicating with our employees uh, about what it is we're attempting to do and taking control of the message as opposed to our labor partners taking control of the message for us and telling them what we are or are not doing. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about risks, uh, progress to date, and then questions from you uh, about are we on the right track? Uh, do you feel that the direction that we're setting is the right direction? Are there things we're missing so that you can give us some active feedback? Um, so I'll talk a little bit later. I'll, uh, the first point, there's an old structure redesign that you'll see in a few slides. Um, we're really working towards uh, a more complete system. As you may recall, we acquired uh, San Leandro Hospital, Almeida Hospital in 2013 and 2014. Uh, they effectively operate as separate employers, although they may in fact not be. So we deal with them in, from an employment standpoint as though they're separate employers, and that's failed to allow us to bring uh, the groups together and get economies of scale. Um, we're looking at manners and ways in which we can allow employees to move across those sites, which will reduce our overall costs and actually be a benefit to the employees. We have some uh, employees, for example, in CNA at San Leandro Hospital who get called off from the OR. We have a need for OR nurses at Alameda Hospital. Today, by separate contract, they're not able to move across there. So those are the types of things that we're really working on. Uh, and also looking at the salaries, which I know we've talked in detail, both in closed and open session, about our ability to uh, right size salaries uh, and ensure that we're paying people as close to uh, parity across the system as possible, which again allows movement of employment or employees across the system in a much more easy, in an easier fashion than we can do today. Um, and uh, to the last point, alignment across those facilities. We have two community hospitals. We need to make sure that the pay is equal or as close to equal as we can make it and allow them to move across those facilities so we can best serve those communities instead of being short in one facility and potentially overstaffed in another on any given day. Um, as we look at um, the community that we serve from a healthcare perspective, um, we want to be able to recruit from that community in a more effective fashion. Um, right now, uh, and this is a point that David has brought up, uh, David Cox, on several occasions, as we look at our qualifications, we need to ensure that whatever we're acquiring of employees is something that we need to do the job and that we give opportunities where requisite experience, perhaps not education, is the right level to move into that role, both for internal candidates and external. An internal example of that might be a first-level supervisor job here may require a year of supervisor experience. Well, if you've worked as uh, an eligibility clerk, you may have been here for 10 years and have no supervisor experience. That sort of glass ceilings that person's opportunity to develop through this organization unless they leave. 
So we're looking at all job descriptions uh, right now to assess how do we line up experiences that we can give someone that could be commensurate with external experience. So we're developing a career path for someone in the organization instead of pushing them to potentially leave. Our job descriptions are no more rigid or flexible than most other organizations, but as we look at ours, we want to make sure that we're giving people that, that opportunity to work all the way through this organization, both training them when they're here, giving them the opportunity to develop, and some of it we won't be able to do. We'll work with partners for that. The SEIU Education Fund is a good partner for us. Uh, both Kinsey and Jeanette have worked closely with Merritt College, and they're going to be a good partner for us as well. So we're going to mix the model in terms of what we deliver to people and what we work with partners to deliver to people so that employees can develop. Uh, the, the Evaluate Pre-Employment uh, um, Requirements really refers to the, the, the Band of Box initiative. Right? Should we be asking people, do they have a criminal conviction at the point of application or at the point that we get ready to make an offer? Uh, the National Employment Law Program um, uh, has worked in Baltimore with John Hopkins very closely for about five years now. They've found that program to be a very effective whereby they don't ask on the front end whether someone has a conviction. They wait until it reaches the offer stage. They have chosen to use a retired police offer then to make an, uh, an assessment of the nexus of the conviction to the job that the individual is going to be in. And, and why, why, that? why that model? I mean, versus the, at the beginning versus the hiring fees? To, to allow, to give an exposure both to managers and the organization of the potential skill set that an individual possesses. There's a visceral response to the fact that someone has a criminal conviction. We all have biases, whether we want to admit to them or not. We know um, in that model, and I don't recall the stats exactly off the top of my head, that as people flow through, people see that this is a good candidate. They have skills, they can do what I need them to do, it then becomes apparent at the end that they have a conviction. At that point, you've already made a determination this is the right person for the job out of all those people I interviewed and assessed, and now it happens they have a conviction. If that conviction is not relevant to the work they're going to perform, then why would we discriminate against that individual and select them out? The, the model that they've used in terms of using a retired police officer allows them to say, while this individual may have three convictions, this was really one offense. Uh, the district attorney attempted to pile on here and this person bargained down. Um, and that allows us then to make a really good judgment about, yeah, this person can do the job. They've been doing it for five years now. They've had no negative outcomes from that program. And so if we... It could also recognize inherent biases in the, in the in, in yeah. imbalances in the judicial system or the criminal justice system as well. And so... That yeah, makes sense. I, yeah. just, I never no. thought of it that way. Yeah. The city of Oakland banned the box in, I think, mm -hmm. 2009 uh, because of this, uh, for these same reasons. And um, even beyond banning the box or the officer making that assessment yeah. after the fact, I mean, if somebody's convicted for a crime, it's, you know, they've paid their price. They've, they've suffered a consequence already. Yet we as a society through the 80s and 90s were trained to just kind of permanently condemn people mm -hmm. as criminals, yeah. which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. In Oakland where, uh, for example, um, just interesting statistic. Even though we've made uh, cannabis offenses the lowest law enforcement priority starting in 2004 through the passage of Measure Z, we still arrest about 400 people per year for cannabis offenses. Mm -hmm. And 96% of them are African American. Yep. Right. I mean, so 
I guarantee there are white people smoking marijuana yeah, in Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> and they as, may work as, for as the commentator on the yeah. Daily Show said, it's probably the better drug. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, yeah I think for, for us, um, uh, this gets to some of what we've been talking about as a, as a <coughs> mission, which is diversity and inclusion and, uh, and equity, uh, uh, speaking to uh, the point that Tony just made. Uh, and, you know, we certainly do still recognize for us the balance between uh, making sure that as a healthcare provider that uh, we are oftentimes caring for people who are vulnerable uh, uh, and we have an, an additional authority to, or uh, accountability to make sure that people that we introduce to those uh, clinical settings where sometimes someone may be unconscious or uh, unable to uh, have the capacity to make a decision on their own that uh, while we believe that it's right from a sort of social justice perspective to, to look at these types of things that we also uh, have a layer and to this point um, of accountability that we would actually look at on a case-by-case -case basis to say is this the type of event, offense and the timeliness of it and what have you that would introduce a layer of risk for the organization if we were to in any way ignore it um, um, and sort of make that uh, decision uh, before we before we were to Are there some, some um, positions that are not available to the, the, the regulations are stronger around the skilled nursing. The Department of Justice has very specific regulations about uh, criminal convictions. And so we would apply those. Our intent is not oh, right, to, yeah, right. is, is, is to meet. Yeah, the, the, the skilled nursing facility in particular um, has concerns around elder abuse. And so the Department of Justice is very tight in that area. In others, um, you know, it's a judgment call for the most part uh, for the, the institution. You have vulnerable patients. You have to make good choices where you can. At the same time, um, we want to ensure that where possible, if someone has committed a crime, and particularly a law offense crime, uh, to Trustee DeVise's point, use of uh, marijuana, which will in a very short order be legal in the state of California in all likelihood, that we will be carrying that conviction for the next seven years, were they to get it a week before. And to not employ someone who has that type of conviction who may otherwise be employed with health benefits, providing for themselves, their families, and, and really setting an example for, them family, for their family working, um, for us to not consider them is probably a mistake, I think. Do you, do you have in place a, or will you have in place, I guess is the question. Uh, I, I'm interested in the checks and balance. Yeah. And so because we are all, uh, all I think we're all human beings, I, some, some people I might question the location, but... The judgment calls relative to um, using one's heart versus one's yeah. head. Is there, is there a check and balance when, when you get to that point? Yeah. And um, it, rather than having a single individual yeah. make that call, but rather a, a group who will make the call about the employment? Um, I, I think that's, that's to be determined for us in terms of discussion with the LT and general counsel about the best approach to that, to both uh, give opportunity where possible and also to minimize the risk to our patients and other employees. And we won't, I don't think we will ever lose sight of that responsibility to the patient and our, our, and our other employees. At the same time, we want to make sure we have a structure by which we can accommodate people coming into the system where possible, where they've been, we think, rehabilitated, that we give them that opportunity. And I think structurally, internally, we'll build the appropriate mechanism by which to review it. And the example he cited was specifically the model yeah. that John Talbot yeah. used when they did this, but it's not 
So does John yeah. Hopkins use a team of people? No, no. They, they, use, they, use, they use one individual. It, it is a retired police officer. Um, he does this and he does education in the community on behalf of John Hopkins. He covers the entire university, so it's the School of Medicine, the hospital, and other elements of John Hopkins as well. Um, and so that's the entirety of his role. We, our volume would not replicate theirs, and so there are many ways that we could do this, and we, we'll have to make those decisions. Theirs, theirs is just the most yeah. successful that's in the, it, in the marketplace now. Because, because so, much, so many times these kinds of policies rest on the talents of an individual. Yeah. And so the data related to John Hopkins could, in fact, directly tie to this one man who has, you know, superb judgment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in a system where people are coming and going, putting in a process that doesn't depend on one individual's uh, analysis keeps consistency in an organization about where you want to bring people in. And so I offer that as just something to consider. Thank you. And I would like to just offer that even when a person does not have a prior conviction, um, our organization, just like all large employers, really does need to look at the current uh, trend in how applications are being reviewed. So there's every extreme from blind resumes, meaning you don't see the name, you don't see certain elements. Some are running the resume through a scrub that doesn't allow for bias, and also the actual posting of the job is run through a scrub of any bias about um, a specific kind of degree yeah. versus experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is excellent that mm -hmm. we're going to do that for that particular population that we would want to not exclude mm -hmm. um, prematurely. But I, I do want us to always remember there's a lot to be done yeah. around unconscious bias prevention in just the basic general. Hi in yeah. general hiring. And I think um, not out, not all of that, mm. but some of that will be adjusted by something uh, Dr. Jamaladeen mentioned, and you had raised around cultural competence, which is one of the things we have talked about a lot internally, uh, and we're discussing with vendors right now on how we would best approach that to ensure through new employee orientation, through annual competencies, and then train the trainer, uh, train the trainer model internally, we're able to expose all employees and physicians to to that sort of model. Um, as an aside, I was talking to an emergency physician in Southern California recently um, who works in a very diverse um, patient population, very similar to ours, and he is of uh, Japanese extraction, he's my father-in-law, uh, and so, and he says he, he carries bias because he sees a very specific uh, racial and cultural population at the absolute worst moment in their life uh, under enormous stress. Uh, potentially homeless, potentially uh, uh, um, with a substance abuse problem, and they build very close relationships with law enforcement who are pre predominantly white. And, and so that bias comes into what, so we're aware of it, and I think we'd, the, the models that we're trying to develop and work on around cultural competence will help organizationally with that, but I very much take on board what you said about looking at manners in which to scrub both resumes um, and postings, and we can absolutely do that. And part of the requirements for jobs and then how we would assess people is built into that. So we won't do it all this year. Uh, uh, we're on a long journey, and I think we're going to address a number of those things that will take us in the right direction. And, Tony, can I assume that the hiring, that, that this process is a systems, so it involves San Leandro and Alameda, and it is not just... That, that is correct. Okay. Our approach for everything we're going to discuss today is across the system. It's not, a, it's not specific to what was the core. Great. Thank yeah. you. In, out.
Um, the last around outreach, one, uh, we're doing a number of things in terms of outreach. We're talking about doing more recruitment events directly in the community, uh, potentially at our FQHCs, so that the community that we both serve can then go to a location they're known and aware of. That makes it easier for them. Um, I'm setting up a discussion with Goodwill to talk to them about partnering with us. They do a lot of career counseling. They also help people get ready for interviews so they can walk them through the path. We can't serve everyone and we can't hire everyone. Um, but we can potentially be a catalyst in the community for uh, people to get a path into work where it's possible and otherwise work with other agencies or uh, community benefit organizations that we can partner with. Um, so it, it may seem uh, oxymoronic to talk about exit in interviews when you're talking about retention, but quite frankly, our ability to assess why people left is crucial to us making a change. We know from both engagement surveys uh, and anecdotally through individual exit interviews uh, that there's a trust uh, element with our frontline staff, uh, concerns about transparency, uh, and a lot of those hopefully over time will be uh, resolved with just culture. If you, uh, you may recall that our last large bargaining, uh, three, almost three years ago now with SEIU, one of the key elements that we implemented was discipline without punishment. I really see that as a basic foundation block on which to build just culture. Uh, it basically says that we will coach and counsel employees before we move into discipline. And where possible, we would go from coaching and counseling to performance improvement plans, and all of that is pre-disciplinary. It is not intended that you showed up late three times, you're now on uh, a first step or a set of occurrences, so we're going to suspend you for a day or a week. The goal is there's a behavior here. We want to help you with that behavior. What do you need from us to help with that behavior? And where we can't correct it, only then do you move into to the steps of discipline. And so we negotiated that in a number of contracts. We have it in both the SEIU contracts, which cover maybe 60% to 70% of our employees. And so it's a large portion of them. And it's a foundation on which just culture will fit very well. Now, I won't tell you that it's, it's gone into place without problems. I think both on the union side and management side, we've had difficulties adjusting to a different approach to how you deal with employee problems or is, I would say issues. It may not be a problem with an employee. Someone comes to work late because there was a car accident. Someone came to work late because they had an issue with childcare. All issues are not the same, and when you follow a typical union contract, as most of you know, that is an occurrence. You follow the contract. That is not the best resolution for the staff or for us. Uh, people have problems. Where we can help, we should. Where we try to and, and they're unable to turn around, then we should go into progressive discipline. And so it is a basic building block, and then just coach will fit on top of that and dovetail with it very well. And Tony, just a question about yeah. how are you communicating that new sort of position to both yeah. employees yeah. and managers? So we, we ran uh, a large number of training sessions with both managers uh, and with union reps, shop stewards, when we rolled it out. I think in some areas it's taken reasonably well, in other areas it has taken less well. And I think we've got to do more work on that, both with the union and on our side, to make sure there's a full understanding of the intent, not just the language, but the absolute intent, which is we want to treat employees like employees, not like union members. You know, that, that there's nothing wrong with being in the union. That is a choice that everyone has. They are our employees and always will be, though. And we shouldn't talk about them as union members as though that's something separate. They are our employees. We want to work with them. We want to solve their problems. We want to help them be the best employee they can. And where we've done everything we can, only then do we progress down discipline. 
we've talked more uh, with the union reps over the last several months about this and about just culture. Uh, we invited a shop steward to attend uh, the bed program, the heart program that you looked at earlier today around just culture. So we invited a shop steward from the ED to come with us, and he attended to get an, uh, an exposure to what it is we're attempting to do. And we're hopeful that the relationship is getting to a place where we can work well with the union on these types of issues. Again, it won't be easy because it's a changing culture, but we're putting multiple elements together, not individually as perhaps in the past. So uh, discipline without punishment will go well with just culture. And as we try and evolve the management structure here and the way we manage, all of them should fit together. Although it will, again, it will take some time. Um, review pay ranges, uh, we've spoken about that before, so I won't belabor that point. Um, so we've, this is sort of ongoing work. We've talked about Press Ganey. We're working with all the executives, the CAOs, then the line management below them on the tier three groups to, ident uh, to work with them to resolve it. We're partnering both with Press Ganey and a consulting group called Clarity and our own OLA group. So we've got broader support across the organization to drive higher levels of engagement. The end goal is that engagement will go up, but that's not the work. The work is how do you communicate with your staff? How do you understand what they have to say? Are you listening and hearing what they're telling you? Are you helping them solve problems? How, how do you use PressGain? So PressGain is the survey. They also have a consulting arm that works with you on building engagement plans with your staff. And so they cover thousands of hospitals in the United States. They've got a really strong background in this area to understand really what you need to do to approach staff and get get information out of them that then allows you to, you know, build actionable plans instead of just looking at the data. Okay, and how long have we been using Prescott? Uh I think in total we've been doing engagement surveys for seven years. Uh, I think we changed... The surveys, not the consultant. Yeah. This is a new element. Right. So yeah. how are you using them? I'm very, yeah, I'm very skeptical mm -hmm. about this. Yeah. So, frankly, so I, I am, and so okay. uh, you're skeptical about which part of it, the new part we're talking about. No, I, I'm survey? skeptical about the fact that we have been using a survey for a long time, uh -huh. and it hasn't changed the various things that we have been concerned about on this survey. So, uh, it, press, it, you so know, we have that. Sorry, uh, there's oh. been a little. There's been progress. I mean, we, yeah. we've gone from the first percentile to 27, so it was bad, and it's not great. <laughs> But it's there's been progress. The the, no. the what right. he's talking about now though is not all we've been doing now is, is engaging them to actually administer the survey and give us the results. We now through the last survey saw that we have uh, about 60 of our areas mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, and, and our managers who are in what was called tier three. So that was like their engagement score or their readiness score to actually work with the staff on engagement was quite low. Some of the scores that they had was demonstrating that. You know, there's a fundamental challenge here. You mm -hmm. can't just come in with a plan and say, this is what I'm going to do, because there's an inherent disconnect here. So so we're engaging their expertise to work with yeah. a couple of those areas, because they're, they're the worst of our areas, to now get the managers in, uh, to one, give them tools, right, um, and give them training, and then to help them to then work with the staff to come up with a much more sort of intensive plan. We've never used them for that. So, so Tony, yes. these are great yeah. ideas in terms of using surveys and yeah. perhaps bringing in a consultant. Mm -hmm. How do you feel, though, about the ability to apply what's used in a lot of companies? And that is to allow employees to form employee network associations or employee um, uh, affiliation groups, employee resource groups. Um, I mean, 
all the major corporations are allowing for employees to perform those. They are not a bargaining unit. They are not intended for anything other than to create opportunities for them to learn more, talk more about how the workplace is, um, to understand what they contribute to the organization. Some are um, aligned around ethnic um, identity, mm -hmm. and some are millennial. Some are women mm -hmm. in non-traditional trades. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of those, mm -hmm. and they're very powerful ways to get people, you know, feeling like they belong and yeah. that they have a voice or they have a place to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, we we have no yeah. we have no um, uh, restricting restricting mm -hmm. against that uh -huh. kind of thing. Our employees, uh, at least in the year that I've been here, I haven't seen that sort of um, cross-organizational uh, uh, work yeah. happening. I've seen it within areas, though. If you if you go, and this is throughout all of our uh, campuses, if you grow throughout the campuses, what you see is like this sort of uh, organic um, spree that occurs within departments where they will even collectively um, um, buy paraphernalia. So you walk around and there's like, the, you know, the EV group has went out and, and bought jackets. People buy T-shirts and, you know, whatever. So, so various clinics. Um, one of the our same-day access clinic did something for breast cancer awareness, and they gave me this purple or pink T-shirt that they came up with. So, so the groups that are doing that sort of within their groups, um, again, we have no, if a group wanted to get together and be, you know, um, the, the Latinos for AHS, they could yeah. do that. So the, the issue would be, how do you spread that goodwill, right? So you see it happening in mm -hmm. some of your units. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to you know, multiply that effect across the system. Mm -hmm. And that way you're creating more of an mm -hmm. opportunity for people to come together and talk about what's important to them, what uh, they see as an opportunity for better, more coordinated care. I mean, if you take mm -hmm. the extreme Ford Motor Company, remember that ad, quality is job one, they gave that responsibility to their employee resource groups. And so they really leverage that kind of, you know, uh, esprit de corps mm -hmm. to, to mm -hmm. promote something that they cared a lot about. Mm -hmm. so. I think if you're doing it as an organization, there are ways that, that uh, the organization can uh, empower and, and uh, resource those things that, that is more sort of driven from the organization's standpoint. Uh, if there are a group of employees who want to do that sort of thing, it's it's the you know the initiative on their part to do it to talk to us about what they like to do and then we find ways to support it. I mm -hmm. think that becomes a little bit more of a you know this is we want to do this on our own time mm -hmm. we want to do oh, this yeah, no, as an extension different. of what we do. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Mm -hmm. that though that approach and from you know, the little I'm familiar with on that that's still those are the ones where uh, it tends to sort of have greater Kaiser acceptance. There's a lot of groups within Kaiser mm -hmm. that have this, but they own that. Those, yeah. those groups own that. Uh, to my knowledge, and I don't work in Kaiser and haven't, perhaps we can ask Guy in a few months, um, uh, Kaiser doesn't in any way uh, sanction it, they just allow it to occur. Uh, they do, and, and they do allow them to raise some of these issues that we're concerned with, right. how to raise engagement, how to care for diverse populations. Right. So, so I, if we had groups who wanted to do it, we would certainly, I don't think we, we, yeah. wouldn't, we wouldn't shun it, and we would certainly welcome it in. Kind of yeah. I, all I'm saying is, why not be the spark to yeah. get that going, right? It, it's, you know? it's an interesting thought. I think uh, we need to think about it and reflect on it a little bit. Um, 
not because it's not a great idea, but how do you mechanically make it work when you have a very strong unionized environment and it isn't just us, it is both the union, how do they perceive that? And I think it's a matter of working with them in partnership and our employees together to say, is this something you want to do and want to be engaged in? Um, sometimes uh, a group can see another group as a potential threat to them and, and their influence and authority in the organization. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good idea, but I think we'd want to think about how, do we, how could we make that work. So it, it, kind of in that realm, um, you've identified these Tier 3 mm-hmm. yeah. places. How do you go to them and say you guys are like you know, the remedial reading yeah. group, and we're going <laughs> to do some training here. Yeah. So they already know, yeah. uh, and I don't know that they're the remedial group. Yeah. What we've said is uh, when we shared the results with all of them, we said uh, by virtue of this tool, we're able to discern that these are the areas where there is a, un- a structural uh, uh, issue that won't allow us. Everywhere else, you know, we have scores all across the the map. Everybody wants to do improvements. So you take those scores and figure out where you want to improve. But in these key areas, you won't be able, you won't be successful in just trying to come up with an action plan. We've got to find a way to work with you to figure out, you know, what what is uh, what's happening in that. Area. Yeah, and I, I think. Yeah, I, I think the the the, tr- the data will set you free. The, the, this is the truth. You know, it's, it, it may be hard reading. It, it may be not what you want to hear as a manager of an, uh, of a group. But this is how your employees feel, and the and the it's better that you know than that you don't know. Uh, and you may be a new manager in that area. You may have been slogging away at it ten years, uh, and you may not be uh, be successful. Um, most people want to know. Most people who come to work for us want to do a good job every day. Sometimes they're successful, other times less so. Um, and I think that's not less true of our managers, supervisors than it is of anyone else. And sometimes they they're failing in in that endeavour. And our goal is to say, okay, this tells us that there's a problem here. Um, if you try and solve this alone, it's going to be very difficult for you. I, I can knock up an engagement plan for a group because I've done it for a long time that's pretty well engaged and it would take me 10 minutes. We'd go through a plan. We'd say what we're going to do and we start actioning the plan. With a group that, that is potentially as disengaged as this, you need more professional help, more focused help because there's a breakdown in basic trust between the employees and the manager. And it may be neither group's fault. The manager may be new. There may be some dynamics that have been there pre-existing. But they need some real professional help to get to cross that boundary so that they t- together can move forward. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do with pre- both press gaining and clarity is give that focused attention to that group to build a basic level of trust so they can build an action plan together to go forward. And I think what we've done in the past and we're changing from is before Del Vecchio got here, we would typically do and off-site, go through all the results, and then we would start those the action planning with the frontline managers. With both Luis, uh, Gassan, and Del Vecchio now, it's very clear we want to work with them. They're driving down responsibility to work with your staff. They want to see the plans. They want to work with them. So there's a bi-directional communication all the way down and all the way up, and I think we haven't done that successfully in the past. And, and the other part I should say is also true. There, there, well, there may well be... Um, um, instances that come up through this where we realize that the fit is just not yeah. um, sufficient and, and won't work irrespective of, of um, uh, sort of the degree of engagement. We want to take that opportunity to try it uh, where we think that there is the ability to actually make some improvement, but uh, we also are cognizant of the fact that um, uh, some of these examples could be longstanding managers in areas 
uh, who have in some ways contributed to that problem uh, uh, and uh, mm -hmm. may, may in fact not mm -hmm. be able to change um, mm -hmm. to the degree that's necessary. And if that's the case, then we recognize the need to make change and, and we'll do that. Um, the last part, uh, again, to Michelle's point about surveys, uh, whether we do this or not um, in May is somewhat dependent upon um, just culture. There's a survey that's associated with that. I think if we get too many together, our, our uh, completion rate is going to go down. And so we have to think about that carefully. Um, we, we've talked about this, that the executive offsite follows this, and so there's still some work to do around this and the dates, and we'll have to determine whether or not this is the right thing to do in light of other surveys that may be required for us to do just culture. So that, that's something that we'll have to take into account. Um, so fairly, fairly typical in most companies, uh, in the Ford Motor Company and others, and GE, and you have a high, middle, low process, or you, um, you call it whatever you like, nine box, six box. There are multiple tools out there. You're really making an assessment of who are your high potential, who are people who are doing a good job, and who are those people who need some help to either get better or make a determination that maybe there's another career path internally or externally that's a better choice for them. Uh, and so we have done this in the past, probably about 18 months ago. We're going to refresh that, go through it throughout the organization to determine from all our leadership levels, where do we stand? So we can, again, help those that can be helped and work through those uh, to find better opportunities for them where, where it's not a fit. Give me an example of zero tolerance behavior seems to be in juxtaposition to uh, to just culture. And so I'm trying to understand what would be a zero tolerance. Remember, remember just culture, uh, the slide that had three uh, categories. So there's, there's uh, human error, there's... Um, um, I forgot what the other one was, but risky behavior. Yeah. So human error, this could happen to anybody. It could also be a system error behind it. It's just that the result wasn't what you expected to do. You didn't necessarily do anything wrong, or with some additional training, we can we can get you there. The next one is console, where it's like, uh, you, you exercise a little risky behavior. Perhaps you thought it was a calculated risk, and that makes sense, but it didn't warrant the outcome that we want, wanted, so let's figure out a way to reduce the riskiness of your behavior. The third one was reckless behavior. That is, we've trained you, you understood what to do, the system worked well, and you actually deliberately went around and, and wanted to produce a an untoward outcome, or you intentionally did stuff to cover up what was going on. And so, so there may be something that's like, that is, that's not a tolerant, that, that's, the, yeah, egregious. It's, it's something that's egregious. So, so it's about, remember the other slide that showed the sweet spot where you want support and you want to um, have a no blame culture, but you also have to have accountability. So you want the sweet spot between them. And, mm -hmm. and in this case, we would always mm -hmm. recognize that, you know, something like, uh, performing a, a surgical case while you're um, uh, intoxicated, yep. bringing a, a weapon to work um, uh, with the intent to do harm uh, um, would be un, you know, unacceptable. So, so, so it's a, it is a component of actually a just culture, but there are certain things that you yeah. just cannot tolerate in your, in your culture. And, and I think that bully goes very much with the, with the bottom. Again, if you go to the engagement data, our employees don't feel that everyone's held to the same standard. Mm. And, and this is applicable to all. It, what, what we need to make absolutely transparent to our employees is regardless of level in the organization, these unacceptable behaviors will be applied equally across the organization regardless of level. And I think that's, um, it, it's, this is a very hard path uh, not, not to go down. All employees, when they feel mistreated by a manager, want something to happen to that manager. 
what they typically go to, uh, you know, because we talk to the union about this often when they'll file an all-affected grievance, this manager's terrible. The, the manager has to be fired. Well, the manager's entitled to due process rights just like frontline staff are, and, and they're absolutely entitled, entitled to confidentiality as well. But from the employee standpoint, if there's a behavior that they are doing and they would be disciplined for it, what they're hoping for is that the manager is treated equally to them, uh, regardless of level. And I think some of this gets really at that. These are our core beliefs. These are the behaviors that are expected of everyone, regardless of level. And these are things that we want to accept you either doing or not doing, depending upon uh, exactly what it is. And we want everyone to understand that. I think it's important throughout the levels that, that these are applied and people can see that we have absolute transparency about these core things. Everything else then is gray, like most things in life. You know, punctuality, um, you know, you make a mistake at work. They're gray and they need to be assessed, but we're really saying there are certain things that we expect of everyone here and we expect you to meet those and we have to determine exactly what those things are and then we have to be absolutely clear about it at all times and at all levels of the institution. And one of the places that people often assume that there, it will not apply equally is to the doctor. Physician, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sure. it must. And, and, and it's the most complicated place because they're not employees in the same way that other employees are. They're individuals, contractors in a community hospital like San Leandro. They bring business in there. And so there should still be an tolerance policy around certain behaviors. And we, sure. can, we can do that. You know, ho many hospitals have done that. It's, it's a difficult path to go down, but it's still the right path to go down. Um, are, are these going to be that you import from other from other institutions that you can apply, or do you have to develop these things from from? I, I think both. I, I think both. I think we have to use what we can that other institutions have done well, but we have to make sure it works for us and that the standards are ones that we believe are the right ones for this institution, not necessarily just applying someone else's wholesale. I don't think that would work for us. I think we have to really assess what's right for this environment. You know, I. I and I've written a hundred dress code policies in my career. You know, some of them would apply here. Some of them shouldn't apply here. You know, we have to think about what is right for us, for our employee population, for our patient population, so that we can get it right rather than just applying something that worked in another institution. There's no perfect answer to any of these. So, so Tony, could you just help me understand something? We've got the just culture. Yep initiative yep. you've got the learning organization initiative yeah what what other raw i mean you, you're highlighting some things here but yeah. i just want to get my arms around how many different <laughs> well that's that, that's a great you're question. Not. well and the yeah, reason for question. this question mm -hmm. let me just tell you why yeah on one level i have to just say these are really basic things mm -hmm. they should have been like Part of the woodwork yeah. several years ago. Years yeah. ago. Yes. Okay. The other is that clearly there's a need to move us forward. Yeah. And I just want to understand, you know, where is the priority? Because it's hard to be firing on all of those. And there is such a thing as employee, you know, kind of overload. You start Yeah, they is. get fatigued yes. with well, I'm going to the workshop on the just culture. Now I've got to go to the one on the learning organization. And then, oh, I've got this new thing. I've got to learn about my, yeah. 
how I do management appraisals. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to get a sense how many of those are firing in it, full. It's a good full. question. I think many of them are intrinsically linked and not necessarily separate. We're talking about them as separate yeah. things here, right? We're move, moving to be a learning culture that, that, that includes the just culture. So if someone makes a mistake, we learn from it as opposed to we punish them yeah. for it. That's it's not ri- yeah, yeah, it's one element of that. Teaching people in a more appropriate, appropriate and comprehensive fashion, which we want to do through a university concept for our managers, is something else. And that will take multiple years for us to build it to its absolute conclusion. And so these things are going on in conjunction with each other. They're not necessarily independent initiatives or programs. But you label them independently. Yeah, yeah I did, and, and I, and I see that. And that is yeah. the confusion that yeah. I've had as a board member. Yeah, okay. That there has been so many labels, and I think, what the heck is going on? Yeah. I can go back and I can show you. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. And while they all yeah. are like this, each seem to me to be a separate thing. I, I find it very confusing. Okay. So it, it's a yeah. as a presentation is as important in my view yeah. as what you are putting into operation. Yeah. I think that's good feedback and useful for us to think about how we wrap the number of things we're doing because any individual thing is going to be made up of multiple streams and, and, and work and so if we separate them out I, I understand that that could cause confusion and we'll work on that to try and pull things together in a more holistic fashion so it's this is actually what we're working on there are going to be lots of work streams behind it so that we reach this goal so that that's good feedback yeah, even uh, a while ago was it AHS the new day or something mm-hmm. yeah, new day. Yeah. okay so like healthcare yeah yeah. New day yeah, yeah, a new day. So, just a thought. It's just a thought. Um, you know, Nordstrom's is famous for having the most, like, efficient employee guidebook. It's one page. At all times, do the right thing for the customer. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's your training, right? Yeah. You're given a lot of discretion about how to do that. So, do we have a way of just capturing all of this as? the AHS way, the New Day at AHS, or something that's a campaign that says internally, we're moving in this direction. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of parts to that effort Mm -hmm. that everyone's going to have to play a role in. If we can unify that message, I I think we'll get better um, uh, traction, Mm -hmm. and it's easier for us to be supportive of what it means to move there. I, th- I think both points that you made, though, are, are, are valid. So, so certainly a sort of a unifying uh, theme can, can, can be uh, valuable. Uh, at the same time, though, we, you should know that we, we too, and that was part of his earlier message, we're having this exact discussion as a leadership team that all of these imperatives are, you know, in, in isolation, they all are very important. And all are things, to your point, we should have been doing a long time ago, we should certainly be building on. Um, um, but they are, you know, suffice it to say, they are where they are now and they're before us. And at the same time, we don't want to overwhelm the system. We're looking at that and saying, you know, we, we have this new business units going up and we want to resource them. And they're going to have their own goals. We're looking at the way in which what we're doing supports their ability to deliver on those things. And some of that takes its own sort of set of initiatives. But we don't want to distract attention and focus too much away from the ultimate goal, which is providing great care to everybody and uh, having a great uh, uh, workforce and a growing workforce to be able to do that. So, so all these things sort of play on one another, uh, but uh, that will mean that we have to make some trade-offs. We're, we're going to focus on this for this year. Um, we won't do this. And actually that bit of hard thing, uh, just so you know, and we didn't necessarily say it, is the team hasn't decided to do it yet. 
we think that we need to do the just culture stuff, and so we're grappling with that uh, because there is a set of consideration, including the survey impact that will come along with that. But now we're trying to balance all those things and say, okay, if we looked over the next remaining eight or nine months of the fiscal year, what are we actually going to do this year? And we can do it without overwhelming everybody, saying that we're doing too much and not resourcing enough and pulling away from the productive work that has to be done. In take 25 words or less and say what the beta hard thing is because it's it's on the slide but we didn't get what it yeah because we haven't so um with Cassandra or someone else who actually went to the uh, yeah, presentation was here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you recall back. You 25 he words. can't do it in 25 words. Yeah. Yeah. No way. No way. This is not by the word. I'm going to count. So is, is someone counting? Yeah. So yeah. that's, uh, that's what, 22? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, if you if you recall the you know, the various issues that Karen was talking about in terms of you know an incident or the life of an incident, so the care for the caregiver, you know, the investigation of it, you know, those pieces. So the Beta Heart, you know, program, you know, basically brings all of that together, and so it's an opt-in program, meaning that you know, if an organization opts into it, they will receive a reduction on certain of their insurance premiums over the course of the year. And there are various domains which are associated with, you know, the investigation model, with, you know, establishing the care for the caregiver, you know, the entire going through the just, you know, the just culture, you know, piece of it as well, too. There's a survey, a, a, a cultural survey, a culture of safety type survey, mm -hmm. which is part of the, uh, of the preparation process. And so as you go through and do each of those things under the program, then you generate progress towards the savings. The idea being is that the end of the, the process, and the process is anticipated that it probably would not be done in a year, but you would take the organization, you know, from one which is, you know, focused on, you know, identifying blame to one that is, you know, now mirroring the culture, you know, which focuses on, you know, systemic learning and becoming, you know, using incidents as opportunities, you know, to improve quality as to simply trying to find blame for somebody. Is this state? Federal no, it's, it's, it's run by beta. It's run by So beta risk management authority is our, our we're essentially a risk pool. So that's who provides our medical malpractice, liability insurance, and all of our other insurances. And so they've created this program. They've created several programs that we've opted into. So they had a program, you know, focusing on, you know, uh, pregnancy uh, or OB, you know, issues, you know, involved in OB. And this is their next program, which is really designed to focus an entire system on, you know, the, the idea of, you know, quality improvement from incidents rather than simply trying to assign blame. It's a specific algorithm on how you interact with staff and patients and their families on clinical events and how you resolve claims. And it's, it stands for healing, empathy, Accountability, resolution, and trust. Oh, thank you. I wonder whether it's really referring to words. It's more like 260. I think that was under 25 words. <laughs> you were under 25. You were 25. You, you're not. You do next. Yes. There's a time, just like with the other SBUs, you said the first 12 months we do this, the 12 to 18 months we do this, and the third year we do this. So with the support, 
customizing it to the timeline for each that's, business. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Some of the things are going to be institution-wide. If you do just culture, it's very difficult to do it by business unit. That's yeah. really across the institution. If we build um, learning programs and educational programs, those we can flex. We could pick a business unit or an area to deal with it, or we can do it institution-wide. I think we have some choices to make when we do the retreat to decide, again, how much can the system take without slowing us down in other areas or negatively impacting the implementation. There are some choices to be made yet as we as we do the, the executive retreat, which is yet to come. I won't belabor this slide because I've really touched on everything here. Um, you know, the cultural competence model, I think, is crucial. I, I do think both the way we interact with each other in the workplace and interact with our patients and understand them, uh, without that, we're really losing the basics of what we're here to do. And so we have work to do that, and it's going to impact in a positive way how we interact with each other, how we trust each other, and I think that that's something we have to do. The, the job descriptions I spoke about um, in terms of as wanting uh, to have people educated and within a certain amount of time. So there are certain things we want, we're going to want people to learn within six or 12 months of employment at the management level, and so we'll build policies and procedures to ensure that that occurs. Um, and this, the, bo the bottom one is just a basic transactional issue. Our performance evaluations are too strong. They don't reflect what we want them to reflect, and so we need to revise them. Tony, have you considered retention reviews in this program? In terms of? Well, some companies have now implemented this new, like, midterm retention yeah. review where you actually call the employee in and the manager asks them, are we doing everything we need yeah. to do mm. for you? Yeah. You know, what can we do? Stay interviews. Stay interviews. But it's a great stay opportunity also for managers and the supervisors to kind of say, hey, these are the goals that, that you and I established when we did your performance yeah. review. How are you doing on that? And what am I doing to help yeah. you get there? Yeah. And it's become a very effective tool for some companies, and yeah. for managers I, to create a better relationship with their I, th I think it's a good model. I think it works in some instances and not others around goals and objectives. Uh, frontline nursing is a little different. That's the majority of our patients. And th I've seen people try to do this in other healthcare environments. Yeah. It's quite a challenge to do that because uh, the work of one nurse is very similar to the nurse next to them in a med surge unit, difference to an ICU to an ED. How you do that can be a challenge. I have since stay interviews implemented, which is really just a discussion of how are we doing, yeah. you know, as so opposed to a focus on the goals, same sort of model. I've seen an alternative, which is the coaching model. Uh, I've seen it both successfully and, and badly implemented successfully, where we move to a model by which we're rounding every day, talking to people every day, interacting with them every day, and giving them feedback every day. And I think as you build just culture, that really emphasizes that there's a problem. What's the problem? Let's work on it. Um, and also I've seen it done badly where it was put into the performance appraisal and that just made the appraisal longer and nobody liked it. Right? And so the intent was good but the, the execution of it was poor. So I think some of the things we're doing will address them. We haven't individually pulled out putting in place day interviews. And I think we, we can consider them but again I don't want to choke the system up with a set of people doing another set of interviews on top of something else but I think it is something we will get to in time. I'm just not sure within this 12 months or you know, later. Let me challenge that a little yeah. bit, though. If, if, if a senior leader is, if all senior leaders are not consistently looking out for opportunities to retain our high value talent, mm -hmm. our, our folks that are really doing well, mm -hmm. that, that seems like a big miss. 
I, I think they're two different things. I think if earlier on we talked about the nine box, and that's looking at all managers and leaders, so we have a process by which they're being assessed outside of their performance appraisals. <coughs> I think when you're talking about stay interviews, typically you do them across the organization, and there's a difference between, say, me doing it in a you know, mid-sized department and a nurse manager with 100 direct reports doing it on top of appraisals and day-to-day -day management. So you have to give caution to how you do it. It's not that I'm opposed to it or not supportive of it. You have to think how it rolls out in a healthcare environment where 90% you know, of the staff are out on the floor doing work, be it EVS work, dietary work, or direct patient care work. And that's a little different than me doing it with my staff who are all sitting in an office. It's pretty straightforward for me to do that, and, and I do it. But it's not so easy for a nurse manager on the unit to do the same program successfully. So it's, it's not, again, that I agree. You just have to think cautiously, how does it apply in a healthcare environment? Tony, where are we at case So the implement university, we have a model. Um, you know, that's, that's being sponsored by Luis as well as HR. So we're talking about what that actually looks like and how we roll it out over the next 12 months. Um, the cultural competence, I'm discussing it with a company in Saddle right now about their model. I'm not convinced that we don't want to use someone locally, so I'm going to take what they have and then talk to other providers within the county of Alameda so we, we price that appropriately and see how we would do it. Uh, the job descriptions, uh, I have a call, had a call yesterday with a comp consultant coming in, so we're getting a scope of work on that. And then the performance evaluations, um, we've talked to our provider. We've got some work to do there because SAP purchased success factors and so their support model changed dramatically. We can't make the changes that once we could ourselves. And so we're talking to success factors about that. Is it automated? That. Yeah, yeah. It, it's our uh, performance appraisal system. Uh, success factors was the, is the company we use. They were purchased by SAP. They changed the level of access that all their customers could have. And that's just a, it's a problem we have to work our way through and determine in the end whether success factors is the, is the product for us. In the end, we'll go to likely Lawson for everything is the ideal outcome. So it's a problem we just have to, you know, technical issue. So these things are going to be in place for a year too? Um, I think the leadership university will. Um, cultural con the cultural competence model we will want in, in much more than a couple of years, much right. sooner than that. The job descriptions. The don't they have to be negotiated with job descriptions? Yeah, we have to meet and confer. Right. And, and that's something we would do. Right. You know, so I don't, most of the thing, any changes we have around expectations, I think we can manage our way through pretty easily. I, I don't see anything that we're going to ask people to do that would really grind us to a halt or prevent mm -hmm. us from moving forward. So, just again, a reminder uh, uh, this is, these are things that, uh, as HR got together, looked at the strategic plan and things that we needed to do, these are the ideas that came forth yep. and so your input and uh, um, sort of either uh, uh, concurrence with these or, or, or suggestions for other things or things we'll also factor in and when we get together which will actually be the end of next week uh, we're going to do that you know what can we actually do this year because this will be about setting the operational plan for the remainder of this year uh, but some of that could be that this will then um, uh, flow down through subsequent years just so we're clear about you know what, what can actually get achieved. Um, I'd like to ask one more question, just regarding performance evaluations. Are we, are you confident, or what, what's the, um, the rate? What's, what um, are you confidently? I'd have to think right now. Typically, we get about 90% completion rate okay. at any one time, you know, and then we're, we're chasing down people to get them okay. completed. 
Um, annually, right? 90%. Correct. Yeah. So, and we have two different, we have uh, focal review, which is the unrepresented and some of the ACMEA right. management staff that are done once a year, about 500 people. The rest are done on dead of hire. And, and those are done pretty consistently. Issues here and there, but not very many. Um, I'm going to speed up because I know I'm eating into Debbie's time. Uh, in terms of communication, we've established a labor blog, um, which is, again, to get us out in front of communication uh, with the uh, with the frontline staff as they're being communicated with their, their representatives that we can talk to them about what's ongoing, what's happening uh, in the environment that we're meeting uh, with the unions, what the dates are when contracts expire so that we can really manage the, the message a little bit more effectively. Um, we're, uh, we're meeting uh, with managers, a lot of people in the room would have received invitations today to, to meet um, uh, and talk about what are the issues with the contract, what do we want to address in the upcoming SIU negotiations. Um, and when uh, the, the last um, element is we, we're trying to move the contract timelines around a little bit wherever we can. We, we had too many that end at the same time. That puts a strain on the system, not just on the negotiators, but also on staff. And, and the negotiating teams, and so we're trying to move those dates around wherever we can. Uh, big risks, but we kept it short, but there are obviously there are many like there are with any uh, program. Uh, keeping uh, focused, you know, the environment's changing with the Affordable Care Act all the time, with population health management, uh, external threats uh, to any healthcare organisation, and that can shift in an instant. And if we're trying to get these things done, we, we need to believe they are the things that need to get done and that regardless of shifts externally or internally, we need to get these basic things done or we should reflect about whether these, this really should be a priority. Uh, labor negotiations, we've got the two major contracts coming up. They expire in March, so we'll be stepping into negotiations probably uh, November, December uh, time frame, uh, and that's going to take a lot of attention, both of the staff, shop stewards, and then on the negotiating side as well. Uh, and leadership team stability. Um, you know, we talked about Guy and Joe earlier today, um, but you've seen transitions, and transitions can be a good thing. Uh, they can breed energy, strength, changes, openness to really new ideas, but they can also take you exactly back to square one. And when a new member comes into a new team, typically the team goes back to zero again, and that team starts to build. Uh, and so that's a, for anything we're doing, that they are the, the threats that we face or the risks we have to think about, and we just need to accept that they are there and then mitigate for them if and when they come up. Uh, Tony, speaking for myself only, yeah. one of the things that I that uh, I find um, that I grapple with as a board member via being the CEO, in, and so I see all these things, and when you're closer to it, the way you are, Devecu is, you can see these things occurring. Yeah. When you're a, a board member and are required to hold an organization or a system accountable, it's much harder for us to assess whether or not any of these things are being done. Mm -hmm. So what I would propose to you is, because we are now starting that human resource committee mm -hmm. as part of the standing committee, yeah. that it may behoove you to think about these these bullet points that yeah. you have presented here yeah. and how you are going to show the board or even the human resources team how those things are being implemented as yeah. we go through. Um, yeah. and. And that's the difficulty that I that I I keep yeah. grappling with is I hear these great things, but I have no way to know whether or not my role as a board member can possibly hold you accountable because mm -hmm. there's nothing there's no feedback yeah. other than verbal feedback. Yeah. So 
you might think about what what measurements you're going to use mm -hmm. here to show us that progress has been made. Yeah. And, and, and then I don't yeah. feel frustrated about the survey and you say you've done <laughs> yeah. well, but... Yeah. Not well. No. Just not yeah. nothing. No, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but seven years... I, I am with I, you. I'm, I'm with saying, you. wait a minute, seven years and this is the increment we... So mm -hmm. there's got to be... Uh, I'm More. sorry. Yeah, it's, it's okay. So, 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 Tony, I'd be yeah. happy to share this with you, but I'll say it publicly. You know, we've tried to create something for major corporations as well as hospital systems to just be consistent about reporting out on four things. Mm -hmm. What are your metrics? Yep. And I mean retention, engagement, yep. all of that. The second is culture. Yep. What is the culture doing to shift in the right direction? The third is how is leadership being held accountable? Mm -hmm. And the fourth is how you're showing up to the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. Because our culture, our way of doing things, the way people feel about AHS is a reflection of you know, how satisfied people are working here and how satisfied people are getting their care here. Mm -hmm. So HR has a tremendous role, and I'm not suggesting by any means that those four buckets are only to be, you know, done by HR. Yeah. But for me, I would like a dashboard mm -hmm. that I can consistently see where are we in those things. So mm -hmm. I wrote this so that other people could yeah. actually do it. I'd like to use something yeah. like, similar. And, and that's to well, my point that I've said. Yeah. How, how do we how know, do we, how do we know you've done this as a board? How do we know you're doing this? And, and from our vantage point is, what would you like to know? So that we're yeah. not just feeding you uh, a bunch of information. We want the information that you uh, feel you need to uh, uh, to be able to assess you know, whether the organization is delivering and you're holding us appropriately accountable. So mm -hmm. actually, one of the questions at the end of this was that. What are the types of things that you know? So, that, so this is helpful. Uh, yeah. uh, but, but you'll see that when yeah. we get to that end. Others can chime in as well. Okay. So um, I'm going to talk about uh, reorganization of the HR structure and a little bit about health path realignment as well. So a little hard to read. Um, do I have a, there we go. This is the, the biggest change really is the implementation of a director of talent management. And so what we're bringing together is talent acquisition or recruitably recruitment, um, HRIS, and education and development. You know that previously we had the OLA department, which was organizational learning and effectiveness. The heavy lift for us in the next several years is education development of both frontline staff and management staff. And both the how we identify talent, recruit talent, and then develop talent, bringing it together we think is a more appropriate approach than separating them out. The change will be driven through the business partners who are out in the business units with the CAOs working with them, and they'll get some support from specific change consultants. Uh, but instead of having OD, really change management together with learning and development, we think that's better placed over here. You, you mentioned just because it's tough yeah. for them to see as well the, the talent management uh, um, and diversity. And diversity, yeah. yeah. But I don't see where that's showing up in that box, those boxes. It's it actually, sh as far as we're concerned, yeah. it shows up in every, every, in every one box. of the boxes. Okay. Yeah. So that person really is going to have to know all there is to know about talent optimization and diversity and inclusion. Yeah. That's a big order. It is. 
So HealthPath, uh, as you know, was previously POP. Uh, we got the Atlantic Foundation's philanthropic donation. And it's really uh, pathways into healthcare, predominantly at the high school level, and predominantly it's been in the Oakland School District. Um, we've pulled together as many of those programs as we could. So we've got HEAL, MIMS, HCC, and we have a fellowship at Highland Hospital. This is really the entry point for a lot of people within uh, the Oakland community and elsewhere into a career in healthcare. Okay, so that's the entry point. What our goal would be is through a mixture of both internal and external partners that someone who enters in at that school level gradu potentially graduates high school. That's an example, obviously, if they graduate college, so much the better. But they enter at high school, they come to work at AHS, they, we give them development opportunities, uh, we train them, they go through a promotion path and end up in some level of management within AHS. That's the goal, because the, the programs that uh, HealthPath are really focused on is the, uh, is the community around us. And, you know, and the ideal is that someone comes from that community, goes into the workplace, receives health benefits, is able to provide for their family as they grow a family, and from that point we're growing the health of the community at large. It's not separate from the mission of delivering health care, it is part of the mission in total. And this has been going on now for how long? Health Path has been in place for, I'm trying to think now, 18, 24, probably 24 months I think. We got the, we started the discussions with the Atlantic Foundation. 2014. Yeah, yeah, 2014? Yeah, that, that it went into place. The answer to that is yes, and we're actually already doing it. Um, the Hill program, which is the one for high school students, we did a pilot, uh, I don't know if it was a pilot or actually yeah. a full-on ex uh, uh, extension of the program into yeah. the San Leandro community uh, beginning of the summer. That's right. And I believe something is in the works right now for Alameda as well, but we certainly want to extend throughout the county. You, you know that uh, Atlantic Philanthropies, um, um, a big portion of that was excluded to the Oakland community. Right. Yeah. So that was the start of it, but we... Yeah, the, yeah, in our partnership with OUSD. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it is our intention um, that uh, this will extend uh, um, and through the various programs uh, throughout, uh, throughout the county. The MIMS program actually, I think, mm -hmm. also is, is broader than Oakland. Although That's right. Sort of, yeah, and then obviously ELAM, which is the fellowship program, is, is international, actually. So. Is yeah. this, are you working with, um, with the city closely as part of this program? With um, Mayor Schaff and with um, with Annie Campbell Washington and, and the city leaders, we do. We do through no, not you're not talking about the homeless initiative, right? No, you, no, you're no, talking the, about yeah, the, you're talking about their education the, initiative. Um, yeah. The mayor's the ones that she was talking about at the medical yeah, staff dinner. Yeah, the cradle grave initiative. It's it's Oakland Promise, yeah. The yeah. Promise, yeah. So this is not a a a part of those, but it's a complement to them and. Part of Oakland Promise is the OUSD part of the uh, POP grant. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a complement to those programs, yeah. Actually, the other part of it is uh, the beginning part, which is, I think it's called Bright Beginnings or something like that, where uh, they will, they're giving, they're starting these scholarships for right. kids born in Oakland. Uh, uh, yeah, savings accounts, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's not a part of this program, but it will certainly be something that we extend to uh, our parents who deliver. <laughs> If only, right? That would certainly grow the organization. And we have a relationship with Laney and also 
also Samuel Merritt. Yeah, yes. actually, uh, okay. on that track that he was showing yeah. you, actually, I'm happy to talk about this. Kenzie's gone now, uh, but um, uh, Gassan, um, um, Louise, Kenzie, Jeanette, and I actually met with the uh, Merritt. Actually, what's it called? The Peralta District. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, uh, system and had a very robust discussion around how we could partner more closely and we're exploring all those opportunities which I'm happy to say don't just include uh, rotations for nursing students and others uh, coming through but we actually even talked to them about you know a good portion of the uh, student population are probably people who are Medi-Cal beneficiaries and even if they aren't Medi-Cal beneficiaries are people who we'd love to serve uh, and so to the extent that those people are training in health careers and they need um, um, uh, residency opportunities, it may well be that, you know, we could actually put a clinic on the campus and staff it with their students, uh, and, there's, and, and then they get their care within AHX. So we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out a way that this is a, you know, um, a uh, symbiotic thing where it actually helps us and collectively to benefit the community. So we're exploring those opportunities right now. The long-term thing is not just the traditional health workers, but the new workforce that we need for the future, like helping co-design it you know, healthcare folks and the That's absolutely right. And we're doing that not just with them, but, you know, UC Berkeley actually and their School of Public Health has a, uh, a program called Health Careers Connection. And uh, we've been, not just us, but other delivery organizations, Kaiser Center, Children's Hospital, and others, mm-hmm. uh, are, have been working very actively with them for a, a, a major grant that they're seeking uh, to actually help with the healthcare workforce of the future. So we're not just talking, again, the traditional roles, but some of the newer ones that are coming up, like community health outreach workers, uh, really trying to get entry-level roles for people who actually, in many cases, depending on what the need is, provide a higher value uh, to being able to help people in the community. You've seen some of the work that we do in that space. So, okay. so partner, we're trying to partner as much as possible. This is yeah. not all build-it-ourselves approach right. because that's not going to be sustainable or it's going to take us a lot longer to get it done. So we, we heard some of your feedback. If you have more, now's the time. These questions were just intended to stimulate thoughts that you may have, but, but any feedback on, on what we've discussed would be useful, including how you want to measure it and what that should look like for you. We'll reflect on it and think about things that we think would be useful to you, but obviously we want you to tell us what is it that you think is going to be important to measuring success in this area. This is completely off mean, um, from left field, I think, but... As a person who works in the institution, I keep hearing, you know, sort of frustration with actually being able to get a job. That, that HR is kind of broken on the how do I apply for a job here level. And I'm wondering if we're, you know, never hearing back or it takes weeks and weeks to get uh, hear anything. Are we working on that as well? Yeah. <laughs> so um, there are there are probably three or four parts of that. So the first is we have an interim director of talent management to the org that you saw in the org chart. She'll start on Monday morning. Uh, the manager of recruitment will return from maternity leave on Tuesday. On Monday we have a new uh, employee starting, and in the following two weeks we have two new employees starting. And so our issue has been a bandwidth issue that we've been trying to address. Um, out externally, uh, we've been reworking with our internal IT partners to redesign the website. One of the issues is the website's difficult to navigate, but worse than that, the, app, the recruitment application itself is worse. Uh, Position Manager is, is the technology we use. It's, a, it's an older system, and at some point we'll, we'll be able to replace it. We're going to pull out all the, um, 
the uh, jobs from the recruitment system onto the website, which makes it much easier to navigate. It becomes much easier to apply, and that should speed up the process significantly. So one's a staffing issue that we've addressed. We think over the next three weeks that should have resolved itself. The website will probably take until February, and then it will be relaunched with new information and, a, and an easier manner in which people can navigate the website and apply for jobs. Another element to that is, though, that um, uh, so those are probably big fundamental parts of it, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the entire recruitment and hiring process. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we, we do, I think, uh, and I know that uh, Gassan, or Luis and, and Tony have been talking about this, but we do need a tracking mechanism to figure out, like Tom, when, they said, when uh, applications or, or resumes are being posted, mm -hmm. when they get to the hiring manager, how that process carries out mm -hmm. uh, all the way through selection and hiring. So, so the, the staffing resources mm -hmm. have been a kind of an impediment to that. And so... Uh, HR, as you hear, is building that up, but then beyond that, uh, having a reliable system to kind of look at how we're doing the, mm -hmm. the actual uh, hiring part uh, as something we're working on. What, what is the average timeline? Application filing to finish? To, to offer. Accepted offers 52 days, and then from that point, you've got the onboarding process, which is background check, pre-employment screening, and that varies in length depending upon... The biggest barrier to that is if someone worked in Contra Costa County, there's only one person verifying uh, criminal convictions, and so that can take a long time, or it can be very quick. And so depending upon where the individual lived previously, it can slow the process down significantly. It can be a week, or it can be you know six or eight weeks. And a fingerprint? Do you we don't do the fingerprint. No, we, we don't do a fingerprint. We do. Uh, we use a, a background check company. It validates all criminal convictions. Local convictions, they have to go to the place of the record, regardless if you did a fingerprint. That's how, that's how they check criminal convictions. And so when they have one person in the county delivering information out to everyone that's looking for this sort of information, it slows down. Contra, contra fingerprinting is no longer viable? Is that, is that the idea? No, we don't, we don't fingerprint people when they're hired. I'm not following the I'm not following the question. I don't uh, we don't fingerprint. We don't fingerprint because fingerprinting is not a viable method of no. screening? No, we have never done that here. There's as far no as I know. It's not necessary. In doing it. Doctors have to, to get a license, I think I had to do, be fingerprinted, yeah. but we use social and a couple of other identifiers or how you run a background check in most employers. Fingerprinting is not typical. Yeah. It's I, not a typical practice. When I worked in L.A. County, it wasn't a condition or it wasn't a part of my uh, mm -hmm. uh, background check process. But because of the there's, there was I actually don't know the reason for it, but it was something that had something to do with like high security, FBI kind of thing, because we had this really uh, high risk um, um, radiologic something in mm -hmm. our in our uh, lab and because I managed that or, or oversaw the organization I had to have my fingerprints on some FBI database but but that was it it was it was not as a condition or the process of important state and oh. national things yeah. sometimes right. require well oh, I, I, I yeah. asked it because it was when mm -hmm. we hired teachers it was just right. a, a very yeah. fast way to get yeah. to get clearance mm -hmm. we bought our own fingerprint machine you work through the state right. they authorize your machine you have it there in the office they come in you print them and you know within 48 hours whether or not there's a, mm -hmm. a conviction or a criminal record. So I, I just wondered maybe, you know, I've been out of the system for mm -hmm. a few years now, so maybe it's antiquated and it doesn't use it. That's what it yeah. um, A final comment that I want to make particularly, and you asked Delvecchio about what the board wants to, mm -hmm. wants to hear. And, and my response to you is I think that you need to tell us what you want to measure. 
because if you ask us, it may not be what you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. And so as a person dealing with testing and assessment, I believe that it's you assess what it is you're doing and not setting up the assessment so that you do what we're what we want to test. Do, do you understand the difference? I, I totally so do. Yeah. That's what I would say is you take a first run about what are the things you think we ought to be we ought to be holding you accountable for. Right. Relative to the implementation of this and then we can give you feedback on that as opposed to our telling you what we want to measure. So that's that's fair. Um, what I what I have seen, and perhaps I'm uh, interpreting it correctly, but but we will we if we come up with that, what I like like for example for today, although this is an initial thing, I don't want to uh, uh, not get the benefit of your respective expertise around things that you've seen in the field or in the industry and what have you, and say this is what we want to do without understanding then if you think this is you're looking at entirely the wrong this sort of thing. So we can t start at, at that as a starting point and then get a consensus consensus on that and then, you know, uh, kind of keep that process going if, if that's the way uh, okay, you prefer to do enough. it. But we, we can try it that way. Could you upload this to Board Effect? I don't think it's in our... No. Uh, this one wasn't. Yeah, yeah. This is, we'll, we'll put this up. We, we, yeah. were, so we were tinkering into the last that, one. Yeah. That, that yeah. Yeah. Graph. yeah. We'll um, send it to you. And... Um, if I could, I, mean, I think you're absolutely on the right track. Honestly. I mean, I, um, I I really think there's some rich, uh, yeah, these great. Um, and then as far as like the monitoring, um, I don't know. Like, again, I used to post. I haven't mentioned this in a while, but like bring bring us um, you know, bring us some decisions to make. Mm -hmm. You know, where 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 we where you know, if you're finding problems in this particular area or that, or, or you need to see a funding allocation over here or over there, you know, bring us decisions like that as you mm -hmm. check in on it. I always think that, like, it feels good not just, just to track, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're in the right direction, but, you know, if we have to choose between A and B, you know, as a board, what do you, what do you want to see us choose? And I think that's always really helpful when we get that. Sure. Well, do you expect yeah. with the re-establishment of the HR committee that that would be helpful for, yeah. for these yeah. two, yes. you know? Continue on. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope you can detect there was there was some thought to kind yes. of the, the complimentary education presentations, knowing that HR committee was something you you wanted. We personally yeah. uh, kept that one in with the time constraints, and uh, knowing that QPSC was something. And quite honestly, we've talked about this that the effort last year to kind of move quality up to the board level didn't quite materialize, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, we want to make sure that quality stays uh, a big focus of not just what we're doing, but what you are. Uh, looking at and prioritizing as well, and so the purpose of those two discussions was to enable those things. But yeah, we certainly see those committees being agents of uh, our ability to kind of bring that focus to the board. Would be help for timelines and milestones. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. we can right. include that at the bottom of the dashboard. Sure. Right. We get a sense of you know what are your plans in the future. If you miss some of these milestones, why were they missed? Yeah. And what have you done as a corrective action to kind of move forward? Fair point. Yeah. Thank you. Good. So, so I want to just offer an observation while I'm neutral and not worried about something in particular and then later it can be more escalated. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so I just want us to understand that diversity and inclusion is a body of science and it is beyond selecting people. It's how we do the work that we do. It's how we think about how we approach patients who are diverse. It's about how we even um, 
describe certain programs or are promoted in the community. So my heartburn mm. about the org chart mm -hmm. is that it looks like diversity got slapped onto somebody's job. And I don't want to I don't want to say that that's what I know. That's how it felt. Okay. And it's so important for our organization not to do what so many others do, which is it gets relegated over here, mm -hmm. and it isn't somebody's full-time focus. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't somebody's full-time focus, it, it gets, you know, kind of parceled out. So it hasn't happened. I'm bringing mm -hmm. it up because I need to just put it out there mm -hmm. in a neutral way right now. Sure. I have concerns about where that person's sitting. I have concerns that it's kind of sidebar there. Mm -hmm. And if there's some way in your thinking about HR going forward in the structure, mm -hmm. that that have a little bit of a different elevated role, that would be good. Ideally, we need a chief diversity officer. You know, what mm -hmm. What I would respond to you is that the, the idea of diversity needs to be the responsibility of the CEO. And you as a board member in Dale Vecchio's goals and objectives, yeah. Yeah. that needs to be that yeah. needs to be articulated. So we hold him accountable and yeah. he in turn does what he needs to do to have that that thing. So yeah. as we begin to develop his new goals and objectives, and if you feel strong enough that diversity and you want the rest of the board to buy in, then we need to set a goal to the yeah. to the CEO that this is an important thing and we're going to expect you to. And so that's how I see a board holds the organization accountable for mm -hmm. the improvement of Understood. diversity. Understood. Mm -hmm. and, and just recognize that there, there are other hospital systems that have chief inclusion officers or chief diversity officers. There's now a new thing called chief belonging officer, which mm -hmm. is a really new thing. And, and I'm just raising that as, yeah. a, as a basis of my concern, sure. that in such a prominent community that has such diverse populations that we serve, we, we may need to highlight that. So yes, okay. I'll hold your hand. <laughs> I don't doubt that you will, and uh, I, I readily accept it. Let me put it that way. And uh, while that is uh, certainly a component of that one title, it, it is not just in, you're just seeing HR now. Uh, there's no title and, and a person dedicated solely to diversity in any of the other support areas either, to be honest, or forthright. Uh, but what there is is an expectation in every area that diversity, inclusion, health equity are, are, are themes that run through um, um, PACE, which we used to be governmental community relations and, uh, and marketing and communications. We've now uh, rebranded it as public affairs and community engagement, and a part of that, their structure and some of their work, if you saw their work plan, is how do we get out into certain communities and, and uh, share the work that's been done in, in the organization, both as an extension of the health outside of our walls, but also as a, a, an avenue for marketing uh, AHS in a diverse way and bringing that into the organization. Uh, within population health, health equity is there, and so we'll be looking at what sort of initiatives are we looking are prioritizing as we look at the various uh, redesign efforts to look at a diverse population. Uh, and like that. So, yeah. so there will be more. Uh, this is just, again, one part of support services that is tied to a committee that's going to be restructured. So. I mean, my feedback would be if all of this is a, what you brought to us. You must have had a lot of other things that you were thinking of. None of this is superfluous. All of it needs to be done 
you know, you're totally on the right track. I would say use kind of piggybacking on what uh, Trustee Hernandez said is that while he health equity is a, a you know, outcome that we seek to achieve, like eliminating disparities, in the processes that you do to s normalize what a just culture is, s spend some time thinking of what does equity mean? Because what your meaning of equity is, what my meaning of equity is, what your meaning of equity is, totally different. And um, so just kind of norm to normalize what it is, the early adopters, we see you as the early adopters driving the process, grassroots to tree drops, yes, getting the feedback. But A, um, you know, and then there are other tools that our county are using where you use for any decision-making process. You use a ray, uh, like an equity-based lens, just to see this is the decision I'm making. Who is being burdened by it? Who's being benefited by it? If so, which, so kind of, for every process you use, you use that equity lens to see inadvertently, we had no idea, but a certain segment of our constituents was very negatively impacted by a decision that we made. So yep. using that results-based accountability tool across a just culture a great has point. to be like come together. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you, not, not having used a tool, but I think it would be a great thing to do in the future. Uh, one, one example of a, a conversation we, we, um, uh, Kinsey and I were having around this was related to Magnet. So, so uh, one of the ways in which the uh, goal and the drive towards Magnet has manifested in the organization, not necessarily because of a requirement of Magnet uh, uh, exclusively, uh, but because of our own sort of uh, drive along those lines, was that all of our nurses in the organization would be BSN prepared, uh, which uh, as an industry standard throughout nursing uh, is a growing, um, there's a growing acceptance in the, in the field, if you will, that, um, that that two additional years beyond an associate gets you additional critical thinking skills that actually help you to, uh, be, uh, to make better judgments in the clinical setting. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, uh, but it is a growing body of evidence that supports that. So our push towards making sure that all, all of our nurses um, or the nurses we're recruiting were all BSN prepared, um, when we stepped back and thought about it, um, there was a potential for that to uh, be a, have a disproportionate adverse impact on uh, not necessarily a racial part of the community, but certainly a socioeconomic uh, part of the community, which could then be uh, racially um, disproportionate. And so as we talked to the folks at um, um, the Peralta District, one of the things we thought, thought about was just inherently, you know, the difference between getting a two-year degree and a four-year degree could be several thousand dollars. And if you come from a, you know, a challenging background where you're trying to um, uh, um, sponsor and fund this yourself or do it through loans, you know, that's going to benefit people who have the ability to do that or to, to absorb those costs over four years where someone else may not be able to. So, so what we've talked about in trying to take an equity lens to it is how do we, um, how do we design processes both for people who we currently employ who have AAs uh, or people who may be in the job place who have AAs to say, we do want our nurses to be the best prepared nurses and the best uh, uh, skilled nurses uh, in, the or, or, you know, in the area. So could we uh, apply a a criteria that said that we will, because we think from an equity perspective it makes sense, we will continue to hire nurses who have an a RNs, who have an AA uh, background, but we will do that with the condition that within X amount of years, you will go on to get your bachelor's. And we appreciate that the fact that now you have an, a, a job with a pretty substantial income allows you to do that more reliably. And additionally, we will try to bring in 
some resources that uh, we bring to bear that actually may help people to do it uh, them, uh, you know, within the organization. We try to look at like whether we can do a commitment for, because I, I used to be on the board of Health Professions Education Foundation for the state, and um, we gave scholarships to scholarships or grants to people who were going to work in underserved communities, and you, in, ex, in exchange for accepting that financial support, you made that commitment that for two years at least, you know, I would do this, um, uh, and that was to offset, you know, the fact that if you went somewhere else, you may be able to be paid more, you know, uh, other sorts of considerations. So, so to the extent that we then further because uh, we won't be able to do it for everyone, but if we are able to subsidize uh, even further somebody's ability to get that, um, we're, we're exploring whether legally we could actually say this, the exchange for this is you will continue to work within the organization for another year or two or you agree to pay back the funds mm -hmm. so that we can actually keep turning the organization. But those are things that we took in, you know, before we just said, no, this is the important thing to go, and we weren't thinking about from the equity perspective who this might impact uh, uh, unfairly and certainly unintentionally. But, it's a, but the tool, I, I've, I've heard about it actually, and I didn't think about that, so thank you. The school systems do it with teachers. You do? All the time, yes. Or you did. You do, did. You do. You do, you do. Anything else, Tony? No. Thank good. you so much. Thank this you. was very, very informative. Yeah. yeah. And thank you for the feedback. It's very helpful, and it's good to hear it reflected back once you've seen it on how, what you would like to track and where there are areas for us to work on. So it's good. It's thank a, you. This was really good. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Okay, do you want to take so, a break or yeah, do you want to move? Yeah, we should take a, make the bladder gladder. Yeah, make the bladder gladder. We're doing good on time. We have David's, uh, David and I will present about St. Rose and that's the end of the day. So we're okay. Yeah, where's the
I'm calling us back to order. Okay. Two minutes. Two minute warning. We have two. Okay, I'll move the meeting back to order and turn it over again to Vecchio. Okay. Uh, so uh, another um, important item that was, I think, prompted actually by a request from the trustees uh, because uh, Trustee Lawrence and I are sitting on this, uh, uh, this St. Rose task force, but uh, certainly there's also a request that uh, came forward from uh, Supervisor Valle, who sort of convened the task force uh, for this group to opine uh, about uh, what's going on with respect to St. Rose and a, a particular uh, proposal that's, um, that's on the table, if you will. Uh, this doesn't require an action item, and so we've put it forward for discussion. Uh, it could, depending on how this transpires, um, could certainly lead to an action item uh, on a future agenda. And so um, I, I apologize. We, 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 we have been working with the county and uh, outside partner to uh, pull together the memo to uh, fully sort of um, give you all the details we thought were pertinent for you to have an informed discussion. So it took us a while to get there, so I don't know how much you've been able to uh, look at it. But David, um, I'll turn it over to David to, to walk you through it. Um, but effectively, uh, just uh, to wrap up the context part here, uh, the county uh, recognizes St. Rose as an extension of the safety net uh, writ large uh, for the organization, and uh, it's a fair consideration because St. Rose uh, does uh, care for a a fair amount, amount of Medi-Cal uh, patients in particular. Uh, the county has long provided support to St. Rose um, uh, to uh, sort of shore up their, their organization's finances. Uh, but in the past four years now, about four years ago, um, um, when St. Rose was on the verge of uh, insolvency and closing, um, uh, they were able to broker a management relationship with a private company, Electco, and Electco's been 
with the organization now for over that time and helping to kind of stabilize things. Uh, but uh, they are see, uh, they are continuing to see a need for additional uh, county support, and uh, the county wants to do that in a way that uh, is sustainable. And uh, part of that has some implications and bearings for AHS. And so uh, David can walk us through the details, and then the uh, goal here is that you all have a discussion that uh, Trustee Lawrence and I can reflect back to the community uh, or uh, to that task force uh, to inform their activities. So David. Okay. So I'm on page two of the memo, which is the uh, <clears throat> proposal that's on the table. Uh, there's two parts of it. Mm. The first is that the county would take some of their Measure A money, a million and a half a year for three years, and direct it toward St. Rose. And that would qualify for a match from the federal government <clears throat> of a million and a half a year. So essentially they would get three, three, and three. Okay. doesn't affect us, not out of our pocket. Um, the next thing they want to do is just for 2017, which is the year we're in, they're proposing to um, redirect six and a half million of county general funds. Uh, that would also qualify for a match, an IGT, so that would be 13 million. Um, and then in addition, they would direct a million and a half dollars of health pack funding to St. Rose. Uh, it's not clear whether that comes out of our pocket or not. Um, <clears throat> one of the benefits of this is if the county pays St. Rose for uninsured services, when we file our GPP Medi-Cal waiver report, we have to count their services. Because okay? the, the feds look at the county and HS as if we want for this purpose. So they don't get any um, of that money, any of the health pack money now? <clears throat> um, I don't believe so. Yeah, we, we don't believe they have a health pack. They, so, so health pack funding is a contracted care for uninsured patients. Yeah. And so yeah. so they don't currently contract with the county to care yeah, for Yeah, they, they are listed as provider for emergency services, but right. not inpatient. Mm -hmm. so, anyway. um, now, it's that last, this last part that <clears throat> has the potential to affect us, and we're not sure exactly um, how this is going to work, but uh, the potential here is that essentially eight million, I think the most, would come out of our bucket, our, our funding. Now, <clears throat> um, the reason I say I'm not sure is because, you know, I was talking to Rebecca and she had one story, and then I talked to Dr. Clannon and she had a difference. No, 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 we're not going to, because it was like, we're going to take the money out of Health Pack and do this. And so, what are we going to cut out of Health Pack? She says, no, 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 we're not going to cut Health we don't really know. Um, but <clears throat> there's this, this other bucket of money uh, that has to do what's called the uh, AB85 realignment. And this is the money that comes uh, back and forth between the, the state and the county, uh, which is intended to provide funding for the uninsured. Okay? And this year something different has happened based on our filed reports on what we think is going to happen in 2017, is that the, um, the state is giving the county back about $26 million and change, which comes to us because it's our, our unreimbursed costs. And so Rebecca's initial idea is, well, you know, you're getting this 26 and a half. Why don't we take eight out of that, give it to St. Rose, and you're still ahead. You've got 18 or 19 million. Okay. And we couldn't find anything to do with that. 
Well, I mean, it sort of, it sort of found money. It wasn't expected. Right? So it's not in anybody's budget. The problem with it from our standpoint is we believe we're probably going to have to pay it back. And the reason is when this initial uh, report uh, was run, and it was pre prepared by Nancy Katz, who's the reimbursement person for both the county and us, uh, she put in uh, expected reimbursement of about $32 million on the AB85 cost guarantee this year. Now, we know that it's going to be in excess of 60. We've, we've verified that three different ways. It's going to be 60 to 70 million dollars. So the question is, if when this thing gets audited two years from now, and the state comes in and says, well, you know, we thought it was going to be 30, but you got 60, so the money we gave you way back when, you got to pay back. Now, it's not quite that simple because when we finally get audited, they'll look at our actual costs. And if we get paid more on, on the cost guarantee, maybe our costs are higher. So, so we don't really know. What we do know <clears throat> is that this money is going to come in, the 26.5, in cash. Um, Rebecca has said that money will come to us, probably minus the $8 million. When it comes to us, it's going to go right back to the county because the county sweeps all of our cash. So essentially what it's going to do is just reduce the line of credit by whatever we get, probably 18 or $19 million. Um, And at this point, we're probably not going to book that as income. We'll just reserve it because we don't really you know. You have to pay it back. We yeah. don't know. We have to pay it back. Mm -hmm. so, so if we don't book any more revenue and then... Uh, the county comes in somewhere else and says we're going to take part of your health pack money or something else. That has the potential of being an income hit. Like if they, we know she's intending to redirect one and a half million of the health pack contract. That would probably come out of our revenue. Now, granted, we'd probably pick up eight hundred thousand on GPP, so it kind of washes. So um, that's kind of where we are we do have you know we have that concern about you know this money is probably going to get paid back we have some other concerns one of them is um the potential of this being what's called a private benefit transaction uh gary's probably familiar with this but essentially if you're you're not for profit you really can't give away charitable assets to a for-profit entity it's called a nermit or private benefit okay it's okay to pay the money if you're getting something for it. So we want you to take care of these patients for us, and that's fine. Okay, and the reason it could be private benefit is is the presence of this for-profit entity in the equation, which is Electo. It's a for-profit company. Um, mm -hmm. They have a management contract. Uh, it was 2% of net revenues, which we think is about 2.4 million a year. I pulled out their 2015 Oshpod report, and it lists the payments as 3.4. Maybe there were some other services in there. But it was just increased to 4% or 3.75. So that means this company is going to get, be getting paid $4 million a year. And that's on top of the management because the CEO is actually an employee of the hospital, not Electo. Um, but the, uh, the real problem. No, 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 no. That part's not right. No? I think he, you know, he's an employee of. of uh, of electo. But is under but his does, So he's under, under the management he's, contract. So does the hospital administrator work for the management firm? No. That's what the okay. Oh that actually says it. That, oh. it you know, this is the filing they made. So, you know. 
That's 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 okay. the Oshpot filing. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. In in the task force meeting, they they told us that he okay. didn't that well, he maybe it changed. Maybe it changed. Maybe he's in there. It could have. Yeah, when, recently when, I thought recently he got moved yeah. into. Okay. He became the CEO, CEO now. CEO yeah. Of yeah. So yeah. Before, before when it was uh, Lex there. Okay. So this is 2015. Oh no, it just changed, David. Okay. changed So, but the real issue we have, the real issue we have with this is that. Electo has an option to purchase the hospital. In fact, when they first got involved here, the idea was that they would purchase them. Uh, and then at the last minute, they came in and said, well, the numbers have changed, blah, 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 and we want to kind of pull back a little bit, but we want to have an option. So they're getting paid this management fee. They've got an option to buy, but not the requirement. Okay, so they're kind of in the catbird seat as long as they're, because they have no risk at this point. Uh, the problem is, <clears throat> if we or the county transfers money to them without any, you know, compensation consideration back. It's, that's a gift. So essentially, what that's going to do is going to reduce the debt. And guess what? The purchase price is the outstanding debt at the time. So what they're doing is they're just just letting this thing run along. Hopefully, they can get as much money in, pay down the debt, and then rehospital. Wow. So, so one thing they did do as a part of uh, the, the management agreement, understanding that they were going to uh, continue to rely on uh, some form of public um, um, assistance for these things like IGT matches and whatnot, is they, they said um, to the board of St. Rose that our management fee will be a percentage of revenues, as David uh, described, and they will carve out uh, any sort of uh, public um, charity that they got, and that was in one way trying to probably an attempt to deal with a potential inurement issue. Right. Uh, what it didn't recognize is that with this asset purchase agreement where they have right of first refusal for buying uh, St. Rose, that as long as they are operating it and paying down the debt, that price is going to come down, and effectively that could be a transfer to them. Right. Do we know what the debt is? We do. We do, because they file their balance sheet in Lashbot. And it's about it's about thirty six, thirty seven million dollars. Okay, I think it was around 40, 40 plus when they first got into this. It's a pretty cheap deal. It's come down somewhat, and yeah, was. Okay. Yeah, that's why they're going after the Eden dissolution too, because like Eden District, because yeah. they are hoping that some of that money again goes to offset. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. as as long as they can get a government entity to fund. The operating deficits. I mean, they have no incentive to do other thing, anything other than say, let us stay as the management company because they're getting you know probably four million dollars. And it's not entirely clear that yeah. uh, that they have set aside uh, consideration for funding from other sources. They've set from county sources. So so is that getting dollars from the county? They're not counting that towards their agreement. But if they were to get any money from Eden. Uh, it's not yeah. clear that they wouldn't count that as a part of their revenues as subject to the uh, management fee. Uh, and what we mm -hmm. do know is in the last year. Uh, the district did forgive a little over a million dollars of debt that uh, St. Rose Hospital owed to the district. Uh, so that has drawn down some of the debt as well. Yeah. So, so one way to one way to address this. We but that wasn't a transfer. I'm sorry. That was a forgiveness of a debt. So that wasn't a transfer from the county. No, but if you forgive debt, that's no, but forgiveness of debt lowers the purchase price. Right, right. So that's different from what. So we we thought of different ways yeah. to get around this. One is. We could say, okay, if you're going to, you know, give money to St. Rose, which is fine, 
but maybe the that amount gets added to the option price. Everybody wants to help St. Rose, not really interested in helping Electo. You know, so if we just you know up the up the, the other way is to say, well, if you just need cash, um, let us lend you the money. I say, can it be a loan? Because it'd be then it's on debt. Then they've yeah. still got to pay the debt off to get the hospital. What's the contractual agreement though with Aletto? Are, are they forever? Uh, uh, it was oh, just extended. Uh, the agreement was going to end, I think, next year. It was it three years? Extended year. for three, four more years. I think it was three years, and it would have ended this year. And I think they renewed it for it's another four renewed, years. Yeah. Yeah. Electa's website. It started in September 2012. Yeah, okay. and, right. and the first agreement was up. It was just renewed, for an additional term. But what what can be? I guess it sounds like they're kind of uh, a stand to benefit, obviously. Yeah. Now the only reason they would back out if somebody said we're not going to fund the operating losses, so you have. And they couldn't raise the debts, or they get bought out or something like that. But it kind of raises, I mean, apart from this, this is a short-term bailout. Right? It raises the issue of, well, you know, long-term, you know, where, what's the role of St. Rose Hospital in this community? Yes, sir? Yeah, that's kind of where I want to go. Like, mm -hmm. I'd like to take a step back from this, this immediate uh, proposal mm -hmm. and, and, and look at that bigger question, which I think you're on this task force talking mm -hmm. about. And Well, so far we've only been talking about the immediate issue. Okay. Well, because, I mean, as long as I've been around, well, in that Alameda long? County. That long? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, Dale Steele was the patron patron saint of St. Rose, and now Richard Valle is. Like, like every supervisor who represents that district is always trying to save St. Rose. And, give, and getting the county to fund it, you know, like since I worked for a supervisor in 2001, and I think it's a noble cause. I'm not, I'm not against it at all. Um, and I, by the way, I thought that the county has been giving St. Rose Measure A money every year yeah. since its inception, since uh, 2004, about yeah. five million, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm about I think five so, million so. a year, I think, yeah. wasn't it? Total support they've been giving them is fluctuated, but it, it's been a combination of general funds and Measure A. I think it, the number is going as high as like. Nine or ten million. Yeah, but measure eight dollars. So just let's just be clear that the twenty-five percent of measure eight that doesn't come to AHS, a chunk of it has gone to St. Rose from the beginning because that was the only way we could get the political support to get measure eight passed. Because that was how we got Dale's endorsement and Charlie Plummer's endorsement and and, and the hospital's endorsement. Like I, I helped art you know manufacture mm -hmm. this back. When I had a ponytail, mm -hmm. um, long, long time ago. <laughs> um, now you have to prepare. <laughs> so, um, you know, it seems to me that St. Rose is an important, is a very important part of the healthcare network, the public healthcare network in Alameda County, mm -hmm. and I think it should be part of Alameda Health System. You know, as a part of the network to make our network stronger. And I don't know if we have the capacity to do it at this point, but maybe in five years. I see it similarly to St. San Leandro or, or Alameda as a chance to give employees flexibility to create a network of care that guarantees coverage. Now again, I don't know that we're ready to do that right now, but in the future, yeah. the, the, it's not the, going to survive as a freestanding hospital. It, it won't, but the big difficulty is 2030, it, 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 it seismically has to be re retrofit huge amount of cost so we're only talking about basically 15 years of viability for a hospital and then that thing 
comes down. So, so they're gonna. That's a big chunk of money to repair that hospital. But 15 years is a lot of lives. And look at that area. Where else do people go? You're not going to go to Fremont, Washington. That's not going to work. You're not going to come here. So the other person, the other group that I'm just going to say again, what about Sutter? How come they're not involved? They're actually, they should be motivated to be at the table because if they're not going to St. Rose, they're going to go to Eden. Mm -hmm. Kaiser has, when, when I think as a condition, uh, part of closing down their um, Hayward, uh, was it, wait, which, which Kaiser facility closed? And then, I forgot. When they opened the one in San Leandro. The, the children's the one, one, the no, one. No, the Kaiser location. So I forget which facility closed, but they opened one right off the 880. Right. Uh, they opened in San Leandro. Yeah, I think they closed the Hayward one and opened right. San Leandro. Uh, they've been giving about... Two or three million dollars a year for the last three years to St. Rose, um, primarily to sustain the ED because they were they were uh, uh, losing ED access or the community was losing ED access, uh, and they are in the last year of that Kaiser grant. And I'll tell you, I don't think Washington can absorb those ED visits. They, they don't have the facility for it. Yeah. You know, Eden would would be buried as well. So I mean, the, the primary reason that it, ha it has to be saved. Or it's ED. Mm -hmm. Those emergency services are critical to that part of the country. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I mean, the long term solutions, somebody's got to take it. Mm -hmm. So, so like the Reddies are well, ready. No, no. And you all may know that uh, um, there, was a, there was a desire on the part of my predecessor to, to actually uh, uh, bring St. Rose into the system. Uh, uh, and that was. The pre or around the time of the others, but I think there was actually, a, a, unlike uh, uh, some of the others and how they came to pass, it was actually an active push to uh, uh, to get St. Rose when it was being considered by uh, Electo and at one point Washington even uh, in partnership with the county. Uh, neither of those material, well, Washington didn't materialize. Um, the impression I've gotten, though I can't get a, a, a completely um, uh, consensus answer here is that St. Rose wasn't particularly interested in being a part of AHS at that, that, that time. Um, uh, and so then uh, the only remaining option was to have some, some other entity and that entity became elective. Mm -hmm. It came into over, but they're still operating it as a freestanding uh, community hospital. So, so the rest of the memo sort of uh, goes into some of the other considerations, some of which you've already talked yeah, about. Yeah, and I think that, you know, from a long-term sustainability standpoint, <clears throat> the St. Rose Hospital would be best positioned as part of a county-based community health system like HS because there are very significant reimbursement opportunities that exceed what they're going to get as a community-based hospital. So whether that's enough to offset losses or whether the county is going to have to continue to step in, the situation will be better for everybody if we maximize reimbursement for that facility. Um, and then, then you get to the, you know, strategic opportunities of bringing um, that facility into the network, coordinating referrals, extending uh, uh, ambulatory care further south, you know, a whole range of opportunities. Uh, I have had, um, I've talked to Rich Gianello, who uh, HFS did a reimbursement review a couple years back. I've talked to Nancy Katz. Everybody believes there are really significant opportunities here to uh, make the entire system work better. 
by bringing this hospital in. And by the way, the retrofit question could potentially be, um, I mean, the county has an interest. They sometimes build things and have us run them. Yeah. The estimate at the time was, was 70 to $80 million when the study was done. For, for a retrofit? Yeah, 70 to $80 million. Yeah. Has anything changed with the state in terms of what their thinking is for the 2030? There is there is discussion happening right now uh, in Ashpad about the requirement. I mean, a lot of facilities are are tracking towards the 2030 compliance, but there's still a number in the state that, uh, that are not. And uh, Bob David, who runs Ashpad, the last time I saw him, mentioned that the state was looking at a different set of considerations around I forgot what they call the low-rise buildings, but there are buildings um, that don't um, go over a certain uh, number of stories that um, they may actually be introducing a, a different set of considerations. Because I think these, the ones that are still struggling uh, with this now are, tend to be smaller rural um, um, critical access facilities. And so they're looking at you know, whether there can be a different set of, uh, of requirements that don't jeopardize the, uh, the seismic risk of a place but also don't uh, saddle or burden them with this incredible expense. And I suspect as we get closer to 2030 this problem is going to just become larger and larger. Mm -hmm. and they're going to have to revisit. Well you know in the first couple of years that happened several times. The date kept being pushed back because nobody was actually moving on this because nobody had the resources to do it except maybe Kaiser and Sutter um, uh, and a few others. Uh, uh, but eventually um, you know, there was, there was, I think, three rounds of this when the state said, no, yeah. you know, this is a safety issue and we have to hold firm. And so then we gave, gave people timelines to come up with those plans. But you're, it's quite possible that, you know, 2020, because these, these projects take about, you know, six to eight years on an aggressive schedule to get done. Mm -hmm. So if around 2020, 2021, uh, if there aren't some pro uh, organizations in that process, then they may certainly look at this again. Mm -hmm. 4D, yeah, yeah. SPC 4D. Oh. They've come out with a structural performance condition of 4D, where it used to be 1 through 5. They've come up with this hybrid called 4D that uh, is considering some of these buildings where they're saying, look, you know what, it's not realistic to say that everybody's going to go ahead and build a whole new hospital. What can we do to some of these low-rise buildings where we can go ahead and make some retrofits structurally to improve its performance where it'll save and reduce the cost? So that's what that 4D is. So, again, there's still some work that needs to be done, but it is not as significant as having to build, tear down, and build a whole new facility. And what do they consider low rise? Anything under five stories. Under five. Okay. Well, what are you saying? Five or under. Anything under. Four. Under seventy-five feet. Yes. It's probably three or four. The last time I was out there, I can't remember actually. Yeah. You know, this came up in San Francisco. We were hired uh, to look at St. Luke's when CPMC. Uh, you on the blue ribbon test. I was a consultant for that. Oh, I see. So anyway, um, my the shroud of confidentiality about stuff <laughs> still remains. But my observation was that at that time, it was uh, dismissed. You know, it's uh, an old hospital. It doesn't really, you know, need to be there. We can just drive people down to the new CPMC, you know, the new facility, and that's going to be a problem. Well, there were some studies done about. What is the amount of time that it would take to get from the mission 
two, right? And, and those were problematic. Number two, there were a lot of other services that were provided out of that facility. So you're looking at the ED, but there's some other stuff that goes on. So that, that's the other side. And I don't, I, I, I don't feel comfortable about the Zaletto thing going on. I mean, it feels like they're, they're kind of sh like sharks, you know, waiting for the, you know. Opportunity. Yeah, an opportunity. And, and once they buy that, doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that they will keep the hospital open. So they can buy that property and tear it down and do whatever they want. No, I understand. That's so, why I think the even more reason for the county to say we we need to have health care in Southern Alameda County. Well, I think the county saying that is different than the than us saying that and we pay for it. So the county, out of their general fund dollars, not out of their health fund dollars, but out of their general fund dollars, should in fact respond to that community. And if they want to put it into our system, then they give us the money to put it into the system. But for us to take it out of our funds to be able, when you talk about, you talk about lives, it's shifting one life for another life unless you put more resources in to pull to pull that. And at this point in time, there's never been any conversation at this task force about the county coming up with any money. They've talked shortly. We don't know. We don't know what the salaries are of their individual um, CNNs. We we have no idea what what the cost effectiveness. We see a bottom line, and and they're running a deficit, so they're not profitable. They're running a deficit. They have a debt. They have the 2030 thing uh, on the horizon, and for us to take that on without dollars coming into us, I think is foolhardy. But that's just me. Well, if I could, can I can I say, I'm not saying we take it on now in the current situation, but I'm saying let's not let's make sure that what we recommend or agree to doesn't set it up to be impossible later. Like you know, I think that if anything. We should be strong with the county that you should not gift this money and reduce their debt. Mm -hmm. uh, let this be a debt. Let this be a loan. Mm -hmm. uh, let's keep let's keep score. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And 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 frankly, if the money that we're going to have to pay back, hopefully that eight million wouldn't we wouldn't have to pay that, that back. But there'd be a written in that St. Rose would have to pay that back, right? <clears throat> you would yes, you would think so. That eight of that twenty six, yeah, right. right? Like let's get that in writing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so that that's number two and number three. You know, it, as far as Eden Township, just uh, the dissolution or potential dissolution of Eden Township, as well, should not be a gift or a grant or a subsidy to St. Rose, but a loan. You know, that, that money should go to. God, I'd give it to healthcare services agencies so they can provide a loan to St. Mm -hmm. Rose, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, you know, maybe the loan is contingent on uh, certain information being provided, you know, ultimate transparency, so that we can make an informed decision about whether it's strategic in the next five years uh, to take over the operations as part of AHS. Maybe not, maybe not the physical plan. Uh, I don't know what the relationship looks like. It would be more like the Alameda Hospital relationship, where we, we don't own it, uh, but we, we run it, right, Tracy? Yeah, it's a good yeah. You know, like maybe maybe something like that. To, 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 I mean, again, my thought here is to provide appropriate access to health care for that part of the county yes. and, to, and to strengthen our right. network mm -hmm. to provide appropriate health care access to all Alameda County residents. With dollars coming from the county to right. support our, 
to, to support the ability for us to operate that. Right. Because if we take it on without those extra dollars coming yeah. in, yeah. They're, no. they're in debt, they're not running a, a, a profitable operation, we're, we're taking a pig and a poke. And while David says, over time, we can in fact, uh, because of the reimbursement dollars, we can get money, uh, you said, yeah, the different ways, the different, the different ways of leverage. And yeah. so it's yeah. not a total, it, in the future, it's not a total loss to us. But at present, it is. unless those monies come from the county to support this, I don't. I, I would well, be really nervous. Let me let me just say that you know we're we're doing this without full transparency. That's right. right. One of the things we should ask for is transparency and maybe an independent financial analysis of the plan to sustain the long-term viability of this organization. That's the plan to do it. Okay, that's one thing. I mean, I think. And the other thing is at the beginning here, I mean, it's, I think it's important to express support for St. Rose, but yes, to differentiate that from helping the elected. Absolutely. Of course. I, 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 yeah, 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 that should be like that. Say, you know, so maybe we have to somehow contribute, you know, a few million here, but the, the, the quid pro quo is we get this independent review so that everybody can look at what, what the best future is for this organization. And maybe they need to say not just the transparency but the finances. But I'd like the burden to be put out there on someone to look at what the lives lost might be mm -hmm. as a result of not having that facility. Oh, yeah. Indeed. You know, yeah. I, it's great that we're looking at the yeah. financial picture. I get mm -hmm. that. Right. But just like what happened at St. Luke's, somebody had to look at what really might happen if that facility isn't there. Well, they have a lot of people at the table. I mean, the mayor's there, but, you know, they've got community members there. So they're not going to let this thing close. What we have, I mean, I think there's a real passion to keep the hospital open. The question is whether or not, and, I, and I'm using this a nasty word, dumped on us to take care of it, or whether or not money is ponied up for us to be able to, to manage it in a... In a in a successful way so that it doesn't necessarily put us back where we have been four years ago, five years well, ago. I nominate you to go talk to Susan. <laughs> <laughs> so Susan's on, Susan's on the task force. Uh, I would echo that too. I think uh, sort of the, the difference here is, uh, at least at this stage, there's no discussion about any sort of inherent uh, decision to close St. Louis yeah. like it was with St. Louis. Uh, but with this uh, situation, it is a, 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 a conversation about two things in my mind. One is um, uh, the point that you all have been making, which is that we all support the county's efforts to support uh, St. Rose um, and, and not an electoral. But secondarily, then how do we maximize the support? That, what's the best way to maximize the support that the county is providing to St. Rose in order to secure its uh, sustainability? The third thing, I said too, sorry, the third thing, though, is um, this current plan um, involves, in some form or another, a redirection of resources away from AHS in order to achieve that support for St. Rose. And, and um, uh, it is a short-term, one-time solution, but it is a solution, no less, that uh, the, the task force wants to know if this board supports that. Because the way that, one way that it could materialize is um, that 27 million or so that they've uh, mentioned, um, it may not be that 8 million comes out of that 27 million uh, because those dollars are uh, ex explicitly expected and uh, healthcare services agrees with this 
to come back to AHS. Um, it's just that the contract that we currently have, the $32 million health pack contract, it's possible that either six or all eight of the dollar or million that they want to give to uh, uh, St. Rose could be a modification uh, of that contract so that eight million is effectively coming out of AHS revenue uh, or anticipated revenue via this contract and being redirected to St. Rose. So, so that's really the crux of what I think uh, you all have to... And those aren't the potential payback dollars? Uh, that that we would put in reserve in the event that we have to pay back to the to the state for those money. So no, they they aren't necessarily those eight million, but the eight million that would would effectively be the payback would be the ones that they would say we wouldn't actually count as revenue. We'd count as uh, assets that we put in reserve, uh, so that you know until such time as we know that you know we've trued up and we don't have to pay it back. But that could be years down the road. That's, it takes the state that long to So is there a double prices. hit two years down the road? So we've given the $8 million and we have to we pay back? There's a possibility. Yeah, see, so, that's so that, that hits mean. us twice then. Right. I mean, potentially. Yeah, we'd want to, you know, Rebecca wants us to sign an actual agreement that we're going to pay it back, so we would obviously council negotiate that. Two things. One, I'd really love to hear from uh, Kim Kinney. Tracy, because I think this must feel familiar. I mean, I think of, you know, Tracy, you represent Alameda and San Leandro, so you've been through this process of this important community asset, you know, being, you know, in this situation, so I really want to hear from you. And the second thing is then once we have, I, I almost think we should put forward uh, a resolution um, from the board, kind of our thoughts on this, um, to make it really clear um, that we can bring back to the business meeting in a couple of weeks that says, you know, a, we feel that you know protecting St. Rose is abundantly important in the county network, and B, uh, we feel that you know, with an under private management that uh, any assistance given should be a loan so as not to reduce the debt and make it more uh, attractive to a private entity that could potentially dismantle part of the public health care network. C, uh, we think that the county right. should keep, keep AHS at the table so we can begin to examine thoroughly and transparently the possible management of and incorporating of uh, St. Rose into the public health care network that we've created. Um, and uh, and D, with that, any funding that given that impacts our bottom line should potentially be taken out of our debt to the county. Mm -hmm. Right. So our credit line should we have, yeah, we have get adjusted. Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah. Some of resolution like that. Like, you know, we want to play ball, but we want to play ball fairly. To yeah. that point and to where Alameda was, I mean, Alameda had revenue that that, that is going to help support or, or um, defray some of the costs. And, and similarly to St. Rose, you know, Alameda is a community hospital that wasn't able to survive as a small community-based hospital with, um, in this market. And so... I agree. I mean, I, I'm. My concern is, and my my question, I guess, is with regard to the task force, was with regard to what came before. Um, was there ever any discussion of, of establishing a parcel tax or some tax revenue for St. Rose? They're, they're not a district. Um, they're a, a, a not for profit. Right. So, so they've never. Yeah, that would they'd have to they be don't a, have any tax a, a county or no, okay. the city of Payload or something. No, but they or were the city of they were giving them part of measure eight. But they actually fall within so Eden Healthcare's district. So I think the 
jurisdictional authority for it's a, on Eden. Yeah, it would be right. it would be on Eden if they had the ability to do it, and they were thinking about doing it before, but they were trying to. I think they polled and they thought the best chances uh, uh, rested at a two million dollar parcel tax, and that wasn't. So they're um, different from San Leandro and Alameda to the extent that they are this private nonprofit as right. opposed to a public nonprofit community hospital. Well, and San Leandro was private too, but a part of well, Sutter. They are well, private and yeah. independent now. Yeah. Well, they were public and then they were private and then they were part no, they of were, They were still a 501 c Right, but, but then they got purchased by. You know, one of the other distinctions I you know, might point out is that, you know, how these organizations are coming to us. I mean, St. Rose is coming to the county and will potentially to us for help, but Electo is not. Whereas Bosal, you know, San Leandro Hospital and Alameda needed the help. There was nothing else in there. And I think one of the things that, you know, is the is a potential, you know, practical consideration in terms of how you go about doing this. And it's a little bit difficult to really, you know, evaluate it fully because, you know, I, I haven't seen, um, you know, complete master services agreement, the original agreement, and the purchase agreement, you know, understand fully what all the details of that are. But just from a sort of 20,000-foot view, you know, you look at this from electo's, you know, position, and, you know, they have an arrangement which pays them a fee, you know, assuming, you know, they generate X amount of revenue. They also have an arrangement, you know, where they can buy the place, you know, for some amount, which is not going to go up and, you know, probably more likely to go down at some point. And they don't really have any incentive to do anything, necessarily, other than to cut the best deal they possibly can or to leverage whatever deal it is. And so in terms of how forceful, you know, this organization might be in terms of pushing something along, you know, I think you might anticipate one response being that, well, if you don't want us to do this, what are you willing to do? And then sort of having, you know, your hand forced, if you will, in terms of, you know, what ultimately the decision you want to make. So I, you know, we're, you know, I think that there's some ways, you know, you know, hopefully that we'll be able to get our hands, you know, on the documents and do a little bit more of a um, detailed review, you know, because, you know, even if this sort of came to the point that the county says, okay, we're not going to need to give them any money, um, you know, Aletco still has, you know, the purchase option. And, you know, you just can't say, okay, fine, move out. You know, they basically, again, they're, are ways that they have, you know, potential or you know, perhaps to exercise some leverage here, you know, depending upon, you know, what you know, their best play is. And I think it's going to be incumbent upon, you know, this board to sort of understand those because, you know, it seems to me there's a couple, you know, one course of action, you know, is to, you know, seek the influence of the county. Another course of action, you know, is to perhaps, you know, not, you know, the degree to which, you know, that's sort of pushed, you know, because, again, you know, I would, sort of hate to see it, you know, sort of thrown back on you to, okay, if you're not going to do this, then we need to do that, and then you're sort of, sort of forced to a choice. Sorry, David, question for you. Um, what is the, uh, like, drop debt, do you know, actually, from the county perspective or the federal perspective for how, when, when you can no longer um, pursue a uh, IGT mat match if you have rate range? Is it yeah, there, there are certain dates. I'm not sure what the one is on the, the one that Rebecca's looking at for yeah. this particular one. Because for this, actually, what, what the, the total of the uh, uh, $8 million that she's proposing extends over three fiscal years, one of them being the last one, 15-16. 
uh, where, where the goal is to get them an additional three million because they have another three million that they could actually match. So, so to get them uh, uh, up to eight million so that they could match and, and get up to 16 million total. Just three million there, there's uh, an, an additional uh, 4.25 million in this current fiscal year and then uh, 750,000 for next fiscal year. I think the urgency was really more around 1516 mm -hmm. because it's already gone away. So, so there's also a prospect that the, the board could feel that the urgency really here in terms of supporting them is not eight million dollars, but instead is three million mm -hmm. potentially, and we should be trying to uh, not miss the opportunity to get drawdown federal dollars uh, in support of the county and the safety net uh, writ large for that amount, but then still press the fact that this other um, these other amounts need to be subject to a further due diligence to yeah. figure out what's the best way mm -hmm. to, to yeah. provide public dollars in support of yeah. well, I'm confused now. Who owns the property? Right now, it's owned by the St. Rose Board. The St. Rose Board. Yeah. It's, it's, so a, a, it's a community not-for-profit right. today. The this was the and actually, I think it's... Right. Yeah, Hayward Sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and because they were appointed by Cal Mortgage because of the bailout, does, does the state... I mean, I don't know. No, how the, the state has the ability to step in and take the assets. Right. The state bailed them out and actually re uh, required them to turn over their entire board. And so that's they did that. And so this, so I think it's still owned by them, but the state effectively has, this is what they were talking about in the, in the meeting, the state has the ability to, to call that debt effectively. And, 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 and they, w they wouldn't likely do that. Uh, uh, because of the, the uproar that that would have caused, but but effectively, I think the right answer to that question is it's still owned by that separate not. -for -profit. Yeah, it's owned by the not-for-profit. In the in California, I believe the attorney general has the right to whatever remains are left if a, if a not-for-profit. So de, uh, de facto, then the attorney, the state owns it. Mm -hmm. In, in the, the land. Yeah. The li yeah, I'm thinking it, about the land. The so, like you know. Yeah. What I was thinking, when we purchased San Leandro, it became an asset for us. And so we have that on, on our books as, as a property asset. Isn't that correct? Correct. It's so it's... It, yeah, if you, if you look on the deed, it's going to say Hayward Sisters Hospital. But, but Hayward Sisters Hospital owns it, but the state... Is the guarantor. Is the, the guarantor. guarantor yes. Okay, so if you were purchasing it... If one were purchasing it, the county or yeah. the HS, yeah. you purchase it from the the board, the, yeah, the, the sisters. Yes, and they would pay off the, the property. Yeah. But so you'd have to get subject. you'd have to get the approval of the county. Yeah, term. Oh, would it still be subject to? Oh yeah. Yes. Nice. Oh yeah. How much is that? Uh, it's about uh, thirty-six million. That's the thirty-six. I think so. Mm -hmm. Well. I mean, my, my, my earlier question, too, was about, is the community upset? Is the community in, in Alameda and, and San Leandro's for instance, it was driven by the community, the, these partnerships. And what is about the community in, in his? In I mean, I, I think there's a great community consensus about, gosh, this is our hospital, right. we should keep it open mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. But because of the non-transparency about, like, the ownership Correct. and right. the management, people just think it's... County. Yes. I mean, it's like 
So why doesn't the country just give it money and support it, but not understanding the nuances mm -hmm. of what these subsidies mean? So right. there's that lab for meeting coming right. mm -hmm. on November 7th. Um, seven? Uh, ten? I can't remember. Seven, seven, I think. Seven. That's when LACO meets? LACO is doing a community, you know, town hall uh -huh. or whatever it is. They did three, and I think this will be the second. Okay, the so this is in San Leandro. Mm -hmm. They're not doing it in Hayward. Oh, so maybe so they're only going to do two. The whole Hayward crowd is coming to San Leandro to talk about, like, and are yeah. the San Leandro and the Hayward names mm -hmm. are so great. Those need to get it seems to me, knowing a little bit about the CEO of Electo, who is also named as the CEO and the board president of St. Rose, that, as you say, that in lack of transparency, that organization, that's a conflict, and, and the fact that, that he's the head of the board of directors and the CEO of both companies, and um, he isn't anymore, but the guy who yeah. is well, works for him. Is okay, because in the most CFO. recent letter, it has it on there. Yeah, it just happened. Is it just the, happened the, Yeah. Well, then, but but it does seem to be a lack of transparency. It does seem to be the uh, you know uh, just um, the potential for losing the hospital for having them take over the hospital and then turn it into something completely different, which. Um, well, and that, I think that's the other piece, you know, the sort of thing about it. Sort of again, it goes to all the, the moving pieces, you know, because the best thing that sort of might happen is for St. Louis to be successful, which might only lead to Aletco then <laughs> hanging on to it long enough to turn it into what it wants, which right. puts you right back to this issue again. If in fact at that point, you know, the you know community, um, you know, concern over it, you know, comes up, and I think that's also something of a an imponderable, and you know, because Again, that's a leverage point for Letco. You know, and you know, they've seen what happened with San Leandro, they saw what happened with Alameda, and if they really evaluate enough of the community uproar over it, it gives them more options in terms of you know how they want to sort of play through this. So I think to some extent, going back to the point that you know Delvecchio started to make, you know, perhaps one other thing to sort of consider in terms of this is is there a piece of this that, that can be focused upon that, you know, essentially sort of protects what the concern is. It doesn't necessarily, you know, sort of force you to get to the larger issues. And so, you know, if it's just a question of coming up with $3 million to right now and, you know, a, a loan or an agreement for $3 million or $6 million is a lot different than, you know, a loan or an agreement for $16 million. So, so what do you do next year? That, that, see, for me, that's not mine, I don't think, um, for... What so we we stop it now? So we're good guys for this year, and we give the money this year. So now, what happens next year? So that's a that, that's a set of considerations you put around it. So again, I think the three million dollars don't, don't if if the issue is about three million dollars, it doesn't necessarily have to come from AHS. I think that's that's a point that's still uh, uh, valid to consider. But I think um, you could still say to the county. The fact that it's coming from taxpayer dollars, uh, in whatever form, that $3 million should be conditioned on we need to do a robust assessment of what will happen for the future, not just next year, but beyond. So it requires, it puts Aleko, the St. Rose Board, and the county on the hook to say what is the best way to sustain this organization going forward. Not just fiscal resources, but if it were, and part of that exploration would be, you know, what if it were part of a, a 
designated public hospital system like AHS, what do the finances look like just as a current state, but also what are the operations of it look like? So do you need um, um, the same type of clinical services there at that same scale if you also now have ambulatory services that are, um, con are, are designed around keeping people out of the hospital? That was a point I was making to them. So right now, they can't, if you're just operating a hospital, you can't really realistically be focused on reducing admissions. Readmissions because there are penalties associated with it. But you can't be focused on reducing admissions because that's what you do. Your job is to take care of people in the hospital. So if you can get people out of the hospital, in our case as a system, it's a, it's a lower cost and a better thing for the patients to be careful in the community setting for them not necessarily. So, so you'd be looking at analysis and operations to say, we may not need as many acute care beds if we now add cl uh, clinical service or ambulatory services. The other thing, uh, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, but this is in the ether as a part of the discussion, this gets back to the earlier discussion about behavioral health, is there are assets on the campus that might be easier to design and retrofit to add acute uh, psychiatric yes. or yes. Uh, yes, absolutely into a system than to, say, go on to a four-year construction project on time. Okay, answer. so then l let me go to a practical standpoint. Let, let's assume that we buy time. And so $3 million comes to us or from, come from county. We buy time. Mm -hmm. the, do you see that the analysis, because this is, I don't see that the county's going to pick this up to analyze all of this. They haven't done it in the past. Yeah. That's been floundering for a long time now. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that it's going to go right to you. Uh, nope. It no? could go because the county would be giving the money to St. Rose. So you'd say, St. Rose, the condition of uh, me giving you these dollars is that you commission a study that you will do within the next six months or whatever that time horizon is. So you identify a consultant to That's a lecto. That's a lecto. Yeah, what, I think we want that's, what, what advantage does, I mean, oh, no, how I'm do we make a lecto? You condition it on the acceptance of the, the, the funds. So you said, no, Electo isn't the group that does the study. It would be somebody independent. Yeah, you say you, you have find to, an you independent entity. Board that they have to. Correct. St. Rose Board. Exactly. You tell St. Yes. Rose Board. The money so goes Saint to the Rose. St. Rose Board, not to the management company. Well, they're just going to give it to them. Require that our chair be on the board. Because she has so much free time. <laughs> because only because who's money. on their board? Their board actually, I think, had to be appointed. By, well, I don't know if it's still the case. But Dave Kears is their chair still, I believe. It was uh, Dave, Dave Kears who yeah. used to run healthcare services. And he's also uh, on the telemedicine. Dave Kears used to run HCSA, okay. and he had a yes. somewhat a of a reputation for wanting to privatize public health. In 2015. So, so he's telling you who the 2015 board is. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Here it is. Clifford Wong, MD. Jay Harris, who we know, he works for UCSF. Dave Kears. Michael Marciano, internal medicine. Fred Naranjo, insurance agency. And Katrina Sims, local media company president. Who's the guy from the bank? There's somebody from, from the mortgage company on there. Who's that? Maybe it's changed. It's not. No, you're talking about Dave Kears, I think. No, no, no. Somebody from Cal Morgan. There's, there's somebody from yes, because when I went to go visit, ah. and he shook my hand, he gave me his card. I can see his face, mm. but I can't remember his name. This is year old. So. By the way, he's from the mortgage company, though. 
on Electo's website about the hospitals they've acquired, they're all like in debt, and then they get them. And yeah, it says that's about, their model. It says about St. Rose Hospital in September. After the intro, I won't read. In September 2012, St. Rose Board of Directors considered proposals from several interested parties and ultimately selected Electo as the successful bidder to acquire St. Rose. Exactly. So, I mean, they, there's no, make no mistake, they intend to acquire it. And um, I think we should have a real hard line with the county that yeah. we don't see a 44% Medi-Cal reimbursed oh. hospital as something that should be acquired by a private entity. Period. Yeah, there was a, at the time there was an independent study prepared for the AG so that they could approve this transaction. It's very clear that, you know, there was this issue of should it be electo, should it be HS. They said we want it to be electo because they were going to come in and, and buy it and run it. And then after they got it, they said, oh, well, you know, things have changed. And they negotiated the deal they've got now, which converted to an option and a variable. <coughs> and Dave Kears had a reputation when I first came to the county as someone, you know, the, the people thought he wanted to, to have the public health care system run private. He thought, that, he thought that employees were expensive and unions were difficult. And um, we would just contract um, out. With yeah, exactly. Con else. Contract it all out. And, you know, so funny, he also didn't, um, he didn't want to do Measure A. Uh, me and Nate had, like, he wanted to do a parcel tax to cover emergency medical services only. I'm like, no, man, let's do a sales tax to pay for all health care. Well, you should have heard the speech at the meeting that it's passionate about keeping samples open and, sure, and we need to directions. decide today. And I'm thinking, yeah. what? Why are you yeah. deciding today? I just, yeah. Oh, no, he, yeah, you, you said he was always the enemy? He was, we, we, we did not like that guy. <laughs> He's very smart and, and, and very charismatic, but... I just, yeah, I just, uh, on, on principle, I got in, I got onto this board, uh, you know, no. because I believe in public no. delivery of public yeah. health, you know. Well, I think in the OSHPAD, too, I noticed that they, they 100 doctors, they went down in, from 2013 to 2014 by 100 doctors, even though the patient wow. census stayed the same. So somehow they're... Yeah, running it like um, Well... Interesting. It'll be... I wonder what they pay their CEO. So you're going to have to no. help me on what my lunch is going to be with Baye on Monday. I recommend the tuna. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the punches, pilot. <laughs> okay, so the point of this was a discussion. I, 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 Trustee Lawrence, do we, do we have the... The sentiment of the board? Do you think we have enough to be able to? Take well, that? I think so. They just, I mean, they are, they haven't discussed it. Yeah, and I think Joe's issue about the loan and lecto, and we're not going. Yeah, I, I think I have a better sense of it. Okay. We can we can trade synopsis notes. Yeah, you're gonna have to really help me with the wording. Sure. Do you well, want to say that there's gonna be a motion a resolution is, forthcoming? Sorry, just a question before the lunch. Do you need to inform Susan of this sentiment so that she has the ability to give you even further uh, weight for that conversation? Well, uh, you know, I, I think those kinds of conversations go between the, and, and I'm not trying to push this off anybody, no, no, no. but go between the CEO and the other CEO, so Susan and Del Vecchio need to have need to have that conversation. Uh, you know, in, in this instance, I can tell 
the sentiment of our board and what our feeling is, and that certainly we are committed to serving that population in that area. We don't want to lose that. But presently, we can't take that on without additional money coming from the county. And we are concerned about the loan agreement because the lower that loan becomes, the more appealing it becomes to electo. And at least this is how I'm internalizing this. Yes. The more appealing that comes to electo, and that's an easy purchase for a private company to take it. And then we have the private benefit transaction issue, which seems to me to be a, a public in interest and a conflict that we ought not to engage in. Did I say it right? Pretty good. I, I'm just we have good points because yeah. I'm just telling you this, the run-up to the November 7th platform meeting, mm -hmm. one of the things we are doing is galvanizing the assembly and the committee. community. Mm -hmm. I've already been asked by Supervisor Chen, you know, am I as a private citizen or as a trustee of the board going to speak? on behalf of the even township thing or whatever. So tomorrow I was going to bring that up with us. Like what should be my talking point so that we are consistent and Good. Uh, yeah. that I speak. But because like um, Hayward's fate and destiny is tied into some of this work, mm -hmm. I want to be able to like not say something that will shoot us in the long run or, you know, will we'll, we'll be will have the long view of the good of the community mm -hmm. without benefiting electo in any way. So yeah. any of these talking points that you can share with us, because you all will all be asked about it sometime or yeah. the others. And, and you know, I would like to say as a, as a board, it, it seems to me, and, and this is one of the things that I feel very proud about being serving here, is that we really are focused on the success of AHS. And while we have these various interests in our community, mm -hmm. I think we're well aware of what our primary objective is. And so we want to be able to serve the communities in which we represent, but we also have the obligation here. So I, I think you're absolutely right. We've got to have some common language. The, the resolution issues kind of help us in, in the sense that it's, it's spelled out, so we may want to think about something like that. So. That's that's how I read this. And I was simply wondering out loud, just politically, strategically, before you enter that conversation with Supervisor Viet, does it help to have conveyed this sentiment to Susan before? Uh, I think that that might be yeah. that might be valuable, and either either he does it yeah. or, or or I post it. Either way, so we we probably ought to have that conversation. I think you should. I, I think that's a good yeah. counsel. I, do, I think it's a good it's, council. Ooh, I'd hate to walk in there. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good council. <laughs> okay, did we finish this? We have completed day one, and it Ooh. is uh, 20 minutes to four. Wow. Oh, wow. wow. I do stand corrected. <laughs> I know exactly yes. what I'm going to do with myself. Uh, yes, you know why? I was only going to get half a workout in after this. He went very fast. That, well, it was, it was, a, team, it was a team effort. You, you cut a break short. It was actually, you know, we, so we constant improve or continuous improvement. Um, uh, we, we kind of structured this schedule wrong. We should have put the breaks in different places and move other things around. That was stressing me off, but he was actually over here counseling me the whole time, like, you're fine. <laughs> like, we were plotting out the hours, and, and I'm stressing, and he's like, we actually have time. You need to chill out. But, uh, but I, I just was not doing that. And so um, he's right, too, so I'll give him that. Um, uh, but, but, yeah, we, I, I hope that today, actually day one, tomorrow will be a half day, but 
um, you, you got the flavor of actually great engagement and good uh, counsel that you provided both for internal and external uh, opportunities uh, for the organization, as well as handling some of your own uh, board, uh, board business. And so tomorrow we'll continue that in a, in a truncated fashion. We have some actual action items we need to um, uh, bring before the board for action on. Uh, we need to do a training on uh, ethics, and uh, our general counsel is going to lead us in that. Uh, it has to be two hours by statute, so brace yourself. Uh, but he will get you there within two hours or by two hours. Uh, uh, and then we have close we have closed session uh, after that. And I think that's it. One issue tomorrow. I have to be back in San Francisco. Uh, I have a drop dead time noon. So. Oh, that's okay. So the, we start the training. So you'll get the training done, and then. We'll just be in close session probably when you need to leave, but that's okay too. Well, I'm and saying this way. Provided there's no truck. I'll be in big trouble if yeah, I don't uh, get there on time. So I'm hosting a, a big luncheon. Oh, oh, oh well. so I was going to say a quarter to 11, but maybe 10.30 you need to be. Yeah. At the latest, you need to be checking out. Okay. We're starting at 8.30, right? Uh, do we start at 8.30? Yes. Yeah, it's 8.30. 8.30. Yeah. 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 Our big annual okay. meeting. So yes, uh, I move that we adjourn the meeting. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Uh, were there any? Were there any public comment? Thank you. Okay, meeting adjourned. <laughs>